Hey everybody, what's up? It's Dave. Just a couple of things I want to get out of the way real quick before we get started in this episode. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Quarterbash. It's kind of what I've been focusing a lot of my attention on lately. It's about treasure hunting in various different forms and things I've been excited about in my life, like colored vinyl and things I didn't know I was excited about, like searching for rare coins and rolls of coins from the bank. Stuff I didn't even know people did. And I'm going to expand on that and keep doing stuff that is treasure hunting and adventure. So it's called Quarterbash. I will link it on the page for this podcast, but if you go to YouTube and you type in Quarterbash, the word quarter, like a 25 cent piece, and bash, like hopefully your best birthday, you will find it. And what I would really love it if you could do, it would be an awesome way to support me, is subscribe to Quarterbash. YouTube is all about subscribers when you start off. You need a thousand subscribers to get to a new level on there. Right now, as I make this recording, I have just over 200 subscribers. So I'm getting there. It's been a nice couple of months run, but I really need to keep pushing it. And if you, my loyal listening base, would go onto YouTube and subscribe, that would be super awesome helpful. If you don't know how to do it, It doesn't cost anything. If you have a Gmail account, that's all it takes. Just when you're signed into Gmail, open up YouTube. You hit the subscribe button underneath my video. There's a bell icon you can click if you want to get updates whenever I put something new up. But you don't even have to do that. Just click subscribe. It adds to my subscriber count. That just means that your YouTube feed, when you're on YouTube, will get my videos fed into it. You don't have to do anything. And look, I know most of you probably know this, but I've had to explain this to a few people. And let me tell you, when you're doing videos all the time and trying to build a channel like this, every single subscriber matters. Every time you see that counter tick up, it makes you feel really good. It makes you feel like you're not wasting your time. You know, maybe I am wasting my time. Go check out my videos and find out. But I think there's someone there that you'll enjoy. I'm trying to definitely have fun with it. So that would be super cool if you could do that. The other thing I wanted to say is, I also work on podcasts for Aram Arslanian's company, Cadence Leadership and Communication. Recently, he did an interview with Christopher Horsethief, my guest for today, where they talked leadership and business, and they touch on topics that Chris and I do not cover in today's episode. And their conversation allows Christopher to expand on some of the stuff that we talk about in this episode in a way that I was unable to inspire him to do it's we're both coming from different points of view with a ram he's mostly talking about business and leadership issues around the things that chris specializes in with me i was talking about social and our past and things like that so there's just opportunities for a lot of chris's expertise to come through in a way that is truly impressive in the cadence episode that he just did it's called cadence one step beyond I'll put a link to that in the page for this podcast also. I really recommend checking it out. It's about a third as long as this episode, and you are going to get a lot out of it, I I swear. It is truly great. Okay, that's enough of me running on at the mouth. Check that out, and let's get into this episode. Here we go. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of I've Known You Too Long. My guest today is someone that, well, you know, I don't think 
there's been anyone on this podcast that I've known longer than this person, with the exception of Bill. Um, Bill Baker, episode three. I've known Bill since we were young children. So go listen to Bill's episode and you'll see what I'm talking about. I was taking a look at my list of prior guests and it's possible that I've known Brett Van Horn longer than I've known this person. But I'm not entirely sure if that's true because there might be some things I'm not remembering about the very early days of our first encounters, which we're going to sort out. My guest today was in some bands back in the day. Now listen, if you listen to this podcast and you know hardcore music, you might know a band called The First Step. But see, there's a band called First Step from Bellingham way, way before The First Step. And this person was in that band. And they were also in another band that I was in with a really embarrassing name that we'll talk about. (laughs) And embarrassing songs too. And uh, probably embarrassing live performances and just about everything else embarrassing. But I will say there's a couple cool photos. We'll put those up for sure. My guest today is Christopher Horsethief. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hey, what's up? So right off the bat, I've only known you as Christopher Horsethief for the last little while. I know that you changed your name. I, growing up, I knew you as Chris Sanchez. Yeah, Chris Chris Sanchez uh, often uh, um, kind of assumed to be of Mexican or Chicano background, which I never really was. Uh, I, I uh, in sometime in around two thousand, um, you know, I had moved home uh, to the community that my father's from, and uh, decided that uh, there was probably a better last name than Sanchez because I'm I'm not Mexican, I'm not Chicano. Um, or anything like that. Uh, I'm actually Native American, so ended up uh, changing my name back to uh, one of our historical family names. But yeah, I was uh, Chris Sanchez. And every once in a while, I still get mail for Chris Sanchez, and my daughter's like, who's this guy? (laughs) Who's that person? But I mean, with the people that I know that knew you back in the day from high school and everything, I think if they haven't followed you, you know, on social media or haven't seen you, they wouldn't know who Christopher Horsethief was necessarily. So I thought I'd throw that out right in the beginning. And as we get into it, maybe we'll go into a little bit more about how you get the name Sanchez as a last name. That would be sure. interesting to me. Um, it's probably not the most interesting story, but like, you know, in my mind, I've built it up as being probably really like, you know, a lot of intrigue. Maybe involved, uh, a, I don't know, some kind of really good Mexican food or something like that. It's <laughs> okay. probably it's probably um, not that cool, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about All it. All right, we'll get there. So well, anyway, it's, it's awesome having you here. And it's we have known each other for a long time. I'm going to do the thing in a minute. But another thing about this is we also were out of touch for a long, long time. So whereas we have this huge history that goes back to early days to the skateboard shop and before, we also we're not part of each other's lives for basically most of the nineties and all the basically first decade of the two thousands. We've just basically reconnected in the last couple of years, really. Sure. Um, It's been awesome, but that means there's going to be a lot to learn that I'm going to get to learn about your life from this podcast. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Okay. (laughs) Well, I I don't often think of myself as that interesting. I I kind of jokingly tell people I'm easily uh, forgettable. And uh, it's a skill over the years where I can sometimes just drop out of a scene or something uh, and people never really know where I go or, or anything. So. Oh, you'll, you'll be the, the <laughs> Eeyore of this podcast? Well, they're, one of the workshops uh, that I help put on every year, um, it's a great group of people. Every year we get together for about a week and we work with um, training some you know, indigenous youth that want to be involved in business and economics and, and that kind of thing. And they've figured out after two or three years that towards the end of the conference, 
I'll just disappear because I don't like saying goodbye. So at some point towards the end, they'll say, everybody better say goodbye now because he's just going to disappear. And then we'll hear from him in like a week when he's home or whatever. So <laughs> so that's how you do it. You yeah. dip out for yeah, a while. It's a skill that I've developed. Sometimes it's a week. Yeah. Sometimes it's 20 years. Could be, could be somewhere <laughs> in there. I'd like to think that the average person, it's uh, maybe somewhere in between those. <laughs> you would hope. You would hope. Okay, Chris, I've known you too long. Okay, maybe, probably. Because <laughs> we've known each other for a long yeah. time. Where did we meet? So I, we've talked a little bit about this, and what I remember is, um, even though probably the most um, formative part of our friendship was kind of during the high school years, we actually met at Shuxon. So I, my family had moved a couple of times from Bellingham to Southern California, which okay. that kind of housing volatility when you're, you know, probably you know, a little bit poor and um, you probably don't have, you know, a lot of really cool stuff and you're not that close to family is really hard. And so I remember on one of the trips, um, we had moved back and I started at Shuxon. Shuxon Middle School, Shuxon where Middle I went school. to middle school yeah. for three years. What year was yeah. it that you started? I, I, I think it was the middle year because seventh grade, seventh. Yeah. Cause sixth grade, um, fifth and sixth, uh, we lived in San Bernardino and then moved back for seventh and then eighth um, ended up moving to North Hollywood. So I had, it was one of those things where I, you know, middle of the year, I transferred in, probably not in the middle, but towards the beginning. And that's always, that makes it awkward too. When you show up and you're at a new school and nobody knows you, like there's like the worst thing in the world. But I remember we would play football. I remember hanging out. Yeah. And uh, I remember, um, I just remember you from that. Um, You were always, you were really funny and just about it. It was always like, it was always like a performance. It wasn't just run a receiver's route and then, you know, score a touchdown. There was always like some really like funny thing that you were doing. Well, bear bear in mind that that's what you do when you don't know how to play football and also aren't good at it. Yeah. So like if I ever caught the ball or did anything like a tiny achievement, I probably blew up to be some big deal. I remember one time, um, I don't know if it was like school pictures or whatever, but you were dressed, you know, we, everybody was probably dressed up really nice. And I remember we were like, okay, don't, don't everybody. And it was, of course it was super muddy that day. <laughs> and I remember everybody ended up getting muddy, but as soon as you got your pants muddy, it just turned into like a mud bowl. And I remember <laughs> it being, um, really kind of a funny thing. You were one of the first people, um, when I had moved back, that was like, you know, not like who's this weird kid that just showed up, but it was like, here's, you know, here's someone else that, you know, we could get into some kind of, you know, recess trouble with or whatnot. I don't think we had any classes together. So who was your teacher in seventh grade? Um, I, I remember at one point, um, uh, cause it was a homeroom. You'd have Carl th- Taylor, uh, Mr. Taylor. Okay. Because later actually he's a good friend of mine on Facebook, which is funny. He's like the only one of my previous teachers with the exception of a couple of professors that actually sent me a friend request. And it's really funny. And he will occasionally, um, he'll occasionally send me you know, a message and talk about something from, from back in the day, because he was also, my supervisor when I picked strawberries for Kurt Mayberry, which was my first job for a long time. (laughs) We'll get to strawberries. Oh, and I I remember when my mom said, Oh, we're moving again. And this was like, you know, a month before the end of the school year. And I just kind of gave up. I mean, why, why really try? And I remember he pulled me aside one day and was like, Hey, you know, you, you, you have, you have the ability, you have some potential. You shouldn't just give up. And I told him, I was like, well, we're leaving. None of these friends will be my friends next year, you know, however. And he was like, yeah, it's, it's clear you've kind of given up, but, but you shouldn't. So it was always really cool that he was like the one person that, that I kind of, um, you know, kept in touch with from, from like middle school and on. That is cool. I don't have any teachers 
from that time that I kept in touch with. And, and you were in and out in the same year? I can't, I can't remember if I started the year, but I, I know that I left before the end of the year because we were going to move a couple <clears> of weeks before the end of the year. So like with a month left when my parents told me. But all in seventh grade. Yeah. yeah. And so, okay, so that football thing we used to do, it would be like Randy Clark, Tom Pilch, a few other people. I don't remember if Seth Airholm was ever out there playing with us or not. I think it was like sometimes he'd come out on the field. I feel like I didn't really know him until high school. Okay. So, but he was definitely yeah. part of our shucks and middle school experience too. So this kind of makes sense. So you were in and out and I do remember like kind of a rotating cast of characters, but my main, my main crew at the time was basically, I mean, my main guy at the time was basically Randy. Like from that point forward, it was Randy and I kind of do or die all through high school up through middle school and through high school. Yeah. Like, so, so anyway, I, I believe you. But I don't have a specific memory. I just remember, I mean, I know where we were playing football. I remember there was a crew of guys we played football with. And especially if you came in partway through the year and left before the end of the year, my memory would basically kind of like cut that part off, right? So, so the funny thing, the, the only reason that I remember going out and playing is when we, before we moved to California the first time, um, I was going to Assumption um, Elementary, middle school. It was the Catholic school next to Bellingham High School. Um, and then I think it was at the end of fifth grade was the first time we moved. And I played a lot. Um, Dave Heiser, Brendan Hogan, all those guys that went to Assumption, that's just what we did. So when so I came, those are guys we knew in high school. You knew them in grade school. I did. And then so when I moved back and we were at Shuxon, that was just like the thing to do because that was really all I knew how to do. The socializing was like, oh, you, you know, you play football and you do whatever and you try not to get muddy and then you get muddy and it turns yeah. into, you know, whatever. I remember you also at one point had a glove. It was like the glove. It was like a fingerless glove or something and it was like the power. That yeah. sounds right. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Thinking that it would make me play better. Or was it like a Michael Jackson glove with the fingers I, cut off or I something? Remember. I don't think it was a Michael Jackson-esque, but I think it was definitely not what you would find any football players wearing. Because I don't think there were fingers, and most of the football players wear the gloves with the rubber fingers to catch better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it made no sense. It's not like I was good at football or anything. You'll remember a few years later, I was really stoked on those black leather rector gloves to go skateboarding in. Because then finally, I had a reason to yeah. wear gloves. Yeah. Yeah. Like 30 years later, I found um, somebody had some of the like rector aggressor knee pads and I could never afford them. So I bought them like not too long ago, probably used or secondhand or something. So I remember when I found them, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just as cool as like 13 year old everyone else or 15 year old everyone else. So, yeah, yeah, totally moral victory there. OK, so we met in the seventh grade. Yeah, I would have told you that we met in high school because of John Dodd. Actually, um, before John, I remember in freshman year, um, Randy played tennis and I played tennis. That was like the sport, I guess, that I was, that okay. was the only sport I ever did. So I remember hanging out with him at tennis practice because we were kind of a little bit, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was Randy. Maybe it wasn't, but I'm pretty sure it was. But we there was obviously someone that, that was there that was probably not as stoked about the act of playing tennis as I was, like maybe as stoked as my dad might have been. <laughs> and so... I remember hanging out with him a little bit and he, he was, I think you all were kind of skating at that point. And then not I quite. Okay. Not almost. Not okay. But I remember, I remember him, I think the first one from high school. And then uh, it was probably that summer that I started um, having some kind of loose association with John Dodd and that kind of that social group. Yeah. We, we started skating that, that Christmas. Okay. Yeah. So we basically, um, 
Randy and I both got skateboards for Christmas and everybody else was kind of in progress, like well, getting yeah. boards. And I think that um, the spring after that was when we were playing tennis. So oh. I, th- I think that it might, I think, cause you know, it was one of those things where I remember seeing and I was like, oh yeah, skateboards are really cool. But you know, I didn't at the time thought, oh, I'll never. So the first whole series of boards I had were like borrowed from people. Yeah, who could or... afford them? <laughs> who could afford yeah. them, right? Yeah. I feel like I remember that. I feel like I remember that once we had a crew of people that were skateboarding, like I was lucky enough to be able to say Christmas is coming and my birthday is a day after. And Randy, his birthday is like four days after Christmas. And so we both made this play. All we want combined is a skateboard because it was like 120 bucks, 129, I think pre-tax is what I ended up paying at season surfer for my Madrid, John Lucero. And once you had one, unless it got stolen, (laughs) you you basically could you just needed to get the next part and once you had a group of friends that needed you to skate with them everyone was going to figure out how to get everybody all the parts they needed and sometimes that'd be the the task of the day we've got to get bearings for for john or we well i'm not going to say we ever had to get anything for john i felt like john was always part of the solution for getting things for us the black marketplace of used skateboard parts for people that were less fortunate yeah 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 and then as soon as you know as soon as I had my setup, like every once in a while, that would be me for different things. Like I got to get better wheels, but like my parent, that well was dry. I got my board. Remember done. when the axle in your truck would come loose from the hanger? So I remember one point I had a set of independents and I was super stoked about it and I still ride Indies, but one of them broke. And the only one that anyone could give me was a tracker. So I tried to convince people that by having this differential of um, kind of uh, uh, angle or you know, the, the way that, that somehow that helped me, but I, for a long time rode with one independent and one tracker and it was not, was ever... it a full truck or did you try to connect? A, a, oh, no, it was the full truck, yeah. the hanger to the, I think I did. And it didn't work. It didn't work. No, no. The, the, the angle was a little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I learned what bushings were. And then that little cup that I, I remember. We really thinking, learned a lot yeah. about all that, the mechanics and yeah. physics of all that stuff. Years later, I was working with someone on motorcycles and they were like, hand me that bushing. And I gave it to him and they're like, oh, you know what a bushing is? And I was like, ah, from skateboarding. So <laughs> you, what, what I also love about that time. And we're totally out of whack for what I normally do here because we've jumped ahead, but that's fine. We were skateboarding at a time when skateboarding had changed substantially. It was no longer the like carving, like surfing on the street, right? We were doing everything with curbs and the type of skateboarding we did absolutely destroyed the equipment. Bellingham cold storage, that whole place below John's, they had, there were, there were ledges where there were, there was like angle iron on the, it was like coping. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time. And I remember you'd have to go up and try and grind it from the top of the loading dock. Yeah. You went too far. Oh, you're off. Of course you'd fall off and get really hurt. So. Oh, fall off and get really hurt was the name of the game. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Probably the same with uh, bonfires and probably everything else we did in those days was, uh, yeah. We did some pretty awesome stuff that, um, people I don't think do as much of anymore, at least not at the age that we did it. But, um, what I was going to say is that that equipment, like the bushings and the, the hangers on these trucks and like even that piece of metal that, that I don't know if it has a name, just the ring that went around from the, the hanger that held the bushing and then the nut was on the top. Like that stuff would just get so trashed and so destroyed. And I remember the parents were always like, they sell perfectly good protective plastic stuff, but you took it off your board. And it was hard to explain. No, it 
I need the board lighter. I need the board. No, you just you just want to look cool with it off there. Yeah. I think it was Brett that was talking about having all the really cool stuff. And I, I could have never really afford it. So I never had them. So I was always using broken stuff and just breaking them into smaller pieces. And then <laughs> I think at some point, you know, my, my dad kind of realized it wasn't just this thing that mm-hmm. I was doing. So I remember one year my dad kind of, you know, did the dad thing and I got like a, I got like a complete and I was like, oh, it was like the what biggest did you get? thing ever. It was probably a Mark Gonzalez because I rode those mm-hmm. forever. Um, I was trying to think about that the other day because um, I b- before I, I I was really into Dogtown stuff primarily because there was you know Dogtown had a lot of people of color that rode from them and a lot of Mexicans and even though I wasn't Mexican I kind of fit in with them and so for a long time I liked Dogtown stuff but before that um, there were two or three um, I know there was a, a red stained kind of see-through mark gonzalez that i had forever mm-hmm. and i did try and save the tail on that one because i didn't want to put you know eventually you know it goes the way that they all go and probably broke the tail off or you know something. sure that first big chunk out of the grip tape where you know big apply comes up and i remember that was the big and we'd be in aggression trying to like vice them back together oh we Elmer's, tried so helmer's glue <laughs> i remember trying to put uh the nuts that you use to hold the rails on in the tail with the hope that it would and this was even worse when you first on your first board, when you actually had the holes drilled to put the uh, tail, what the tail plate, yeah. tail, what skid, skid plate, skid, skid plate yeah. to put the skid plate on. You'd take that out, but then you had those two holes and everything would de lamb from there. Yeah. It'd be terrible because you'd ride in the rain because it was Bellingham. Bellingham. We're, we're riding the on the wood would get in there and it would start to, you know, puff up. Yeah. Oh, did you ever have a Bonite disaster in the rain? I didn't because I remember they were like $10 more than everything else. And yeah, I was going like, to buy that. Yeah, I could probably buy one more record or one more CD if I got just a regular one. But, I don't think Bellingham was a good place for Bonite. Yeah. Test marketing for Pal Peralta was probably not in the Northwest at that point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we've got over boards pretty well, but we definitely connected as friends through skateboarding and ninth and 10th grade ish Bellingham high school. And for me, I feel like realizing that you were like part of the crew was you being with like John Dodd and Ed Lloyd. Does that make sense? Is that the, the, I'd go over to John Dodd's house and you'd be there. I don't, I don't remember Ed Lloyd. And I think I've just added that in because he didn't skate with us or anything, but he was at John's a lot at the time. And I, I feel like I became kind of aware of Ed we called him Eddie at the time um, and you kind of simultaneously. And so I was like, my, my group of people that are around me is kind of expanding. It's not just, it's, it's Randy and it's Sean, but now it's John has come back into my life because I knew John Dodd a little bit at the end of grade school from church stuff. And we didn't go to the same junior high. And then what we'd run into each other at a, like church events. And then as soon as we got into high school, it was like, oh, here's John. Like, here's a crew of people that are already here that I kind of know. And I feel like very shortly after that happened, you were just there. Well, I remember, you know, everybody in those days has like in an elementary school, I'd have a friend that was, you know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time with, I'd stay at their house. They'd stay at mine. It was just what you did. And then I remember for a long time, I didn't really have that. And then all of a sudden, like John had the big house and his parents were really cool with people staying there. So I'd go for two or three days at a time. And his it just, mother was really cool with people staying there. Right, right, yeah. That's an important clarification. <laughs> I feel like it's a bit of a distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were definitely other people um, there that might not have been that stoked about it. But I remember he had, there was the big garage and there was the upstairs for the garage and we'd like sit and watch the cars on I-5 go back and yeah. forth. And then he had the room on the other side of the house that was like, 
I think the first people that I really remember staying there a lot, um, Dan Honrud at the time. Had oh, showed. yeah, so absolutely. Was, I remember there was like a month where like every day that's just where we go to hang out and we'd probably stay there or, you know, go, go from there and then go down and skate at the. Uh, Wait, you know, did Dan sometimes skate in a trench coat? I think so. Okay. While there is an Ed Lloyd connection to John Dodd, I have definitely transposed Dan and Ed in my head. It was I, it was you and John and Dan. Dan was a little he was a little bit preppy for that I remember for the rest of it. So I remember I thought he was kind of cool because he was kind of you know he just kind of was uh, kind of had a little bit of a different look. And he was a good time, looking man at the time. Like I was super poor. I grew up super poor, so I always had like you know, not cool clothes. And at one point I, you know, we discovered the army Navy surplus store. And so that's where we do like our school shopping. Yeah. And stuff. Oh yeah. So I would have just like, you know, just beaten up battered flannels and hooded sweatshirts, you know, no coats, nothing cool like that. So every once in a while, someone would show up and they'd have like a really cool, like life's a beach jacket or something. And I'd be like, Oh man, <laughs> I've got like three layers of flannel and none of them are, you know, water. And then when snowboarding came around, everybody had the technical gear, like, Oh, oh. that's, it's, you know, I'm going to spray whatever on it so that it's waterproof. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that works for flannel. <laughs> Definitely doesn't work for well, German army stuff that you'd get at the surplus store. So a lot of that. So someone would say, hey, rain here means snow at Baker. And like, I would just kind of collapse on my desk. And if you were in the class with me, I'm sure you'd just have yeah. that same look in your face. Like, screw you. I always hated it. Yeah. I hate hated it because I can't afford it. Yeah. I went, I went one time at assumption, um, is like in second or third grade. You went skiing. I did. And I had, yeah. I had no gear. So I yeah. basically went in, you know, like I'm sure what was like a three ply jean tuxedo and it was just plastered and it was miserable. I hate miserable. It. And then even, um, even when people started, um, you know, snowboarding in Bellingham, I never got into it. And then in like 19, it's like 1996, uh, I was, you know, living on the Flathead Indian Reservation between Snowball, Big Mountain, and Blacktail. Um, and so I got passes and I would ride every day. I got really, I was much better snowboarder than I ever was a skateboarder. Could ride parks, would spend summers at Mount Hood. But it was one of those things. I could do it by myself. Didn't really need friends. Didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Had, you know, decent income that I could work out of a laptop in a hotel. So. When you could actually afford the gear, yeah. the minimum oh, yeah. amount of oh, gear yeah. you needed to make that an enjoyable oh, I sport. Of, I kind of went the other way because at one point I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to have like, you know, decent gear. And, you know, so it makes sense to me that when you could get the thing that kept you from being able to do what everybody else is doing when you were younger and you want, like, I, I wanted to go snowboarding. Like I liked skateboarding, but like I would have gone snowboarding on the weekends in high school if I could have afforded it, but yeah. there was no possible way. Right. Um, years later, because of the Van Cleeks and because of Bill, um, I was able to go up and get a get a pass, a lift pass by washing tables, like clearing tables and wiping tables at the food service at Mount Baker. And then they would just here's a board here. They, they put me in everything that I needed. And it was still hand me down stuff that didn't fit right. But like I was able to have a good time. So the the few times I went snowboarding was never with my own gear or my I never have had the experience of being properly fitted in stuff that was mine where I can just be like, let's do this. Me versus I would always mountain. say there was two things that kept me from getting into it. One, I didn't like all of the crazy kind of dig low skier. And now it's kind of funny because that's like the fashionable thing if you're doing extreme sports. But I didn't like that. And also. If it's skateboarding, you can borrow enough pieces to put a board together. Snowboarding's a little bit different. It's, you know, 
you know, having spent a lot of time doing it, I know that the gear, you know, you get what you pay for. And I probably wouldn't want to be coming down an icy, you know, um, you know, face of a hill in borrowed gear that's all kind of MacGyvered together. It just seems um, not so great. Dangerous almost. <laughs> I remember yeah. Bill, I remember Bill yelling at me, if you lay there like that, the ski patrol is going to think you're hurt. And I remember just yelling, but I am hurt. It was kind of like being uh, at Chad Mork's half pipe. You fall. And the rule was, um, as soon as you fall, get off the ramp. Yeah. And then the second rule is, if you're hurt, get off even quicker. <laughs> so that was the thing with snowboarding, too. As soon as you're down, not only is, you know, not only are they going to try and toboggan you down, um, someone's going to run into you going really fast. Yeah. And, and if it's like kids on skis, or, you know, some people just don't really care. I've seen people kind of like, you know, nolly or kind of, you know, jump off people that were hurt or laying there or, you know, so yeah. Didn't yay, ever, yay, new obstacle. Didn't ever want to be, you know, didn't want to be that person. <laughs> yes. Okay. So snowboarding. I'm glad that we both got our opportunity to actually enjoy that thing because it does make sense that a skateboarder would snowboard. Yeah. Even though I think that we were both probably a little bit overly negative about it when it was something we couldn't afford and it was yep. kind of like, man, there was just no possible way. Like, but I think I probably gave my snowboarding friends a little bit too much shit about it because like, you know, I mean, they could afford it. I remember when they to them, would it say, was normal. Yeah. When it was the rain here means yeah. snow baker. I remember um, right between aggression and the fish hatchery, there was like one covered parking area that wasn't even very big, but we could go there and it was lighted. And then we would be like, well, at least we can do wall rides, but none of us could really do wall rides yet. But that was like, that was it. And we'd walk down there so our boards wouldn't get wet and we wouldn't uh -huh. destroy the bearings. And then we'd have a, you know, a great session or something. And once in a while, if we were really brave, we'd go down to, um, uh, on railroad, there was the one parking garage where if the security wasn't there, we could go to the top mm. and then we could, we could like ride down in the, in the rain. And that's really all you could do without getting your bearings wet and, you know, facing delamination. Silver beach elementary school up by Randy's, yeah. um, which is really a great place in Bellingham. It's a site of a lot of great events in my life. Strangely. Um, they had a covered play area. So I'd be at Randy's and it'd be raining. We just go there and we didn't have anything. We didn't have a ramp or anything. We would just yeah. Ride around and learn to Ollie and try to, you know. Yeah. I, I remember land, I you landed in Ollie. No, you were there with us one time with a boombox with bad brains, eye against eye. Yeah. That's why I still have Does that, that sound record. right. Yep. I put it on cassette and I was like, so I learned kind of how to do that from Brett. And I noticed when you were talking with Brett, you were talking about going to the Blodale parking lot. Uh -huh. When the first person that I really spent time with um, doing that kind of stuff is we would go, he'd bring his radio and we would listen to either jfa or the ventures and we would just carve flat ground there's nothing there it's just a big parking lot so i remember i was just like oh I, th I think i can do this if we can you know put together a boom box and get the batteries and that was one of the very first records that i bought and again it was one of those ones where it was a little bit different frankly punk and hardcore and metal is you know 99 percent white people for yeah. lack of a better way to say it. So when I would find a band where there was someone that kind you know, had that kind of other approach or there was, you know, more of a, you know, a, you know, cultural mix or something like that, it was always important to me. And Bad Brains was the, I think the first record I got that had, you know, people of color and there was, you know, a little bit more of a, a complexion to it. But yeah, I remember I put it on tape and I, cause you couldn't bring the record, right. You can't play the record there. So you put it on tape and then you duplicate it. And then 
replicative fading, everyone sounds worse and worse. Oh, sure. But, you know, that's you're skateboarding to it outside yeah. and you got some music for it. And, you know, there was a good time. But my specific memory of that was in the covered area at Silver Beach where Randy and I used to go. I thought you went there with us and, and you were I the guy been. that had bad yeah. brains. So that yeah. was the that was my yeah. I think my memory is complete there. And, and about the same time or probably not too long after that, um, I lived right by Columbia. Um, like my stepmother, Helen lived, you know, half a block from Columbia until just a couple of years ago. And so, um, Brent Columbia and elementary school, yeah, Brent and Jason and I would go and we'd do the same thing, but every once in a while we'd actually bring a little, little kick ramp. Cause we were trying to figure out, um, uh, that was the first place I saw. I'm mean, Jason used to do, he was the first person that could do method errors and right away. <laughs> and so we'd bring it down there and we'd try and do a wall ride. So I recently found some pictures. I think there's pictures of you scanning there too. There's one where you're doing like something against the, against the wall in the back or something. My guess is that if you have pictures of us doing wall rides from a ramp, they're from behind Albertsons. Well, the, you were doing the thing where you like put your hands on the ground and push the board up. So you're like upside and you had really oh, long black hair yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah. But, but Jason was the one where like, he, that was his thing. There's one where he's really, you know, really, you know, boning out a little uh, method error there. And I remember, I remember going the first time, like, you know, none of us really knew we were just like, well, I guess you just ride straight and then you hit the wall and then you try and turn, not realizing that there's that really violent transition, right? It's not like the half yeah. pipe. <laughs> and oh, then, yeah. yeah, behind Payless was where I remember it up, up at the kind of the, where it was Albertsons and Payless. Yeah, yeah. And I remember there was just a little bit more room um, behind the, the what used to be the Payless. And then out in front, they had the painted curbs. Mm -hmm. And they had the one um, that was right by, you know, a block up from aggression. There was that one yellow painted curb that we go and board slide or whatever. There was one, and I hurt my elbow and put a dent in it, and it's Ooh. still there all these years later. I can, oh, God. That whatever. was a dangerous curb. Yeah. The one That's a Thai restaurant now. Okay. It was a it was a closed down burger joint at the time, and it had a really beautiful painted curb. Right. Yeah. That curb yeah. is still there, yeah. and it never got painted again. So imagine what it looks like right now. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember. I don't know how much time we spent there because it was so close. We could just take if things were like slow, we'd all just go and skate for a few minutes or something. We're gonna take a break, but we're all gonna take a break, and we're just gonna like flip the sign, and we'll keep an eye out and see if anybody's coming up. Back to the, in five minutes, <laughs> yeah. look down yeah. to see if anyone was standing at the door. Yeah. We're we're so far ahead of ourselves now. Okay, we'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Um, all right, so if we can agree that we played football in seventh grade, but here's what I'm going to say, okay? Recess football, not real football. No, <laughs> we played recess Nerf football, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Like touch, but we always wanted it to be tackle. I think the deal is, is it would slowly evolve into tackle until yeah. a, some, a teacher came along and told us we weren't allowed to do that, and then it yeah. would go back to two-hand touch. Friendly reminder, guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Nahaz or something. But here's the thing. If we had never met each other again, would you have been like, oh yeah, Dave Larson, he's a friend of mine, or would it, was it just a guy? Was I just a guy that you knew that played football? I remember you didn't. Wasn't your hair really different then? I can't, I can't in, remember. Was my hair different it, like in, in junior high? Didn't you have like like really super curly hair or something? See, I would have remembered that. I wouldn't have remembered your name, but if someone would have said, "Oh yeah, I remember that guy," like he had like he had like really curly hair, and or they would have brought up the glove, I would have been like, "Oh yeah, shucks," and <laughs> yeah, your, mud mud ball. Yeah. Your timeline can't be right if you know the curly hair, because that was a perm. But that was eighth grade. Eighth, okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, shoot, I'm, I'm, I'm I may be off by a year, but I do. I definitely remember. We were still playing football. Yeah, it it might have been, but I thought it was uh because I remember towards the end, like maybe it was seven, maybe I have it a little bit, um, a, a little bit off there, but like, those are the things I would have remembered. That would have been it. The, uh, 
the, like the long storied history of um, Chris and Dave would have been, you know, me probably being that guy that showed up one day and then disappeared one day. And then right. you being the person uh, with the glove and uh, getting super muddy and having like super crazy curly hair. Right on. But we and we we most definitely easily fell into being friends and hanging out in the beginning of high school. Yeah. So you were part of my crew. So we know it now. We yeah. know where the point is as close as we're going to get it. So let's go back. Where do you come from? What's your story? So um, I, I uh, was born in Bellingham. I lived uh, most of the first, I don't know, 15 years of my life there, with the exception that my father served in the military. So I, I spent some time um, in Central America. I grew up bilingual. I spoke English and Spanish. And um, then after the age of four or five, um, stopped with the Spanish. I, I went to um, Custer was my first school. So if you're a native person in Custer, um, this was during the fish ins. This was when there were the long storied rivalries between agricultural producers using fertilizer and native people and the fertilizer being bad for fish stocks. So they, they, those two groups did not like each other. And I was the only native person <laughs> that went and everyone thought I was from the local reservation, which I wasn't. And so like that was really not my favorite. It was, I had a really bad um, kindergarten, first grade there. Then I transferred to another school that was also um, Irene Ryder Primary, which also middle of nowhere, very rural, but it was closer to where I think there was um, some other people from Nooksack or one of the other communities. Um, and then from there, uh, we moved around a lot. You know, I, I grew up pretty poor. My parents divorced when I was very young. Uh, there were times where um, one of my parents was homeless. We'd go and spend, you know, the weekend with him. And then we'd realize that oh, we're not camping. There's just, there's, this person has nowhere to go. So what seemed to be really fun camping trips are probably horrible for this parent to look back on later and realize I had nowhere to take my kids. And so it was a little bit um, high housing volatility and moving around until I got to Assumption. Then I did three years there and that was really good. My mom um, was a volunteer at Assumption. She worked at Assumption. So we were able to go to the kind of private Catholic school. We were still very poor. We were like, you know, the kids you let in because, you know, their family means really well and they're really dedicated. And so I, I, I that was the longest I'd been in any one place or any school was like um, second, third, fourth or something like that at that Assumption. In, in the movie Rounders, um, Matt Damon's character talks about him and Worm. Uh, you know, his dad cleaned the floors and uh, Worm's dad did the did the groundskeeping or whatever. Like, that's how they got to go to their Catholic school. Yeah, and I, re I remember my mother would do um, when they had, like, the Harvest Festival. I know my mom always, she hated it. It was a big thing for all the students, but she hated it because she had to work at it. And so, you know, that was kind of part of her job. And I didn't really get until later why it probably wasn't very fun to work there and then have to go to the Harvest Festival and work and, you know, have your kids there and, you know, whatever. Right. But so I, you know, I did that. And, and then we moved um, to San Bernardino, um, you know, single mother, Southern California, um, two siblings and a foster sister. And when you're the oldest, you know, it's a very common archetype. You're the oldest kid. You become the man of the house at like nine or 10 years old. So you're, you start living that life where you always feel like, you know, you got, you got very wrapped, very tightly. You got to keep track of what's going on. You're the oldest of the kids. You don't want anything to happen to anyone else. And then, you know, later, uh, you know, when I was um, studying a lot of psychology, I was reading about this and I was like, oh yeah, that's, <laughs> that was where it all kind of made sense. I was like, yeah, I had kids and we'd spend you know, most of our free time at parks, public parks or places where you can't let anyone get in trouble. And 
you don't want anyone to get kidnapped and it's a big scary world and you know southern california is like this conglomerate of all these you know cities and then there's these weird spaces between cities where it's not really rural but it's still a little bit rough um so you know i did that for a while um moved back to bellingham did a year of middle school and then and then went back and the second time we went back, we went to um, North Hollywood, uh, lived at uh, near the corner, uh, what, what's kind of called Victory, um, Victory Vineland. We lived on Van Owen Street. And every time I go to L.A., I always go there and the building is still there. And it's the, it was a hotel and you had to move. The law was you couldn't live in one room for more than a month. So oh. every month you had to move into a different room. But I remember, um, you know, there was a little bit of stability. There were video games, played a lot of video games. Um, had to walk to school um, through super, you know, rough neighborhood. The really nice thing is um, when I, you know, I recently brought my family and we went there and it's, it's kind of a nice neighborhood now. It's, it's, it's picked up. It's much better now than it was. So I talked about how terrible it was when they got there. And my wife was like, yeah, it doesn't, this actually looks pretty nice. There's, there's landscaping. And then I was like, no, 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 but just imagine <laughs> back in the day, it was all terrible, but um, you know, did, did that. And uh, you know, it was tough to have two young kids to be there to try and not have people get in trouble. So then, you know, we, we moved back again and ended up at 505 West Bakerview, which is the trailer. You moved court. back to Bellingham. Yeah, yeah. That, that's where when you talk to Shane Stevenson and, and we talk about the trailer park, that was it right around the corner from Bill's um, Bill's garage. Right. OK, so over by and if you're in Bellingham, it's near Bellis Fair Mall. And Bill's grandmother's house was the infamous garage where Inside Out played and Shelter played, a bunch of other great bands played. So you lived in the trailer park. Did did Shane Stevenson Stevenson did, yeah. So moved in the trailer park yeah, also. His, we, my, my grandparents were kind of the managers slash caretakers, and right, actually, um, if you're if you're coming back from Bills and then you turn to go down, there's the one entrance to the trailer park that's got the gate. That, I, I'm seeing the hand motions that are <laughs> drawing this map in the air, and I totally know everything you're saying. That yeah. that gate that's never been opened, as far as I can ever remember. My grandmother's trailer was right there, so oh, okay. so we were kind of close to. Um, we could get out that back way and go down towards Shuxon. So when we went to school at Shuxon, we could, um, if we stayed with our grandmother, we could walk down there. So it was pretty close, close there. To school, yeah. yeah. And then on the other side was where all the college students lived, and Stevenson's parents were college students there. So he lived kind of right at the cutoff, and then right on you know maybe 10 trailers on the other side of him was mark callison mm. so it was you know me and josh you know, my brother um and then stevenson and then callison and that was kind of the the 505 crew that was the the kind of people that you know that we kind of hung out and st- skated and do you know all listen to music and all that stuff but yeah that's the trailer park not so bad <laughs> wait so th- wait you were skating then this is before high school right um, this was, this was, she, my grand, my grandmother, my grandparents were there, um, quite a while. So there was, a, even if it wasn't, we weren't living there cause we did live with her for, for a while, but we'd go back and forth. We'd stay there. We'd, you know, do a lot of summer time there, hang out with Stevenson. Uh, I remember there was a little, uh, what do they call it? The, the courthouse or courtyard, or there was the place that had like the pool tables and oh. bingo for the old people. So it would be, you know, my brother and I and Stevenson trying, you know, causing trouble with all the old people and, you know, getting in <laughs> trouble. And I remember at some point, maybe it wasn't skating, maybe it was riding bikes, but you weren't supposed to be on the tennis courts. Right. And that's what we were doing. And I remember we always got, you know, got in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah. No, it was, it was fun riding bikes on tennis courts. No rocks. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. perfect. <laughs> Okay. All right. So then after that, are you, so you've moved back from your second move down to California Yeah. and now you're in Bellingham for good. It's stuck for, I mean, I think it was five or six years there. Yeah. 
so it was all of high school and then um, a couple years after I, I ended up moving in 94 so probably even longer that's like seven or, or seven eight or eight years, years yeah, yeah. I had a pretty good run there. Um, I left Bellingham in the end of 92 and you were still there for like a year yeah, I moved uh, December of 94 because it was just the 25-year anniversary of um, oh. where, where I moved to start working. Yeah. You were there two years after yeah. I left. Um, I, I ended up out um, in Ferndale, ended up in Marietta and Lummi and a few other places, but still kind of Bellingham proper. Yeah, it's it's all it's pretty small, so it's yeah. all kind of close. Yeah. Um, what were the reasons, if, do you remember, for going to California those two times? Was it a specific job opportunity? Yeah, my mother having, you know, opportunities to work down there. And um, they, they were good jobs for her. She did a lot of um, shipping and receiving and billing for a couple of different businesses. But, you know, basically single mother, lots of kids getting into trouble. A couple of us being of that age where you could start getting in real trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and I always feel kind of bad because, you know, had we been, you know, maybe better kids, I always kind of think, well, you know, what if we would have stuck it out for another year and things would have gotten better or something like that. But it was definitely a work thing. Um, this was very 80s. This was very Reagan era. It, things if you if you were if you were poor, things were not really good during those times. And I oh, remember, yeah. you know, always having to move, um, just doing what you could do for whichever job came up and trying to stick with it as long as you could. And, you know, it just. I, you know, the, and it was always tough because I could tell when we were getting ready for one of those moves and it was always a difficult thing. And then on top of it, me knowing that it was difficult, I know it was going to be hard for my siblings. And, and so I'm, you know, trying to be, you know, what dad should do, you know, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be OK. We're going to find something. So then, you know, I just, you know, kind of was always a little bit of that. I don't know about wet blanket, but definitely a little bit of that maybe worrying about stuff that maybe I shouldn't have had to worry about at eight to 13 years old. Sure. It had to be weird. You're constantly leaving friends and not knowing. <laughs> At one point we drove around. I think there were 23 different places in the Bellingham area that we had lived. And in, in some, in some cases we moved a couple of times a year, housing volatility. So it's funny when I do, you know, statistical analysis for people right now in development economics, housing volatility is a big thing that I look at. How often do you move? How long has it been since your last move? And it's all just strictly because I, I spent so much of my childhood trying to figure out what we were going to keep and move to the next house. And, you know, sometimes that stuff would make it with you. Sometimes it didn't. And then, you know, my dad at the same time was not living with us and he was always moving somewhere. So, yeah. Okay. So I have questions. Um, I'm gonna start with one. This isn't the normal question I ask people, but, um, like how is your last name Sanchez? So my father uh, is from Windermere, British Columbia, which is almost to, um, which is almost to Alberta. It's maybe 80 miles from Calgary and he was born there. And, you know, there was this long prod. This is the kind of stuff that I actually work on right now. There was this process in Canada uh, of the residential schools or the CIRSS, the Canadian Indian residential schools, where um, there was really for the better part of, you know, four generations, kids were just taken to these religious schools. Um, it was a particularly uh, brutal form of direct English instruction, and it was essentially intended to, you know, b beat the Indian out of kids that went to school there. Um, right now, Canada's in a big truth and reconciliation process trying to kind of cope with some of those things. But some people along the way decided that they, they weren't going to do that. And um, I know that um, my father's older siblings all went to St. Eugene's residential school, but my father and his two sisters closest to him um, ended up with their parents. Uh, they left um, and picked up work, uh, agricultural work in Skagit Valley. So they lived uh, and worked in Skagit Valley and they were a part of this kind of 
um, you know, migrant process of starting with, you know, strawberries and then blueberries and raspberries mm-hmm. and then squash, pumpkin, peas were sometimes in there. And it was really interesting because when I was doing uh, my master's in economics, I got an assistantship to go and do research in Skagit Valley with a bunch of the agricultural producers. If you know that area, it's kind of equidistant between Seattle and Vancouver. So there's this great pressure to buy up the land and put condos. But it's some of the best soil on the planet because of the way the glaciers move down. And so there's this immense pressure on agricultural producers to sell their land and, and build condos. So I got to go and do research. And even then, I remember I'd go to like random farmers' doors and I'd knock on the door and they would look at me and kind of give me the up and down because there's still not a great relationship between indigenous people and farmers. And they'd kind of look at me really funny. And then I would tell them what I was working on and then they'd want to know where I was from. And I would always tell them that you know, I grew up picking berries and they would want to know with who. And I'd say Kurt Mayberry and they, oh, come on in. And they would, so then we'd have these really great discussions. So, my grandparents ended up there. They, they, one of the things that the farmers told me was they would send buses to the interior of BC and they would come back with just whole families would uproot themselves. Indigenous families would come down and they would work there in the fields. Right. That's how my, that's how my grandparents got there. And then eventually, um, that kind of lifestyle didn't really work for child protective services. So my dad and his two sisters were, um, adopted, um, into foster care, but they were together. So a lot of people um, that study what happens when you, you know, separate kids from families and that kind of thing, um, they, they still had, and, and you know, th- those three siblings um, that were together, they're all still alive and I actually know them and they're, they're my relatives and I still see them. And then the ones that ended up going to that kind of hegemonic robotic process of the residential school, they all self-destructed by the time they were in there. I mean, by the time I was old enough to meet them, they, they were already gone. And so um, they were, uh, at one point, those siblings were adopted by a man named Charles Sanchez from the Lummi Indian Reservation. And his father, not everybody agrees with it, but I had heard at one point that his father was um, Portuguese. He was like mm. a merchant marine and had some ties to Portugal. So actually, Sanchez was not Mexican. It was Portuguese. But because I had, you know, semi kind of darker skin than most people, my last name was Sanchez. Everybody just, I had teachers, Senorita Waldron would give me essays, what it means to me to be Hispanic. And I remember after I graduated, I was skating by in front of Bellingham one day. And she had that really, really cool, like a 67 Cougar or something. She had an, she had an amazing car and I saw the car and I stopped to talk to her and I said, Hey, I just wanted to apologize. I never, you know, I never did those essays because, because I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not Latino. And she was like, well, I kind of figured after like a year of you never doing it, <laughs> but yeah, it was just kind of, you know, that was just it. Cause you know, I wasn't from the local tribes. I'm not from the coast. Right. And so you, you probably wouldn't know, you wouldn't ever really see me hanging out with Luxat and Nooksack or, or Lemmy or, um, you know, Tulalip family, even though I, even though we did, my dad ended up marrying in out there. But I just, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really fit in there. And um, I just, you know, last name is Sanchez and everybody thinks that you're you know, Well, Mexican. now, so for someone like me, who's got no clue, although I grew up, I went to Alderwood Elementary. So many of my classmates were from Lummi Tribe and my mom grew up on Lummi Island. And so I, I had, like, I was not like unfamiliar. I yeah. just knew that. And then there was the Marietta School District. And then, then when I was in grade school, that school closed. And a whole bunch of new students came in and they were all from the tribe. So we had yeah. a whole bunch of new friends that yeah. showed up at school, you know? And so it was like, and that's literally yeah. how we saw it. Because when that happened, I was a very young kid. And I don't know that, like, nobody I knew 
ever said anything about race issues or, or anything like that. And then, but I just remember it being more like, I mean, clearly most of us were white, you know? So I remember there was a girl that came over from, I believe Vietnam and didn't speak English. And there was a, a the teacher introduced, she's going to be in our class, but she doesn't speak English. And I remember a whole bunch of the girls in my class, and this is like first grade latching onto her. And I remember even thinking as a kid, that's a person, but it's like, that's a doll. Like, I feel like yeah. it's, this isn't necessary. And then that's, that's, it's a weird thought to have thinking it was strange and being a boy, I feel like I was going to talk to this girl or whatever. But then like six months later, that girl that the teacher introduced you to that couldn't speak English is just chatting with everybody else. And it's like, Hey, there's another person I'm at school with. And yeah. I remember when you yeah. couldn't even talk English, you couldn't even talk right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. you'd say when you're a dumb little kid. So I'm sorry. So this is a long way of saying when I met you and your last name was Sanchez, I wouldn't be like, why is his name Sanchez? He's clearly native. I would have had no idea. In fact, at that time in my life, if I had had a thought like that, I would have beat it down as being racist. You don't question anything like this. So that's why to this day, I've never known any of this story because I wouldn't have even thought to ask. And, and I had moved to L.A. a couple of times where it very well worked for me to kind of fit in with a very, you know, Latino last name and kind of look like everyone and everything. And it just it just was always that, you know, it was kind of just always that thing to me. And being in Bellingham, where like a lot of the local tribes, you know, it's a little bit different now. But like back in the 80s, if you weren't from there, it was very I also felt like it was very territorial. So I didn't really fit in there and I, I didn't speak Spanish anymore. So I didn't really fit in there. And but why so, were you speaking Spanish also? My, my father was stationed um, in Panama uh, in the military. So I spent like, uh, you know, from the time I was like three to five, I, I spent in Central America. So mm. I just grew up and I remember. So of course, in high school, I took Spanish because I remembered I, I, I remembered it really easily. So I kind of cheated. That's probably why Senorita Waldron <laughs> thought it was. Well, it's just it's you're, you're like, yeah, by the way, this isn't my heritage. Oh, yeah. yeah I remember when I was four in Panama. She's probably just looking at cross eyed like what? Yeah. But I think um, I did tell the- her, too. I think I told her about that part of it later. And she was like, <laughs> yeah, I knew something was going on, but I didn't really know what. And yeah. Good times. No one wants to tread on the wrong thing here. But um, at the same time, like what a interesting confluence. Is that the right word of events? You have this Spanish language background. You've got this strange way of getting this last name. And there are just people. I Like I said, I remember you telling me you were getting a hard time in a in a class. You were you were doing some electronic class while you were in high school at community college. And someone was giving you a hard time for being Mexican. Yeah. And then at the same time, I would be taking electronics classes at Bellingham at at the high school. And that was where was it Frank Rizzotti and um, Flavian Point? They're 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 local. They're, you know, old, old, you know, local native guys. And they teased me a lot because they didn't. They were like, oh, you're not you know, you're not really. And so it's funny because later I taught at Northwest Indian College and one of them was my, you know, one of them was my students. And I remember kind of joking around because they were like wrestlers and they were kind of. Yeah, they weren't very tall. But they were kind of tough guys. They were like I kind of remember those guys. Those were they were pretty they were pretty rough Indians growing up, and so they would tease me a lot, and they would kind of give me a hard time. But I also kind of fit in with them a little bit because there was kind of that part. But it was everywhere, you know. There was always something like someone didn't like me because they were their parents were farmers, and they told they, I was a scummy lummy. That was a thing I got called like from kindergarten to like third or fourth grade, and then you come into town. 
and then people don't really know and Mexicans kind of look at you a little bit like sometimes they'd speak to me and I would you know it did, I didn't use the language anymore so I, I couldn't really answer so they didn't really fit in there and then the native people that I did know were like you don't you don't have an accent like us you don't you're not related to us you're not from here so it was a little bit you're weird a man without a country <laughs> yeah man I, I was a man without a reservation <laughs> oh man okay well that really I mean that clears it up I when you started telling that story I thought you were going to say that they changed their name to hide from the having to go to the residential school which would have been a really cool like so the, you know intrigue in that story. There, there's a lot of people that did there's a lot there's there's still stories um you know some of the people that i work with their grandmother when the agent would show up with the rcmp she would just take all the kids and they jump in the canoe and they would they would run it was like this constant ongoing um and so there were a bunch of stories of people that kind of got adopted in by other people or sheltered out of or kind of hidden so now like the and then those are the things you would keep quiet from everyone. You don't ever want, you don't ever want anyone to know it. So now it's become a little bit empowering to talk about those things and see how they were. Um, you know, technically, uh, my, my dad was born Pierre Sam horse thief. There's actually, there's like a long, long name in our, in our language that's impossible to kind of write with, you know, English orthography. And so, um, I had just talked to, you know, one of the old men from our family and he, he told me this story and, um, he said, yeah, that's, you know, horse thief is a, that's, that's a big thing. Our, our countries, you know, our, our, our communities, the economies, the unit of analysis was the horse, right? If you, the more horses you had, the more wealthy you were. And more importantly, if you could steal someone's horse without getting killed or killing anyone, that was like a really big deal. So um, when I first started singing, I uh, had, you know, powwow group with the drum. He said, that's, this is true to your family. This is what you should call. You should be the horse thief singers. And then like a year later, he said, you know, you should probably just change your name. Everybody knows that it is associated with you now. So when I changed my name in fourth district court in the state of Montana, I had to go in and like have all this paperwork and tell this story. And I kind of thought that I would get there and I'd get a hard time. The judge was really cool. In fact, the local um, the local paper came out and did a story on it, which was kind of a you know kind of a cool thing. So, wow. you know, it was um, you know it was one of those things. It was a really big thing when you grow up and you don't really know where you're from and you're not very confident with those identity resources like your family history or your language or your religion or your spirituality. And you're always kind of looking for something. It's it's a really it's a really big thing when someone helps you with something like that and gives you one of those. It becomes like this really important part of who you are. So I changed my name, um, and then that was like that was just a, like a really big um, thing in my life. And every once in a while, someone like Stevenson would still call me Sanchez, no matter what. Like even Shane Stevenson, yeah, that didn't matter. And I remember I you know I'd be like you know hey man you know hey, what do you, what are you doing? And so now it's kind of funny now when someone will someone will say Chris Sanchez or I get mail for it or something. It's you know it's not a big deal to me you know as much as it is anymore and my most of my family's kept sanchez you know the yeah. the family that adopted them that was that was a good proper thing to do and you know that was a good thing but i just never identified with it like this is who i am i'm a sanchez i, I always right. knew that i was not and i was something else so very cool and it's it's so funny to to get your head around the idea that and uh, funny is not the word interesting to get your head around the idea that like what you just said the unit of not measurement, but the unit, unit of, of analysis of analysis was the horse. Yeah. And so if you could, if you had horses, you were wealthy. And if you could steal horses, it was honorable. Yeah. yeah. That is outsmarting th people. So that's like, that's, that, that's been that, that's been the whole thing forever. If you can outsmart someone that that's a really big thing. Even to this day, the funny thing was when, when my uncle was telling me this whole story, he says, 
oh yeah, the the person's name, you know, it's translated to White Cloud, and he was this really, really good horse thief. In fact, he was so good that when they caught and killed him in southern Alberta, you know, those, you know, uh, the Blackfeet Indians surrounded his body in stones and outlined it. And that's still, I believe, to this day, an archaeological site in southern Alberta. And this is your, this is the person yeah, you, is, you're yeah. named after. Yeah. Who was killed. But see, that's the thing. It's it's honorable, yet you still kill the person. Yeah. Like it's he, such a, yeah. it's he such did a it for more. So, yeah, it was, it was honorable for a long time until he got caught. Then it was less honorable and you know, things didn't go well. I served in the military and I spent time at Fort Knox, which is the home of the cavalry, which is all about like old school cavalry is, you know, all horse mounted everything. And yeah. so I remember being there and I remember as soon as I got there, pe people made a big deal about it. like that's that's a real proper cavalry name. So, you know, this is this is going to go really, really well for you. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> it didn't because I ended up being type two diabetic and that doesn't oh. go. <laughs> and that didn't, that didn't go, go well, too well. Huh? But yeah, the name was uh, pretty awesome. The other the other name that I've always thought was super cool. And maybe you have some insight into this, maybe you don't, I don't know. But um, every once in a while I've run into someone who has the last name of Six Killer. Hmm. Do you yeah. know that last name? Sonny Six Killer from UW was, he was, uh, uh, I know that he was quarterback there for a long time. It, same thing, yeah. Six there Killer, must be yeah. an amazing story yeah. behind that name. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I remember being young and hearing that name and... I mean, even back then, because there are people that still do have those names, not necessarily on the coast, but like in our community, there's a bunch of people that still have those very old school names. So I'd always heard about them and I was always like, ah, oh, someday I, I definitely, you know, that's, that's what I want to be or I want to do or something like that. And, but yeah, that's, you hear those and they say Wilma Mankiller was a very well-known um, tribal politician, I think from Oklahoma. So that was another one of those names that was like, you yeah, know, that it stands out, right? <laughs> Man killer is a great name for a politician. Yeah, shit, female politician, one of the first highly elected um, indigenous women as politicians. Yeah, man killer. Fantastic. <laughs> Love it. Okay, all right. I'm gonna just go, just swerve off this just a little bit because this has all been absolutely fascinating to me. But I got to get to some of the usual childhood questions I okay. asked. Uh, Do you have girlfriends when you're a little kid? Um. I remember a couple, I remember at Assumption, there were a couple of girls I would hang out with. I mean, they, I remember at some point, some silly thing, like my, my mother had taught me pig Latin. And so I said something about, so some of the girls were like, oh, you should teach us pig Latin. And I remember that was like the coolest <laughs> I had ever been up until like seven or eight year old, you know, Chris. Um, but not, not really. I, I think it was probably the, the second time we lived in Los Angeles, I did have a girlfriend, um, but it was, you know, like like a little kid. Like you go to school and yeah. you see her and you hang out. And, That's exactly and that kind of, what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, some people don't yeah. don't enter that phase of their life until later. And some people, like it's something they start in kindergarten, yeah. you know? And it's interesting to me where people, like, because some people are like, oh, cooties, you know? Yeah. I was super shy. I didn't, I didn't ever fit in anywhere and I didn't want people to point out that I didn't fit in. So I was really shy. I did not, I was not outgoing. I did not, you know, introduce myself to people. If you didn't know me, I probably, you know, and this is kind of still to this day, like I live in Spokane Valley and I have like, you know, two friends in Spokane Valley and they, they work at the restaurant I eat breakfast at two or three times a week. Right. Like I'm just not that kind of person. And so I think that extended all the way back. I mean, I think we were well into high school before I had like you know, like a, what would be, you know, like that, that classic idea of a girlfriend that you went on dates with and you had kind of an extended relationship with. It, it was definitely into high school. Right. So I was probably aware of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. That was, that would have been first girlfriend. Uh, yeah. I think, um, do you think about, I don't, I don't, I don't, not at Shuxon or what I went to Whatcom for a short time and I don't, you know, nothing there. I mean, it was yeah definitely Bellingham. Okay. What about fights? 
Um, I got in a few fights when I lived in Los Angeles because that was just that's just the way that it was. You know, you what was your? Rough. Do you remember your very first fight? I did. My very first fight, I had strep throat and I had stayed home from school, and a kid put me in a headlock from behind. A guy that was a friend of mine, and he put me in a headlock, and you know, I had strep throat. I didn't feel. I, I'd like to think he got strep throat from it, and I got even with him. But uh, I definitely did not um, win that uh, fight in particular. Um, it was not a very good experience for me. And then, you know, a couple of other fights at school in California, nothing nothing that I think you would pick like a winner or loser. Um, and then really until, you know, well, much older, I got in a, you know, a few fights. One, not two, and I, I don't know if it's a real fight, but I was with my daughter in Spokane Valley and there was like an aggressive panhandler guy and, um, I think that was a lot best. That's been like eight or nine years ago now. Oh, okay. But, I mean, we're, we've really yeah. come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've been, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, you know, little stuff here and there, um, a couple, couple serious ones. I like the scar that's in my eyebrow that you can see in a lot of pictures. That's a pipe to the face kind of fight. So you don't win very many of those. Where did that happen? Uh, same, the one, one, two, five, four Van Owen street in ah. Hollywood. I, that. I remember my mom Were came. Were those kind of fights the reason you came back to Bellingham? Um, I'm sure that I'm sure for my mother, if I were to ask her right now, what were the main reasons? She probably wouldn't tell me. But if I said it's not going to hurt my feelings now, mom, she'd probably be like, yeah, I was worried about, you know, you, you, there was a lot of fights. There was some crime that was, you know, starting to get in trouble as kids that, you know, of that age. But she came home from work one day and the um, the the security guard was like, oh, my God, could they save your son's eye? Because he thought I got hit in the eye, not in the eyebrow. And she like panicked. Right. And, you know, it ended up. So, I mean, stuff like that. But, you know, I've I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person that believes that you can work things out unless some things are like super crazy or, you know, whatnot. I can say that the time I did spend in the military, there's a lot of fighting, a lot of hand to hand, a lot of that kind of. I remember as soon as we got there at reception battalion, they tell you, you know, no fighting, no anything. That's where they like throw all your stuff around and yell at you and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember like day one, people were like, we're going to have a, we're going to have a UFC fight club down in the whatever wing. And I remember people were immediately getting, you know, people were just like, cause you know, you join the military and you're going to learn all this fighting stuff. And I was in a combat arms unit. So everyone, so it was just, so you just do a lot of that kind of stuff when you're there, but that's not the same as like you're walking down the road and someone throws a bottle at you. And the next thing you know, you're rolling on the ground trying to choke each other out or something like that. Nothing like that. Well, and then you and I ran from a number of fights, I'm assuming, back in the day. A number of carloads of people pulling over. Always yeah. a Mustang, yeah. right? Uh, Mustang and always, um, always, like a, always like a half-empty beer bottle being thrown at it skateboarders. Like that would happen, yeah. 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 But we, we definitely escaped a few of those. Um, I mean, unless Sean Day was with us and then he beat up the car. <laughs> it seemed like I remember at one point someone pointed out they were like hold your skateboard by the front truck yeah. and you now have like a six foot reach and mm-hmm. I, at one point I was just like oh yeah actually why are we running <laughs> we I never did I never did use that on a yeah. person I think but one time we had trained we could can you imagine if we had like figured out how to defend ourselves like I hit, I hit someone's it? yeah I hit someone's car one time their bumper like the in another I remember one time someone threw something and I kind of swung my board at it but I don't think I ever hit anyone with my board but were you there the night when we were with Ronnie and Shanda? 
and these guys got out of the car and were talking shit and the girls just kept like talking shit back to them. But it's like, they weren't the ones yeah. that were going to get hit. I, I feel like it was, yeah. it was valid points, ladies. Let's calm down. You're winning. The, <laughs> you're winning this argument. <laughs> Let's not have it. Be I a feel fight. like you might've, cause we were going back. It was on John Dodd street. It was on the street up to his house. And so it was me and John at least. I, th- I think but I, I feel do. like you were there. I think I, think I, re- I think I vaguely remember it. Do you remember I had a pink Tony Hawk shirt? tied on my head and the guy from the car knocked it off my head and said what the fuck is wrong with you wearing this bullshit things like i'm just like and i remember standing there being like i don't know what to say to you i had a shirt on my head yeah like (laughs) that's when it comes to like you know moral imperatives and violation of human virtue the shirt on the head's just it doesn't appear on that you know that metric anywhere (laughs) Yeah, I didn't, didn't want sweat in my eyes, so, hey, you know, kind of hard to go, go to war over back this. back in time and you could speak for me in this yeah. moment? <laughs> I was probably watching from, like, 50 meters away, like, huh, what's transpiring there? Maybe well, I should, you know, keep the escape routes open? Or? We couldn't run because we couldn't leave. Yeah. Like, it was a situation where it was, we were normally just a bunch of guys on skateboards. A bunch yeah. of guys on skateboards can choose to stand and fight or they can choose to run, but we were shepherding basically Ronnie and Shannon. So I remember once you get, if you walk up from John's to the kind of the crest of the hill, then you start to go down and then there was the trail. Yeah. And it seemed to remember there was something that happened around there. Cause I remember I was, I was right in, at the trailhead. I, the, the specific thing I'm talking about was down at the bottom of the hill. Like really, cause they pulled in right off of Meridian. For all you Bellingham people, we're talking about over <laughs> kind of close right to the by, high five Bell's Fair Calico Mall. Inn or Cath one of those. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be it. <laughs> yeah, down yeah. there, kind of around where the cold storage is. Yeah. This is where we used to hang out, and uh, yeah, I remember we two incidents. Sp- there was someone too that had um, they were showing off, and they were because everyone, if you had a car, it was like the pecking order. You were super tough if you had a car, <laughs> even if you never got out of it. Right. But I remember there was an incident one time, and then they went into someone's yard. And we're like doing donuts in someone's yard to show off. And they had put rocks in their yard to, because it had happened before. So I remember one time someone got in trouble for that, but I, I vaguely remember it. It was Randy, Randy, his first weekend (laughs) in his dad's truck. Oh, now I remember that. Now that. And the the rocks were in the yard because Randy's punishment the next day after the police came, I was staying at Randy's house that night. His punishment was he had to spend the day moving giant rocks to the front of the guy's yard okay, so no yeah, one could drive was... into his yard and do donuts anymore. And if you, if I remember correctly, John had told us that that guy had been mean to his dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was it. Maynard. Had, his dog's name was Maynard, right? right. <laughs> he had been mean to the dog, yeah. and we all decided, well, we have an enemy now. Yeah. And so... Uh, Team Dodd versus the world. Here's what you got to know about that story. We dropped John off. We might have dropped you off. I don't know. We're in, it's, we're in Randy's truck and it's his first, literally he just got his license that week. We're driving back. And as we pass the yard, he yells lawn job and just <laughs> yanks the wheel. And we just go off the road into this guy's yard and he's just gunning it. And he had no idea. It's not like he'd ever done this before. Right? So the car died, the truck died and was just <laughs> sitting in the guy's yard and we're sitting there and he's trying to start it. And it's like, and it won't start. And the guy comes out. The guy comes out and he's walking towards the truck and Randy gets a start and starts to drive off. So the guy just turns and goes to his car, followed us all the way into Bellingham. Oh, no. <laughs> and finally, Randy pulled over and uh, the guy was like, I'm not going to do anything to you. I got your license plate. We're, we're taking this up with the cops. And so we just drove back to his house going, fuck. Oh, no. Oh, no. So what's my dad going to do when he finds out? <laughs> so we're asleep. And 
Randy, get the fuck out of here. Again, like he's just like his dad comes down and is just yelling, you know? And so <sighs> we get driven over to, so instead of our Saturday that we're going to have, we get driven over to uh, that guy's house. And my mother, I call my mom and say, can you pick me up over there? So my mom comes and meets us and picks me up and takes me away. I didn't do this, right? Like I was just the passenger and I would not have done that. Yeah. I don't know why Randy did it. I think it was just a whatever. It was a, a wild hair. But I remember her later telling me like a couple of weeks later, she said, you know, you never got in any trouble for that. And I think maybe you should have. And I said, I didn't do it. And she was like, but you were there. You could have been a plan you two made or something. I was like, no, it wasn't. But I remember the guy saying, the guy telling Randy goes, I don't know why you, you all give me so much trouble. I like the same music you like. He was saying all this stuff. He's like, so I'm just going to, you're just going to fix this for me. So it can't happen again. And we're going to call it good. And as far as I know, we never mess with that guy again. <laughs> I, I thought, yeah, I remembered something about the the rocks and, and why they were there. So that, that makes more that, sense now. <laughs> I, but I didn't realize that it was like us or our group or someone from our, I thought it was like some unknown, you know, mysterious uh, macho Bellingham bullies and Camaros or something. I didn't realize it was you and Randy. Well, and it definitely connected to, I mean, we were a few feet away from that in the story I was talking about where the guy knocked the shirt off my head. It's all that same street. Yeah, and I yeah. think it was, this was just neighbors that didn't like each other. And John had told us, and then yeah. we took it on ourselves. Like, well, we now know that there's someone we're supposed to dislike. Yeah. But that, yeah, that dog was it. pretty famous. I remember that dog was all around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maynard. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, we've covered fights. When did you start? Like, when does music become like a, a key part in your life? So when, uh, when my mother in between, us kind of moving to California and back, we would stay at the trailer park with my grandmother. And there were time transitional times when my mother was either still working there or getting ready to come back, or she'd move down there to, to get things ready for us to go down. And she would send cassette tapes. She'd record off the radio. And that was, that like changed everything for me. I went from probably being okay with whatever, you know, the star blazers theme song and whatever oh, other. Wait, I love that you just pick that. So that's just your first song that you love? Oh, I, I mean, it was definitely there. I, I posted the picture. that I love that shirt. I was wearing that shirt yet because my mom got me that shirt and we can were you, just talking about can it. Can you sing it? I probably don't want to. But the funny thing was when LimeWire first came out, my brother found me like the extended rock version of that song. And it was on a bunch of my playlists until just recently. <laughs> like the full, and there's like a guitar lead and solo and everything. Evil lurking everywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah but we know we've yeah. got to care. Oh, it was on a, it was on a bunch of my. Uh, or danger lurking everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Evil was, men with evil deeds. Yeah. Like, oh, boy. Yeah. It was one. Of, so I, I went from being like um, probably listening to whatever was on the radio. Um, to, although I remember one time, like the last, right before I left Whatcom, which I, I did Whatcom was at six, like the first half of sixth grade. And I remember quiet riot was a big thing. And I remember mm -hmm. one of the girls brought a quiet riot, um, record to school. And that was like the coolest thing ever. So that, that was technically, art? I think, yeah, I think that was the first thing that I saw where I was like, Oh, there's something that's not like radio music. And then when my mom would start sending me these cassettes, there was all 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 kinds of super cool stuff on there. There were I remember and they were recording them off the radio. Yeah, just huge, you know, little ghetto blaster or whatever. Because yeah. technically we lived in a ghetto there, and she just record it. <laughs> so I'd get the commercials, but I'd get really cool music that everything took like a long time to make it to the Northwest. Like you'd hear cool music there on the radio, and then it would take a while to kind of filter out. So I remember like there was like 
David Bowie was, there was some, some Bowie that I had heard that was new to the area. Like everyone was just like, Oh, there's this thing called David Bowie. And I was like, well, I think it's a person. Yeah. And then the other like, um, Depeche Mode people are people. That was one, like when I, I remember, like, I remember when MTV first came on and I remember either right before or when we moved down there watching some of those and kind of seeing that music was this different thing. Like the video over people, people are people like completely changed the way I thought about what you could do with music. Cause it was about, you know, it was like battleships and people hating one another. And I remember I was like, Oh, here's like visuals and imagery other songs that um so what depeche is mode is a big part of your was the very one of the very the first video i ever remember seeing and the first time that i saw my my parents were pretty liberal in that they were really into progressive music and they would say you can use music to change the world and i would be like i listen to your music and i don't hear that and then i saw that video and i was like okay here's where you can start you know combining ideas and you can make statements and you can do something that's different from just you know, listening to, you know, Hey Mickey or, you know, whatever else is on yeah. the radio. So that was the the very first thing there. Um, I mean, I, you know, there, there was, there was, a, I'm trying to remember what some of the other songs from the time were, but that was the point for me where music became this thing where you could, it was constant reflection of the things around you. And, you know, you kind of reacted to it and you liked it or didn't like it. And you wanted to, I loved it when she'd send a new tape. So this I, was coming from your mom. Yeah. Yeah. And she was in California sending it up to yeah. Bellingham. Okay. So she was probably getting like K-Rock or something. Yeah. It, it was definitely cool music. I remember, um, I, I don't know how much I'm talking heads. I remember mm-hmm. like there was just stuff that you wouldn't hear if you listened to the local radio station, whatever it is in Bellingham, you would hear the you'd hear Michael Jackson and you'd hear yeah. whatever, but she would send this stuff that was always a little bit different. My mom was always into really cool music. I remember even up until, you know, even up until the nineties when she had kind of moved in with my grandmother to help take care of her, I'd find cassette tapes and they would be labeled you know, like Ozzy Osbourne's suicidal tendencies. And, and I didn't never, and they, I think it would be my brother would be my mom. So oh, she wow. was always that, like there was this part of music, like seeing that with my mom, that was always like, like a really big thing to be able to see. And she was really responsible for exposing me to new music early. She helped me buy my first record, which I believe. Yeah. You know, this is a question. The The first record I think was um, OMD. It was like a, really? just an old, like a K-Tel, like an old, old school. I think it was, I think I got it at Kmart. And I remember I was just flipping through records and she was like, oh, do you want to buy one? So it was like super innocuous. It was like top 40 new wave at the time. Yeah. But I still, and I still have that single, that 40. And it needs the spindle, like it's an old school single. Yeah. Uh, which one is a secret? I think it is. And they're, oh. both, they're both where <laughs> I can see it in my head right now. Cause I remember it's thinking, good song. I remember thinking that's kind of cool that they dress a little. And so when like a new wave was kind of a thing, my yeah. mom, my mom always wanted me to dress like really fashionable, but I was never into that. And I knew I couldn't afford it, but new wave was just a lot of black and white stuff. So I remember she would like sometimes get me like a cool sweater that was kind of like, or I remember living in California and she would sometimes get me cool clothes that we could make a little bit cool, like put the collar up or like lots of, you know, black and white or stuff like that. So my mom was really respond. I think she always saw you're the oldest sibling. You're not having fun like everyone else is. What can we do? And there's, there's no older brother or like older cousin here. That's going to pass you the tapes. Like your mom had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's oftentimes a story I hear. Right. But, and then when we, when we moved back, 
um, we stayed with my grandma for a little bit, but then we moved in with my dad and my stepmother. And my stepmother's family were all from uh, Tulalip and Lummi, and they would stay with us, especially in the summers, because we'd all pick berries together. And they had a lot of really cool Motley Crew. That's the first time I heard Motley Crew. Um, probably the first time I heard Iron Maiden. Like there was some legit, not radio. I wouldn't say metal, metal, but back then it was like Shout of the Devil was like the coolest thing I'd ever heard. And I remember right. thinking. This is there, you know, there's something here about, you know, that's not there's some way to kind of take control over that narrative, that story you tell in your head. That's not what everyone else is doing. And I remember that they were a really big influence on me. My my first probably right before I met you the summer, right before I met you, I was hanging out with them all the time. And so, yeah, there's a there's something there's there's a little bit of a thread, even in the new wave stuff you're talking about. You're talking about the black clothes. You talk about the new wave look and you talked about really sparking to quiet riot even though we wouldn't think of that as being evil but you've got that uh, that cover you're talking about yeah. is a guy in a maroon straight jacket with a big yeah. metal mask on yeah. and at the time it was kind of like that was like some bold imagery yeah um and i remember and then you that loved, girl, i never had a girlfriend but that girl that had that record she's always been iconic in my mind as like oh it's not just music but here is like a middle school girl that's talking about there's this really cool music. And I don't even remember who it is. I never knew her name, but I remember everyone talking about it and it was her record. And that became like an iconic part of my life. Like I will always remember of the 20 things before the time, you know, I was in high school that made a big impression on my life. That was one of the really positive ones. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, jumping over to the, you also mentioned Motley Crue. Yeah. And like connecting to it. All of these things have a darkness. Yeah. Like the imagery. And a lot of the people that end up in the the kind of music scene that we've been involved in are drawn to that. Yeah. It's a reason why everyone, when you hear the Misfits, if you're a certain type of person, you go, of course. Yeah. Of course. Like those lyrics are not good. They're yeah. not. They're not like something that is soothing to the soul. But yeah. like they they really. Uh, what's the expression now? Spark joy. I remember the first time I heard the Misfits and just went, <gasps> Yeah. Oh my God. So what do you think it is? Like, what do you think it is about the kind of life that you lived up to that point where you were you were finding inspiration and excitement in those dark images that went along with this music? Sure. So I, I remember um, when when Reagan won the election and I was young enough to know that that probably was not good for for myself and my family, my community. Um, we, you know, I, I grew up super poor and I, I always kept it relatively hidden and tried to. But, you know. I was probably the last of us to have a car. I was probably the last of us to have a lot of those things. You know, it's kind of why I spoil my daughter a little bit. I don't ever want her to ever worry about where am I going to sleep? Where am I going to live? Where's my food going to come from? So there was that part of me that I always had to kind of get that through other people. So with my mom and some of the radio music, that was really the first time. And then all of my cousins from, you know, all my native cousins, especially from Lummi, we would go out on the weekend and all get in the back of a pickup and they would just crank ACDC, mm -hmm. um, except all of those kind of, and we would just drive across because Portage Island at low tide, you can drive across. And so we'd go over and we'd be listening to music and doing all sorts of, you know, crazy, whatever. And then it was always, you know, I was always the guy that was worried, Hey, what if the tide comes back in? And I, I don't know how many times we'd drive back as the tide was coming back in because <laughs> that land bridge goes away. Right. So like that was really to go and there, here were people 
that for the most part in Bellingham, in Ferndale, in Custer, in those areas, people didn't really like the native people at that point. And here was this thing that we was very empowering and it was this kind of music and it was against the grain and it was something very different. And at the same time I was getting, you know, especially I remember from the radio before we moved back the last time from California, I had heard suicidal tendencies. They were, they're were, they were really big in Los Angeles. I remember oh, hearing so it. Oh, so they were playing on the radio down there. Cause I, I institutionalized, yeah. I saw your mommy, like that was- There I, was a music video. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I remember at the time it was, you know, it's kind of, you know, you had to really be out there. To, but I remember hearing it on the radio and thinking, yeah, this kind of a, there's a little bit of a, there's something here. And then- you know, every once in a while I'd hear something, but I think the first time where something like that really got a hold, Sex Pistols, that was the first summer that we really skated. I remember we listened to that a lot. That so was, are you saying, I need to I need to know this, are you saying that you heard a Suicidal Tendencies song on the radio and thought, hey, there's something there, but what you got into first was Sex Pistols? I think because I didn't know how to get to, right. I didn't have, you know, I didn't, I didn't know where to buy, because, you know, cause <clears throat> at the, hey, when you're... Living in LA and you're 13 or 14 and you don't have money and it's super poor and there's no record stores. You don't know sure. where you only get what's on the radio. But I remember Nevermind the Bullocks was one of the first records that was around, one of the first tapes. And so it was, so you could listen to it as many times as you mm -hmm. wanted. So that, um, well, the reason fits. I bring it up, the reason I bring that up is because my trajectory is I heard a sex whistle song on the radio and went, What is this? This is amazing. And then Sean played. Sean Day played Suicidal Tendencies, that whole album. We walked to yeah. 7-Eleven and listened to it over and over. And then I was like, I have to have this. Yeah. So I went from hearing Sex Pistols and getting suicidal. You went from hearing suicidal and getting Sex Pistols. It's the right, it's like right, the yeah. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, then and then yes, and then it's yeah. a short walk from that first one to the next thing. Then you're just yeah. you're looking, you're open and you're looking for anything that's punk rock or yeah. Against Grant. So you went right, you got Misfits right away? Um, uh, Sex Pistols, Misfits. I'm trying to remember the really, really, really early. So like Legacy of Brutality? Was that the first one you were um, able to get a hold of? I, I think Walk Among Us, which wasn't that, wasn't that like, like a compilation or something like it. The legacy was. Walk oh, Among legacy. Us okay. was, was in and out of print. It was, it, I felt okay. like it was so hard for us to get a hold the of. The very first Misfits song I remember was 20 Eyes. Oh, well, that's, yeah, no, yeah. that's Walk Among Us. Yeah. So um, from there, because um, I remember, uh, see, what were some of the, oh, I'm trying to go way back in, in what those songs were. Um, I, I know that the big, the, the kind of the watershed where the, where the dam broke was one of those times going to Brett's, um, going to Bloedel, and we'd spent like all day skating around in circles, you know, mm -hmm. like morons, not realizing that you could build ramps and do some other, but it was yeah. like, cool, you know, the ventures and JFA. And I remember I said something about her and Brett said, well, I've got, a, have got a bunch of music and Brett had the first actual record collection I had seen. He yep. had like a hundred records and everyone was more amazing than the one that you had heard before that. Yeah. So we would just go and he would flip through. And that was the first time I sat in front of a collection where literally there were a hundred things that I wanted. I remember the first time I heard the descendants was there. Um, TSOL. Um, there was one even to this day and I sent him a message not too long ago. It was a uh, female fronted and she played a piano and it was a little bit goth, but a little bit punk. And we could never figure out what it was. And I remember I heard it like once or twice. Well, I know the thing he always pulled out and talked about that he was always excited about was Tales of Terror. But that's not it. That wasn't female fronted, right? I, I, I don't remember. And the guy died from that band before they had a chance to get big, I believe. 
Oh, interesting. I mean, though, all of the, I mean, that's just it right there. You can see there's that bifurcation point in a system when it reaches a point where nothing will ever be the same. And there's all these jumps forward. That's where you would go and you would just look at everything, everything that he had. And it was overwhelming, and overwhelming. He, and he knew, I mean, he could talk about each one a little bit, how this band came from this one or where it would go. So it went from just riding around in circles and carving, which is, you know, the least, even less cool than tic-tacking, where you would go from just carving. I disagree, sir. <laughs> I say carving is awesome. You go from just carving incessantly to the point you want to go crazy to going to his house and he would have some new thing and he would play it. And it was just like the most, it was like every single one was just jumping off point to go somewhere new and see something different. Um, so yeah, that was, that was like, that was the point. And it was all, it, it wasn't necessarily dark, but it was definitely, there was a theme of resistance and everything, whether mm -hmm. dark away from the light, whether it was, you know, be, you know, be mad about the way things, where you came from. For me, that whole thing and, you know, punk, metal, hardcore, all of that was me kind of taking over, fixing all of those things that I had to go through. I, I grew up with a lot of violence in the home. I grew up with a lot of childhood trauma. You know, I, I worked through it over time. But, you know, housing volatility and not knowing, you know, not having enough food and knowing that you're poor, like those yeah. things, that was, you know, that's what that was to me. All of that music was um, Black Flag really early on. I mean, there were certain, I remember certain albums with certain people and one, I remember Boris had a bunch of Black Flag albums and I remember going and just listening to them and thinking, here's someone that's saying something about something. And it's, it's not even veiled in like mysterious lyrics. Here's just... By yeah. the way, you just dropped the name, Boris, yeah. Boris Schleinkofer. Yeah. Actually, if you go to the bottom of the page for this podcast on Nobody's Nose, yeah. you'll see an ad for his book. I always yeah. uh, uh, support Boris's writing. He's someone who was a big part of our lives. I don't know if he'll yeah. make it further into this story today, but you just dropped the name quickly. People are like, Boris, who's he talking about? Yeah. Yeah. He, he lived relatively close to us when we lived over by Columbia Elementary. So he was one of, he was the first, you know, you think about it in, in terms of who you, whose house you could walk to or visit. And he was the closest to us. So I remember going there and he had a lot of different music. Yeah. Butthole Surfers was the first. Oh yeah. I learned about yeah. Butthole Surfers because yeah. of Boris. Yeah. Um, and then um, I remember, and, and then a bunch of them, all of the skate rock stuff from aggression, because I remember mm, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, here's being mad about stuff. and From aggression skates being our skateboard shop yeah. and in the second year we started bringing in music yeah so, so and listening yep. but we listened to the skate rock compilations the yeah. whole time yeah so. and i remember the first cd uh i believe it was somebody got chromax age of coral and i remember we were all huddled around it because we wanted to hear the difference because remember it was like <laughs> oh 44 one 16-bit stereo sounds so much better than vinyl and i remember we just had this long ongoing debate and i remember it didn't have the same low-end presence but there was a little bit of clear, like that was the, like there were certain things along the way. And that was, you know, that was one of them at being at aggression and listening to my first CD and thinking, thinking, oh, maybe there is something to, you know, CDs I'm over records. Almost <laughs> certain that would be Bill Baker bringing in some kind of CD probably, box probably, thing. I mean, you're like, yeah. it's a bill thing. He'd be an yeah. early adopter on any kind oh, of yeah, technology yeah, and he'd yeah. have it for a week yeah. or two weeks. And yeah. And then we'd, yeah. So he had that, yeah, he had a CD boombox thing that we'd take on trips in the, yeah. in that blue truck of his. <laughs> he'd have the Volkswagen, the Volkswagen, yeah. the blue Volkswagen the truck. The pup or whatever it was called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that was the first like um and then with Jason uh Jason Lambert um it was that was the first place I ever sat in I, we sat in his basement and listened that that was the first place I ever heard Youth of Today. Um He probably played Bad Religion for you. Uh prob- probably Bad Religion. I also remember hearing the for the first time hearing Scott cuz we were doing like oh. we were in a band and we were doing something and I remember trying to figure I'm sure it was Operation Ivy oh, trying to figure out the upstrokes cuz I didn't get them and he was like, you know, no and he was kind of showing me how but that was like a really that was a really key thing. That was a that was a kind of a music milestone sitting and playing music because I had but a guitar. you're talking about 1989 now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that yeah. that was that was a little bit further later, but kind of jumping to all of those key points. And I remember I had just bought um, a, like I just bought a bass and it was like a no name, not very cool bass. But we would go and we would hang out and he, you know, and he had that like super cool Les Paul custom, that Black Beauty. <laughs> it was like this, you know, it was like a, a man's tool compared to my like a little toy play school bass or something. Yeah. But yeah. I remember we play and then he'd play something. He could like listen to it and play it. And I it was like, you know. I felt like I was like holding a stick and I was like hitting another stick like a caveman trying to figure out. But that was like a really big, you know, that was like one of those big points as well. And Jason Lambert was a skateboarder dude that we knew. He played guitar in first step and he was a key part of all of our lives. Yeah. Um, And then once again, he kind of like his trajectory changed a little bit. He went on his Mormon mission after high school and, and, I, I see pictures or I mean, I'm sure they're a lot older now, but I've, I've seen pictures on Facebook over the years of his kids and all the awesome stuff he's done with them. Like I, we haven't been in touch as much, not for any particular reason, but I can tell that things have gone pretty awesome. Yeah. But like, uh, it's a big family guy. Lots of pig takes his, takes his family to the skate park. And I like oh, to watch yeah. cause we, we would talk a lot about uh, a lot on Facebook about snowboarding. Cause there was a long period where that was like my life as I, I was just snowboarding everywhere. So he'd get a hold of me and he wanted to know, you know, how's the snow there or, you know, whatnot. But it was always cool to see him and his family go and have like all the, the little Lamberts all out and wearing their helmets and One stuff. One of the greatest pictures I've ever seen was all him and all of the kids made nunchucks. <laughs> and so it was all of his kids with homemade nunchucks. I'm like, well, that's parenting. Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. That's, and they were like, you could tell like. I mean, they get hit. Someone's gonna cry. Someone's gonna yeah. get hit with one of these and cry. That's a good time. And I can see the fatherly wisdom as one of them is crying and pointing at the other, and him just being like, "Y'all made them." <laughs> I don't know what you thought there. <laughs> They're <Nunchucks>, weapons, <laughs> wooden swords, stilts. These are the good. Yeah. These are the good toys of the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of the old days. Yeah, for sure. Something you for can sure. fall off of. <laughs> Or hurt yourself with. Yeah. You really need those things. And when I got to the point where I could skate and get, you know, kind of have a larger group of friends, there was a bunch of them that lived right there. So, you know, Cody and Chad. Yeah. Um, it was a cool Jason, neighborhood. Right. So they were all kind of together. So I would, I started spending a lot of time over there because we'd go to skate Chad Mork's ramp or, you know, just, you know, whatever happened. Chad to Mork had a great half pipe in his backyard that a lot of us, I broke my arm there. Um, a lot of us spent a lot <laughs> of time learning good. a lot of good stuff. Yeah. It was the dumbest thing. I just fell backwards off my board and rolled on it weird. Not, <laughs> not, not even, I didn't even break it in a good way. Tell everybody it was a McTwist. <laughs> No, it was literally the <laughs> dumbest thing. It was, it was, well, it, okay. It was an outdoor ramp made of wood uncovered in Bellingham, which means yeah. it took almost no time for it to get soft and squishy. And yeah. my wheel hit kind of a soft, squishy part. And so whenever, the roll wasn't normal, yeah, yeah. fell off. That's and it. whenever we could find those big, like al- aluminum street signs that were like at construction, <laughs> we'd take them and we'd use those to patch up holes in the ramp. <laughs> 
So if the Bellingham Police Department is listening to this, there's probably, <laughs> that's where a few of them went. <laughs> we committed no crimes. <laughs> we found them and thought, hey, these are skateboard patches. <laughs> I do remember the thing about that one. So there was a few, right? the, high, the high street ramp was one we'd go to quite a bit. Yeah, and, and that was. Steve, Steve Barry's backyard had, had a little ramp. A little but, bit later, he built one, yeah, right? A little mini ramp. It was masonite. It was really nice and smooth. Was but nice. Chad's was really wide. So you could actually do most of them they were only like eight feet wide. So there's not a lot you could do, but Chad's was really wide. Like you could do some, you know, you could do a little bit more than you could. It was constantly being re, it was constantly being re-engineered. Yeah. It was like, we're going to put, <laughs> we're going to we're. They built it too high the first time. So I think they cut it down by a yeah. foot, but I, I would remember like yeah. Jason and Cody would get like super, super spun up on this weekend. We're rebuilding the ramp. And yeah. it's like, what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> how, do we throw, how do we throw in on this? And then there was one that was like half a block up from aggression. Like it was in the middle. Of, I never knew who lived there, but oh, remember there Eric. was that, his name was Eric. Okay. He's a younger kid. His dad sold Betamax tapes in the mail. Oh, right. He was, he was younger than us. Yeah. Right? He, he was, was younger okay. Than us. But I remember going there and it was kind of like a little hidden secret because nobody totally. really knew it was there. Well, but it, it was, was across the street to... from that park we skated in all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I found some sweet pictures from that park where everybody is wearing their finest uh, 80s fashion. That's super awesome. <laughs> I don't think I'm in any of the pictures, which I'm okay with. But <laughs> Well, you took them then. I think I did. Yeah. yeah I think so. <laughs> um, I think I think that's the kid in the store in the pictures of my of of, of our skateboard shop that I when I, I put the story about the skateboard shop up on nobody's nose. So I think that's Eric in those pictures. Hmm. Maybe not, but I, I thought someone someone pointed him out. Sometimes people get out of sight, out of mind. I don't remember them at all, but I kind of remember the name and I just. Like there's other people in the story where you're like, oh, you remember so-and-so? And I'm like, I have, it's like I've got this Swiss cheese kind of hole in the memory where I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea who you're talking about. So sometimes that happens. But I do remember the park and I remember that he was not kind of the exact same age. But I remember the big thing there because it was always about the engineering, right? Mm -hmm. That was the first place where they put carpets on the back so that it wasn't as loud. Oh, yeah. Because, because yeah, because the dad said, well, we're trying to quiet it down for the neighbor. So they, we, they had just hung carpet and it did it did make a difference. And I thought, oh, science to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right now, my wife hears this and she's thinking, please don't let him build a half pipe. <laughs> please don't let him build a building for a half pipe at our house. <laughs> Do that. I absolutely <laughs> love that idea. It's probably going to happen. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. I want to, I want to try to keep it like okay. we've jumped ahead a bunch and that's good. Cause it's yeah. happened organically and it's fine. Um, we did, uh, we know what your first board was. It was a Gonzalez. We know about yeah. fighting. Yeah. Unfortunately you had a little bit of that in your life. Uh, there was a little got a bit pretty of, cool scar left from it. You got a pipe scar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Man, so two of my oldest childhood friends were injured by metal instruments in Southern California. A kid tried to cut Bill's head off with a shovel and someone tried to take your eye out with a pipe. Yeah. It's a scary space. I, I don't even remember. I don't even remember the, the event either. I just remember one minute I, and his name was Bobby. I remember mm. him because he was kind of one of my friends. Like you live in a little tenement yeah. building. Everybody there's friends. And out of nowhere, I remember I just saw this flash of light. And then I remember the security guard like picking me up because apparently it had knocked me out and I didn't know that. So, yeah, that Southern California metal injuries. <laughs> what was your first punk rock record? Uh, the very first, the very first punk rock record that now I you bought. bought. Uh, I'm sure it was from Cellophane Square. 
Um, so the very first one that I bought brand new in the sealed cellophane was Dead Kennedy's Bedtime for Democracy. Okay. And that we, so we talked about that not long, not too long ago. And I went back through my collection and I don't have that record. There's like oh. five records, six records I can't find. And I know who, who I traded most of them to, but that person would not have wanted the Dead Kennedy's Bedtime for Democracy. But Total Trash Records in Spokane has it, the original first press um, Bedtime for Democracy that I'll probably buy. It's a little bit expensive. It's not in great shape. So I have the disc, but I don't. Ha- it had the really cool artwork on it that was like everything wrong with America at the time. It was like the Statue of Liberty yeah. and all. So it's that a live was- record, right? Uh, no, it, um, it's not. No, that one is. Um, it, it's. Uh, I can't. What, uh, what am I thinking of then? Must have been the one that came after. I, I know that it was. Um, it was recorded really, give really. Give me convenience to give me. Death. Right there, you go. Okay, yeah. that's one thing. And, and I know the one when I'm when I was listening to it. It was recorded really differently. Everything was really. They were never really heavy or hard or yeah. crunchy. But I remember the first time I listened to that at cellophane in the headphones, because remember, that was where you would go. Like listening station. How do you put a playlist together? You go to the listening station and hope that, you know, there's not 10 people behind you. But I remember listening to it and the way that it was produced to me was really different from anything else at the time. So I bought it um, on the spot. That was the first one I bought brand new. Um, there, I'm sure there are things I had bought before that. But the first time I ponied up like twelve ninety five or whatever for a brand new record. It was the the last um, Dead Kennedys album, nineteen eighty six. I'm thinking it was six ninety nine. Oh yeah, it could have been. <laughs> I, I guess it was the the twelve ninety nine was when the CDs came out because remember yep. they were a little bit more expensive. Oh but, yeah, there yeah. was a lawsuit over that, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Artificially propping up the cost of price gouging. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Okay, so that started your collection. Yeah, and I remember. So one of the things I remember early on was coming over to your house and seeing your records. And you were the first person that, so we were all into Minor Threat. We thought Minor yeah. Threat was great. I remember hearing Minor Threat on a cassette tape over at John Dodd's. It was just something someone had recorded on there. And then my first record that was like, not like the Muppets or something I had when I was a little kid. Like my first like actual, like <laughs> yeah. I'm choosing Sesame to buy Street a record <laughs> was the, was the um, Minor Threat 7 Inch, the last one. The, yeah. uh, what, what is it called? Why can't I think of it? Uh, salad days, salad days, yeah. the salad day seven inch. And then shortly after that, I got the Swiss seven inch in the mail from blacklist mail order. <laughs> like I started like actually like getting weird things, you know, in yeah. the mail and cell thing would have stuff every once in a while. I remember I got Deg nasty, but it was, uh, it was, we got it. Denko's didn't know anything about Deg nasty. Still love that record. It was a good, yeah. it was a good buy. There was something else I grabbed there once because it had a Washington DC, uh, address. And I thought, well, this is going to be good. No. Yeah. It was just Nation's some like capital. It was just some rock band. It wasn't connected to Discord yeah. in any way. I just thought it was yeah. like the artwork looked like vaguely like, hey, yeah. this could be another thing, but but no. That 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 one was it. Can I say that the one Dag Nasty, the first like yeah. the, the good one? Still, I listen to it all the time. It's well, still one. And then everything after that, that I because every time I'd always buy it, and then yeah. every time I was always like. Oh, maybe it'll go back to the way that it was, but it was always a little bit of a letdown, but I do, I do still have a bunch of those, but that I feel that way for everything after we got at Denko's and my hmm. argument, Aram and I have talked about this a lot in the last couple months. Like, can I say is clearly the superior, <laughs> the superior Dag Nasty record yeah. and saying that and knowing that it's true and agreeing with it. I still like, we got at Denko's more huh. and it's, it's just, t- t- I will not tell you it's a better record. I'm just yeah. going to tell you it's my favorite of the Dag Nasty records, unless I have to compare those two. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It doesn't make sense. They're just kind of both perfect. That was, I mean, that was um, the first, 
I think that was the first time when, because for a long time, there was like punk was anything that was like loud and screamy. Yeah. And then kind of straight edge was anything that's kind of like open notes and loud and screamy, but for a cause. And then can I say to me was one of those ones where I heard it and I, I was, cause I was, you know, I'm not an early adapter, not an early adopter. I find something I like and I like, I listen to still listen to suicidal tendencies yeah. all the time. Cause it was like, you know, one of those staples, but then I heard, um, that Dag Nasty album and, you know, a little bit of singing, a little bit of guitar harmonies, things that, you know, so that was one of those points too, where I heard that and I was like, oh, there's, you know, there's something about it that's maybe not terrible. And then I found out it was Brian Baker and I was like, oh, well that, that's why it's not because it's, you know, better or progressive or it's more melodic. It's gotta be just, it's the Brian Baker effect. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the, over at your house, up in that room that you shared with your brother, I've got that right. Right. You shared yeah. a room with Josh. Oh, yes. uh, I remember looking at your records and I remember you got the Fugazi 12 inch. Right. Yeah. The, the, the red one. Yes. The red cover. Yeah. No, yeah. the 12, like it was yeah. called Fugazi and yeah. it had six songs on it. Right. Yeah. And I remember us really trying to get our head around suggestion, it. right? That was the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all the songs. And here's the thing. When I listen to that stuff yeah. now and shortly after, I yeah. still think it's amazing. But when it first came out upon first listen with what you and I were into, we were into, uh, I was not into dead Kennedys, but I, you know, yeah. I, we were into, we were listening to black flag and we were listening to minor threat, yeah. sex pistols and yeah. uh, uh suicidal, right? Yeah. These were kind of like the main staple yeah. bands and then scare rock bands like the, the faction. Yeah. 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 And so put on Fugazi and that change that they'd done. It's like yeah. that. Most of you listening to this know what Fugazi sounds like. Imagine that there was a time <laughs> before anyone had heard fugazi that's yeah, pre-fugazi and after fugazi i'm not talking about repeater or when you got into fugazi in the early 90s i'm yeah. talking about there had never been fugazi yeah and nobody even had the embrace record or the right to spring yeah. record yeah no brett had right to spring yeah yeah but, yeah, <laughs> but did yeah. but we none of us had really heard it so um you're playing it and we're just like i don't what is this jazz? Like we were just really, yeah. really is, is he, confused is he by it. Is it he was singing? <laughs> and here's the thing. Did you have that same experience with me or was that, or was it you trying to tell me it was good? I've, I've never been able to remember exactly how that went down. So I, I remember when I, I got that record, I've, that was a cellophane find. And mm -hmm. I remember, um, yeah, I remember looking at it and seeing the label and the, the cover's pretty crazy. So I flipped it around yeah. and it was Discord, right? Yeah. And so I remember thinking, oh, I like other stuff off Discord. And then um, and then someone had said, oh, that's, you know, the Minor Threat singer is one of the singers. And I thought, oh, well, this is going to be like super fast and super loud and super. And then I got home and I thought, is that the right speed? <laughs> What's going on? It, okay. it was also the first time that I heard strategic use of feedback that wasn't just this open screaming feedback there was like a lot of these low notes that were just like ever present in the song so for me that was the first time that i heard a band i would still say they're heavy and it's, and then and then later seeing them live realizing oh, that, oh with rickenbacker basses and guitars with not very much distortion and doing this very different it was it was one of the heaviest shows i've ever seen but listening to the radio i started thinking oh there's there's different stuff happening here that makes the music heavy in a little bit of a different way. I don't really like the singing whiny stuff, but I really like the way that it's all kind of glued together. And I'd like to know what the recording chain was for finalizing and see what they used, what compressor kind of glued it together or mastering or whatnot, because it was very, 
it was 10 things that I wouldn't have ordinarily liked. And then you put it together and it just became, I just still to this day, if I see any Fugazi vinyl, I'll still try and buy it. Even well, though. it's, it's fantastic. But so I wasn't alone. It really came yeah. at us from the side. It oh, threw yeah. us for a yeah. loop. We, I just yeah. remember sitting in your room, just going, what? And the problem was it wasn't like, I don't like this. Turn it off. Yeah. It was like, I need to understand what's happening. I, I need I to remember, understand what's yeah. happening now. I remember reading, I read the, so I read, I try and read the lyrics on everything. That's you how I told know. me suggestion was amazing. I think you told me the lyrics were awesome. So I remember listening and I'm not the kind of person, like my brothers will listen to music and they'll remember all the lyrics and they'll kind of contemplate it. I would always just assume that straight edge punk I was listening to was anti-hegemonic government stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I would assume that straight edge was like anti-drinking, anti-drug, anti-one night stand stuff, which is what it always was to me and always will be. And so when I got that record, I remember hearing it and I was listening to the lyrics and I was like, what is this crazy poetic weird turn of just he's not directly talking about so i remember getting out the lyric sheet and i remember studying that was the first lyric sheet that i probably ever i mean you usually look at it and see who they thank or where mm -hmm. it was recorded and so we all know who don fury is but i remember looking at that sheet and realizing that was like that was like poetry and punk rock the and I always had ideas about what those songs were about or what was being said. And I remember that song in, in particular, the, to me, to me, I thought I saw a very clear, you know, idea in it and whether or not other people did. But that was the first time again that I saw, you don't have to be like the loudest, fastest, screamiest, most crunchiest, you know, whatever, that here was this whole different thing. But to me, I would read it and there were these very introspective, but also to me, it was, I think the first time I heard somebody on music um, talking about kind of power differentials and what happens when you know certain voices aren't parts of conversations like that's that's really what it was to me and so yeah that that was i mean i just remember reading that lyric sheet and flipping it over and reading the other side and trying to figure out how how can this person be making these kinds of statements without coming out and saying this is what's bad or if you do this to this person this is right. bad for them or yeah so there yeah that was just and obviously yeah. i have no concept of that sort of <laughs> like it for me at the time i'm just like what uh, i i totally imagined that you were reading the lyrics and getting something deeper out of it yeah. that i would have gotten out of it right yeah. give me a few years to get there <laughs> like i yeah. but you did bring up something now that we have to move on to okay. and that is straight edge okay Yep. You're straight edge. Yep. yep. How old are you? Um, I'm for, I'll be 49 here in a few months. So I'm 48 and a so half. So I'm just a little somewhere. bit older than you because I just turned 49. You just turned, yeah, I don't think I'm 49 yet. We're both straight edge. Yeah. For a long time. For a yeah. long time. For the same amount of time. Like a third of a century. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, so here's the thing though. Like, I love that there's just certain people that it was just a, it was just a given, like, yeah. this is just who you're going to be. Um, so the way I remember it, Dave Longstreth, no, Egg, no, 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 no. Egghead. I've told this story before. <laughs> I've told this story before. The first time I heard straight edge used, uh, was I think in another state of mind. And I was like, what, what's this? And like, we didn't have any like legit straight edge records yeah. yet. Right. Like minor threat. Like you'd heard the song straight edge, but like, no, like, New York hardcore straight edge yeah. or Boston. None of that stuff had made it to us. Yeah. So I remember um, 
hearing someone in a, it was near Herfie's. It was like a weekend night. I think Mindy Burnett was there. I think yeah. someone else was there. And oh, there was so, someone was, it was sitting down and they were talking to their friend and he was like, I think I'm going to have to go straight edge for a week. And I remember yeah. in my head thinking, go straight edge for a week. Is that how that works? That Is was like the first thing? person that said it. And then as we were yeah. going, as we're getting ready to open up the skateboard shop. So I was, I was drinking at the time. We were all drinking. I remember you and I trying to set out on a few drinking adventures. Like yep. not very many, but there were a few. Yeah. Um, all was involved <laughs> woods and bonfires. <laughs> woods and bonfires. Or I remember being at your yeah. house one time when we were trying to make plans to go meet somebody. And you had... You had out your window on the roof, you had something stashed out there, like bottles oh, or nice. something. I, I it was, remember that. <laughs> so, but, but that, that we totally failed. We didn't, we, the person who was supposed to call us didn't call us. It was like Suzanne or something. Like it was some plan it was trying to make. Excellent. So Excellent. Uh, there's another name for the past from that whole little crew. So um, Randy and I spent a drunk summer. Like that's the most drinking I ever did. Planning the skateboard shop and then getting drunk at night. And as we were getting closer to it, I was like, I got to do this straight edge thing. I have to. And so uh, basically, I just decided I was going to be straight edge when we opened the store. So I have the date, the date, my straight edge date that I claimed I'm straight edge is the August 15th, 1987. Then mm -hmm. right after that, like right after that, I saw a long stress somewhere yeah. and I told him I was straight edge and he was like, you're straight edge, dude, that's so rad. I'm going to be straight edge. And then. Right after that, it was you, Brett, and Jason. Yeah. And it was like, wait, there's like, there's some straight edge people. It's like, and it was, this was, this was like within weeks. I feel like, like something rose up to meet us, right? Yeah. Like I did not talk anyone into being straight edge. I didn't influence anybody to be straight edge. Like yeah. Longstreth was already thinking about straight edge. You guys already knew about all the same music and all the same anything. So I, I'm not saying I'm the pioneer. I'm just saying like in my, in my head, I didn't know any straight edge people. The only person I'd ever heard say anything was, I'm going to go straight edge next weekend. Someone I didn't know. Yeah. And then boom, now there's five of us. First off, Herfies, <laughs> if you love Hereford cows, if you want to open like a drive-in and you love a particular breed of cow, the Hereford, and you're going to, you got to call it Herfies, you know? It's, <laughs> there are still Herfies. Oh, I didn't know that. There's one near here. Awesome. Down on the way down to Edmonds is a Herfies. Nice. That's excellent. Okay. That's excellent. So, yeah. So for me, um, you know, I, I remember, so I had, I, I grew up. With a lot of addiction, you know, native people have been through a, a shit ton of, of collective um, trauma, cultural trauma. Um, I, I later on went to really study this in depth and not just in indigenous communities in North America, but, but all around the world, especially where there's this system, systemic removal of children to where, I mean, we know now that childhood trauma and disconnection neglect are greater indicators of addiction than, than anything else. Um, your brain starts to rewire itself differently. You start to re you rewire yourself to protect yourself instead of making connections to other people. And I just always remember, I mean, I remember talking to my mother and asking her about, you know, why? And she would just say, you know, there's, you know, there's some people just struggle with addiction and you get in it and you can't get out of it. Um, and then it hit really close home with a couple of my relatives one of my relatives that shot his you know his wife and his daughter point blank and then killed himself and that that was like my second dad growing up and i knew that something something had to be like that was inconceivable to me that that would happen and then a few years later 
when I started to learn about my dad's family, they, they all told me like, they're, they're essentially all of your dad's brothers are gone. They died brutal, violent deaths. They're beat to death. Um, they drowned because they were drinking They you know, crazy stuff. And then one of my even closer relatives went to treatment. So technically for me, I believe it was maybe two months after you is when I said, I'm, I'm straight edge. Cause I remember, I remember like two or three specific things about it. I remember Star Trek The Next Generation had just started, like that, because I'm a big science fiction guy. I remember that was really big. I remember you talking about Star Trek The Next Generation <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Still to this day, I still, I watch BBC America while I'm working. It's like the, it's like the timekeeper in the background, and it's always some crazy, you know, 30-year-old, um, you know, science fiction. But the other thing, um, one, one of my close relatives had just went to treatment, and I remember... So I had been sober for a few months before I was, you know, straight edge because I remember thinking I'll never be able to be, um, I'll never be able to help or be a role model if I'm still drinking. So, um, I, I just quit and, um, I didn't really tell anyone cause you know, I don't like people, you know, whatever. Um, and then on top of that, there's the whole crazy, oh, you're too good to drink with this thing. I just knew that I could never be a role model to somebody that was struggling with addiction if I was still drinking, whether I was drinking or not. And years later, um, a, a woman from Western Washington University that, that I was dating, she, she put it very eloquently one day. Um, she was non-indigenous. She did not have issues with addiction, but she didn't drink. And I asked her why. And she said, because I feel like I'm a better source of support to the people around me, whether or not they're struggling or not. So I had quit. You know, I, I had a, a really bad incident where I woke up after one of those bonfire parties in the middle of nowhere. And I remember I woke up and I had, I had vomited while, while I was asleep. You know, um, for lack of a better, and I don't think I've ever really told anyone this, but I know that one of my dad's brothers, that's how he died. Oh. And so it was right after that, that, um, a close relative went to treatment and I just said, you know, I'm done. And that was, that was the, the spring of that year. It was probably maybe April or May. Cause we had just started hanging out and doing overnight kind of stuff. So I did like three or four months where I wasn't drinking at all because I just, you know, I knew it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't going to go anywhere good. I could never kind of help in the ways that I wanted to. And then, you know, so I think when people, when people started like really listening to a lot of straight edge and it became like a thing, I thought for people, they were thinking that like I was just doing it and that was why I quit drinking. But I had quit a little bit before that kind of for other reasons. So here's this kind of part of music that's this source of support and doing that same kind of thing with just really simple rules, right? For us back in 86, 87, 88, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't do one, don't have one night stands. That's how you, you treat people good. You won't, you know, you won't kill anyone drinking yep. and driving. You won't get drunk and hurt anyone. Yep. You won't, you know, cause, you know, you won't, you know, force yourself on, you know, all, all of those. You'll the, be respectful to are, these women around you. Those are just the very basic common truth, you know, and I grew up with my mother being, my mother and my grandmother being the primary providers and the strongest people I had ever seen. So for me, that was always just kind of an implicit part of all of it. And so when it kind of took off and was this thing and bands and all of that, it was pretty easy for me to, you know, cause I, you know, I, I already knew about youth of today. Uh, I already, you know, minor thread and some of that, but still it was just music that I listened to. And then all of a sudden one day, and I don't remember the exact album or, or, or what it was, but it was, you know, hanging out with everybody. And then there was, it was like a party without drinking. Like it was like a bunch of us that were like, oh, this is kind of cool that we're not drinking. We're listening to music. That's really cool that everyone else is doing this with like appetite for destruction and drinking. <laughs> and then we're doing it a little bit different, you know? So that was, um, you know, a part of that sense of community that I don't think I ever really had, right? Like I was, 
I was always the, the, the third wheel of all these dyads. There was um, Dave and Bill, and there was Dave and Randy, and then there was Josh and Boris and Josh and Stevenson, and um, there was Brad and Jason, and there was, you know, Chad and Cody. And I was always just kind of, you know, I was like, oh, well, this is cool, but I don't, it's kind of weird because they were more friends with me. And like, I was always this kind of third mm. floater. And so for me, there was always this sense of, and actually I remember one time you were listening to um, Agent Orange and there's a song where they're talking about building community. And then one of those other skate rock songs, the kids don't skate here, that was yeah, about yeah. building community. And so I remember that was a really big thing. And then all of a sudden, like one day we were all hanging out, listening to like straight edge music and we were all sober and we were like, Oh, we've got a Wasn't little that community band called eight days a week. I can't remember which uh, one it's it was. on the first or second scale. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I just, I remember that there was, I remember thinking, what does it mean to build a community? What is it that, you know, that if you fall down, there's someone there to pick you back up. You know, if you are struggling with this and you don't know who to talk to, there's someone there. Like all those basic things that I didn't really think that I ever had in a lot of ways because I was always moving. I was always in a new school. I never had those like best friends where you grow up together kind of thing. Right. So for the first time, I was like, here's a thing that we've we've created. And it it's this scene. It's this, you know, there's there's people that feel the same way. And it was always I mean, for us, I think, especially in Bellingham, it was always a very. It's just what you do to be a good person. It wasn't like, you know, later I know it was like super crazy about like, you know, being mad at people or whatever. Yeah. To me, when I quit drinking, there's a lot of people that were like, well, you're too good for oh, us then. Remember, we got a lot of shit. Yeah. Well, and then after I left Bellingham, I moved to Indian reservations where people, that was not acceptable at all. <laughs> people hated me. People threatened to kill me because worse, I wouldn't huh? drink with them. And I was like, I, it's not that I don't want to drink with you. I don't drink with anyone. And it was, I remember they drive up next to my brother with their rifles and say, tell your brother, we're going to shoot him when we see him. And he was like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll let him know. Like it was, I, you know, I, so that really happened. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It happened. And it didn't just happen once it happened in multiple communities. It was like really, really tough. So, you know, I, I, and even still, even then, um, living in, you know, Cranbrook, BC, and then later, you know, in Missoula or on Pol in Polson in those areas, kind of reservation adjacent or on reservation, I would just try and find people that wanted to do something different. And still to this day, there's guys 25 years later that we still get together and listen to music. And that was their, you know, they came along a little bit later, but it was that same thing. I just, I just want to be a good, cause a lot of us came up in systems that weren't very good. My, 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 particularly with my father, it wasn't, wasn't a great upbringing. So for me, it was just a way to do some of those cool, wholesome, like crucial youth. Remember the, the, yeah. the milk white vinyl because it yes. was a milk <laughs> that was, you were doing a wholesome thing that I didn't ever really get to see or do, but it was still cool music. It wasn't like we were listening to like <laughs> Disney music or whatnot. <laughs> I used to have a copy sitting right there, but someone bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, I still have mine. I'll have to, I'll have to post a picture of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. but so you, no one ever took a shot at you though. What do you mean? Took a shot? Well, at you me? said they said they were going to kill you. Oh, um, I, I don't know if anyone ever, you know, physically shot at me. People would swear, <laughs> people did not, people did not like me. The, you know, but you'd I, win these people over. Um, not, not those particular guys, but some of the young people, younger people in their families, people, I remember, cause I used to tell people, Hey, you know, we, we've got a, we've got a drum group and we go singing at powwows and it's really just a lot of fun to hang out. And, you know, we get to travel and do some things because most indigenous kids at the time had never left the reserve. They never thought about going anywhere or doing anything and reservations in the States, reserves in Canada. 
And so we'd start going to powwows and we'd, we'd like do this, you know, the kind of stuff like it was when I went to Spokane to play my first show really out of town or out of my element. And so it just became this kind of way to win some of the younger people over to do that. And then some of them really like heavy music. Mm -hmm. A lot of them started off with rap and then they'd start hanging out with me. And at the time, you know, whatever it was that I could find. I remember at the time I listened to a lot of Zayo. Okay. <laughs> and I remember there was a lot of them really liked that. So it was, you've definitely taken, you've turned the corner to that harder edge of music, but that became a thing. And then so slowly I'd be like, oh, here's this like cool thing called straight edge. And I would give them some of the music and they would be like, yeah, the music's not as good, right? Because they would be listening to like <laughs> mid to late eighties hardcore yeah, yeah. that was not produced as well. But I remember that there was just, you know, it was that, it was just that thing. It was a way to make a just, little bit of. You've just got to play the part of the Wide Awake record where he starts with talking. You got to play insight for him. And that'll get him. Yeah. I, I think, I think I just posted a picture of that. It was that schism number three or something. That, you know. Just you and him. Yeah. No way he'll win. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still have, I just, yeah, I still have that record. Yeah. That's a good one. I don't think I played that one for that was even a little bit, maybe too far uh, back. Yeah. But I mean, it was just, it was this way to kind of create a little bit of this solidarity. It was a little bit of community. It was a little bit of, you knew, I, I think I knew for the first time ever in my life that if something happened and I fell down, there'd be people there to pick me back up. And I don't want to say that everything about my childhood was terrible, but there were times where when things were bad, I, there was literally, I could just, all I could think of was someday I'm going to be out of this and I'll be in charge of my own life. And I, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll get to change all these things that I don't like about it. But you know, when you're 15 or 16 and you're living in low income housing and you know, you just, you know, you're like, you know, extraordinarily uncool and unpopular, you look for something like that. And then it be, it's becomes your armor, right? That was my armor. Well, so that's, that. so that's okay. Do you think because most people that get into straight edge don't stay straight edge. Yeah. But some people do. Yeah. And I don't doubt those people at all. And I feel like for a lot of those people, there's something that, like, you know, straight edge wasn't cool. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, here's a way for me to be cool. <laughs> cool haircut. It, <laughs> it was, here's a way for me to take control of my life. Yeah. Like, I've been waiting for the handle. And I, I now have the handle and I'm not letting it go. I think vegetarianism and veganism, all, all of those, it's just, I, I, the only thing I can really be in charge of is what I put in my body and what goes on in my head. Yeah. And for me, that was definitely, that, that was, that was very much a part of it for the first time, no matter how much craziness I came from or how much violence or how much drugs or for me, it was mostly drinking. Drinking is what I really saw. That was the, you know, the hardest for me. And it was my chance to be like, whatever goes on in the world around me goes on. What happens kind of in my body, in my head, this is me armed with a mind, right? You know, armed all, with a mind. Oh, dude. All of, all, all of those. It's just, it's the ability, no matter what's going on around you to build that wall up and say, as long as I have this kind of place where I'm safe, I can do the kinds of things I need to do to help the people around me. That's why I quit drinking a few, few months later. That's why I decided, decided that I was straight edge. And you know, for a long time, I'm sure I didn't ever even talk about or I didn't have like most my wife will be like, oh, the, you would like so and so he's straight edge. What she means is he doesn't drink. He does not listen to hardcore music. <laughs> so sometimes I'm like, no, I don't know. I don't. Reminds me of parents today. He's like, your sisters are straight edge, too, right? No, no, there's, no. See, there's a thing that's yeah, not really. It's not a default position. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a sacred oath. Yeah, yeah. So which is absolutely silly and yeah. 
deadly serious. And it is. And people get super crazy about it. And like the whole thing about caffeine and the whole thing about, and, and the big thing right now that I see with a lot of people that are like showing, you know, on Instagram, a lot of the pictures and the music, a lot of it is, you know, there, there's, there's kind of that, that vegan thing where half vegans are like, you know what? I'm just, I'm happy to make the changes with my life. And my, I know that I'm, and the other half are like, you have to go vegan. And if you don't, you're supporting whatever. I, yeah. Great. I can't fight every battle on the planet all at once. And I, when I first moved home in 94, I'd been a vegetarian for a long time, like years and years and years vegetarian. You were one of the first people doing vegetarians yeah. and before I dabbled in it. I, I, to me, it seemed like, you know, a respectful thing to do. And I know that, you know, having grown up in the agricultural industry, I kind of saw firsthand and I decided that's what I was going to do. And I moved home and within a week of being home, everyone was trying to figure out who this guy was because they knew my grandfather and they knew that he was. And when a, you say moving home, you're not talking about California to Bellingham. You're talking about oh, when this, you, you're saying yeah. in 94, you moved away from Bellingham. What is moving home? I, I So I finished at Western and I did a term at Simon Fraser where I was commuting from, from Marietta to um, Mount Burnaby every day, which I don't recommend it. Okay, it was so a terrible how, drive. How, how far is that for people that don't know the area? Oh, it's actually only maybe 50 miles, but it's terrible because you go through the border <laughs> and then you drive like through parts of like the outer parts of Vancouver. So it's a terrible commute. It was, yes. it was horrible every day. Um, but I decided I needed to move home if I was going to learn more and not just do book smarts, but understand, you know, stuff at home. So I moved to the St. Mary's Indian Reservation outside of Cranbrook, British Columbia. Cranbrook is a town at the time of about 11,000 people. Is this where your father, uh, the, this is where they came from to get away from the Indians, the school or the, the, this, the <laughs> no, let me, let me ask, say that. Let me re-say this so they say it right. To get away from the school that the kids were getting yeah. put into. So the, the funny thing is, is we own that school now and it's like a resort. I, I, work, oh, in wow. it, I work in it quite a bit. It took me a long the time. The residential school. Yeah. We, we decided to turn it into a resort. And now it's actually revenue generating and we're in charge of like the museum that's there. Like, like it is our business. Yeah. So yeah. It's real. we're getting ready to celebrate this June, I think June 14th, the 50th uh, anniversary of its closing. Um, so anyway, I worked in a building across before they did that. It was just this old creepy building that just cast a long, dark shadow across the land. Ac- on the other side of the field, I worked in a little trailer, which was the language program. And, um, the really crazy thing was I started working there and I look out the window at this building and I was like, just bulldoze it, just get rid of it already. I, I knew what it had done. And, uh, I remember one of the old ladies said, you know, well, I'm glad that you're working with me. You, you seem like you're, you're interested in the language and we want to have you spend some time with some of the elders because we want you to know a little bit about who you're, you know, who your dad, you know, where he came from and the community values. So the first elderly woman that I went to, I went to her house and I sat down and she says, I hear you're vegetarian. And I remember thinking, how is that the first thing that you knew? <laughs> My family has been gone for like 50 years. And the first thing you know is that I don't eat meat. And she says, vegetarianism is fundamentally incompatible with our culture. The way that we get food and what we eat is how we're related to the land around us. So you need to start eating meat again. And she gave me a bowl of deer stew and and that was it. Vegetarianism (laughs) ended that day for me. Wow. Yeah, it was, she was very firm about it too. And later I remember she kind of teased me about it and she was like, Half of me figured that you just wouldn't, and I probably wouldn't have been hurt feelings if you <laughs> if you wouldn't eat it. Wow, she's testing you. Yeah, very much. Everything in our community is like a test with all the old people. Wow. How well you do, if you get turned off by it, if you come back. They'll teach you some super hard word to learn in our language, 
and then they want to see if you remember it. And if you don't, sometimes you're in trouble. And, you know, and I just was that I was that kid. I'd show back up and I'd be like, oh, I remembered one time you said this. And how would we change this if it was another person? And that, you know, that just kind of endeared me with some of them. They really liked it. I, I just wouldn't be turned off by it and, and wanted to know more. So you go there and you talk about the work that you do. So what what was it you were pursuing in terms of of work? going back into like it was was it was this a journey initially of you just finding out about your heritage or was it about a career so we had already or both it could be both so i had already started um i mean we we worked at christensen engineering in bellingham yeah well yeah you and i've got a little more to do about (laughs) us but we've jumped ahead a little but we'll get so so i started taking classes at whatcom when we Mm -hmm. were at christensen and then that was when i thought hey i could probably get money to go to school and so I kind of reached out and found out who my family was. And I started like, um, I started like, you know, I was like a men's traditional dancer, powwow dancer. And I started doing some of that stuff. But then at one point, my dad, we took a couple of trips home to where he was from, where we met a couple of people. Um, I remember we went to the OMAC stampede powwow that they have there. And that's the first time I met other people from his community. And so I, I was finishing up, I finished my bachelor's. I wanted to go to graduate school. Um, I got accepted at Simon Fraser and I decided, you know what, I want to move home because I want to know about how things really work, not the book aspects of economic development, but I want to see what's happening in community. So that's why I moved there. And also I was tired of being poor. I was living off of just a little bit of money as a student. Like I moved back in with my dad for a while, which was super uncool when I was like 20 or 21 or whatever. So, you know, the, the community had heard that I graduated and I, I, got a call from them one day and they were like, Hey, would you be interested in doing some contracting work? And I said, I would be interested in moving over. So I moved, um, to St. Mary's for about four years and they, uh, you know, I, I did some contract work in the language and some, some other research stuff. But what I was really trying to do was figure out how I could make these larger systemic changes for indigenous people not just reading something about, you know, in a book, that's a theory, this is how it should work. But I wanted to know what won't work with what's going on with community dynamics and how to kind of change that. And then for, you know, 10 or 15 years, that's what I did every day. So when I went to graduate school, I had already done all of this research and most of the things I wanted to study, they were kind of already there. And I had like having people tell you they're going to shoot you because you won't drink with them. Um, That was a, that was my favorite. That was probably the low point. Um, But then the, the flip side was, a lot with addiction. Um, you go through horrible processes, and if you don't deal with it, you hurt people hurt people, right? That that the thing that happened to you when you were forced to go to that school, or you were removed from your parents, or you had that, you know, traumatic childhood event. You don't ever focus on it. You're you're never going to be anything more than you were at that point. Part of you stops kind of growing at that point. And so I just wanted to know what are the kinds of things we can do to get, you know people being more than if someone today wants to do more than their parents did, I think they should have every opportunity to do it. And a few people in my life helped me to do that. So it just, you know, became kind of my drive to be able to find places to do that, whether it was music, whether it was language, whether it was going to school, whatever it was. So that's why I moved there. And I lived in a town of, you know, 10,000 people or a reservation adjacent to a tiny town where if you didn't shop by like five o'clock, you didn't shop. Yeah. <laughs> not, not my favorite. <laughs> and so that has led you into what you've been doing basically in your life since, but we're not quite there yet. It's a teaser. It's yeah. a little bit of a teaser. Let's jump back. Okay. Okay. If you open the skateboard shop, 
we both go straight edge. But we also start a band. Yeah. How did that happen? So I, I remember, well, so let's, let's wait, I'm going to stop you. Yeah. We start before we do bands, we start getting interested in going to shows. Yeah. And so my first show, my first time seeing a band plug in and play live was a band called TFW at the Vortex. Yeah. Boris was there. John was there. Brett was there. There was slam. Randy was there. There was slam dancing. I believe in my heart you were there. The Vortex was the same thing that became the Star Club? Yes. That, yeah. Yes. I, I probably was. I, I probably, believe you yeah. were there with us that night yeah. because that was my core group of people, those yeah. people I just named, and you were part of that core group. Yeah. And after that, uh, and then earlier tonight in my kitchen, you told me what your first show was, but I, and I questioned yeah. you. I said, no, I think it was this, but it wasn't even a real show. It was just the one band. It was guys we knew from high school playing yeah. in this band. Um, it was a new wave dance club the rest of the time. So yeah, um, the other, the posters for the other concerts and shows and acts were pretty awesome. <laughs> absolutely. So we were into this idea and there was a band called the lawnmowers mm-hmm. that was our friends. It was yeah. Jason and Brett and then other friends of ours. Uh, I, I don't, was, were Shane and who was the original singer? I th- Glenovich was a singer at some point. Gl- Matt Glenovich yeah. was a singer. I thought Shane and played Shane bass. Lewis played bass. Yeah. Um, Brett played drums and Jason yeah. played guitar. But they had a singer, Christian. I, I don't. I don't remember. It's in the Bre- okay. It's absolutely in the Brett Van Horn episode. But the point is this: they became filthy McNasty. Yeah. And then that was fun. That was a good time. We would go see them play. We get the mosh. They yeah. did. A, they did the song Minor Threat. You, you mentioned in one of the shows the uh, down at Clark's Point going down with the generator and firing up the generator and having concerts out in the middle of nowhere, which I'm sure now are these like million dollar homes. <laughs> I remember that was the first time I ever sang. I remember. Oh, really? Yep. The Drunk Engine song. I sang that. There was like two or three of them. Like that hey, was that was a big deal. Like that was one of those points in my life where yeah. you, you just said something that's going to demand some discussion. <laughs> yeah. You and I and a bunch of other people we knew used to listen to and really love a band yeah. called the Drunk Engines. Yep. Spelled with V's instead of U's. Yes. They did a, uh, they did a Joy Division cover. Yep. They, yep. Uh, they were really... Technically, it was a Warsaw cover, I think. Yeah. You're smart. <laughs> <laughs> so listen. So, we didn't know that at the time. I, I, I went back and looked at it, and I think it's in the lyric sheet. I think it actually says that in oh, there. Oh, does that, it? Yeah, because I, I not too long ago went back and looked at the record, and I think it does say it in there. But yeah, we just assumed at the time that it was a Joy Division cover. Yeah. Now listen, even then, yeah. we all knew it was uncool that yeah. that was the, the name yeah. of that band. But yeah. like, also part of it was sneaking a look at you and yeah. you being into it and feeling like, that yeah. kind of makes it okay for me. And listen, yeah. what's the story? Like, do you know the story behind the people in that band and why they had that name? So I've always kind of tried to, you know, I've always thought about it. Um, I've, you know, it's so, so a couple of things like one, my mother for when I was really into dead Kennedys, but the first punk I was really, really into was dead Kennedys that I had, you know, multiple tapes and my, and my mother hated it. Not because she didn't like that they were political, not because it was, she grew up in the era of the Kennedys and she remembers the assassination Mm. and that was hard for her. Right. So for me, 
punk was all about say something that's crass, right? I mean, yeah. Crass, right? That was, that was one, maybe not the first, but one of the very first used records I bought was a crass record. And one was a social distortion because you mentioned another state of oh, mind. Oh yeah. But the one with 1945, <clears throat> that was one of the very, that might be the first record that wasn't brand new. I thought that might've been the first one that I bought. And I just thought about that. But for me, that whole idea of drunk engines was there's always something that's a little bit, you know, you know, you shouldn't, but you're going to do it because that's what makes you stand out. And it's all about hypocrisy and it's all about taking control over, or it's all about taking what the narrative that people are assuming are finding some way to question it. Um, I would always like to think that there were native people in the band. I remember I did, you saying that and I didn't know if it was true. I, I, rape, so, so I believe the, there was the bass player was Mexican American. So okay. for me, I was like, okay, <laughs> was that's, that the, was that's that kind the, of getting there. <laughs> and so, cause I remember I had read some articles and I was, you know, and I was like, man, that would be super crazy if that was actually native people. It, it really wasn't. Um, you know, I found recently there was a I found a couple of MoFo articles where they had talked a little bit about it, and it was essentially the you know making that statement, having the the masks and the masks they, were so incredible. Uh, I mean, they look like this was before Slipknot, and they actually yeah. look like skulls, and they've got like mohawks on their skulls. Um, I do also know that you know some of the themes in the music just resonated with me. It wasn't my favorite. Later on, when I was a student at Western, when I was very much a student activist. Um, you know, one, one of my friends who does actually Michael Vindiola, who came up on Brett's, mm. um, episode because they knew each other from the breakdance days. <laughs> Michael and I, uh, were really good friends at Western. We went to school together and he was the one that found the post about me applying for the job. And he's the one that, that, that posted that on, on, on Instagram. But he, uh, one time we were hanging out and his wife said something like, oh, well, Michael does music. Sometime you could come over and you could do music with him. But he was like hip hop. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm like, you know, loud guitars. And I remember she asked, like what? And I was like, like the only thing I could come up with was drunk engines. And I remember oh. she was like, I don't think I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so. a hard, that band is a hard sell. Yeah. But what I will yeah. say is that record's a good record. Yeah. Yeah. Frontside Grind is a really fantastic record. Yep. And we were in a band together when it was time yeah. for us to be in a band. We started a band. And I think one of the things that was determined was that we'll be in a band. We just have to do blood drips like a passing thought. <laughs> yeah. Look at <laughs> by the, the drunk the, engines. The names of the songs, um, uh, the names and some of the lyrics from that. They're very, they're very poetic when you listen to them. The way that they kind of worked ideas and themes and rhymes into, yeah. Well, you, at yeah. the time you were like, this has to be native themed. You were like, this is like, and I was like, dude, yeah. just this is great because I feel way better about and, it. And the, the, I remember on the poster that's. The poster from the album is still on my wall and there was the one, what is it? Um, there's something about like the mountains and the, there's like another one of yeah. those sayings. And I remember I was just like, oh, that's got to, that just sounds like it's going to you know, in retrospect, it probably was not. <laughs> <laughs> probably was not. But yeah. we started a band. Hey, I was, was anyone singing... in the angry Samoan Samoan? I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> you could get away with a lot more back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so. We we got into a band with our friend Abe. He yep. was playing guitar. Abe, Abe Ortiz. Abe Ortiz. Yeah, still, you were still friend on Facebook. Still see that he's still playing, and every once in a while he's just like, "Hey, we should get get together and play." <laughs> oh, awesome! Yeah, was it Green Lake All Stars? The last or... <laughs> time he asked me if I would do music with him again, he asked me if I'd be cool with uh, scatting. <laughs> Bear in mind, this was 1991, so I think he was probably listening to a lot of like sweaty nipples at the time. Yeah. Maybe, but probably not. There's a chance. 
It's not a good chance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, he was, hold on. He was probably listening to some Black Happy. <laughs> yes. I'm holding a Black Happy CD right here. I don't know how that that's a classic in cover. my room. But yeah. S- same time frame. So, uh, no, Abe's great. And then we, Dave Kitts yep. played drums for a little while. Yep. And then Dave Kitts wasn't playing drums. I do not remember why, but we got Mike Mitchell. Yeah. And at the same time, Filthy McNasty broke up mm-hmm. and they restarted as a straight edge band called First Step. Yep. And they got you to play bass. Yep. I was, uh, and and that was about the time when I, you know, I, I had like bought like a pawn shop bass, like everyone's got the great pawn shop story. <laughs> Mine was the one that was right down next to the bagelry and I went in there and, you know. If I don't know, I, the worst thing for me is to go somewhere and look stupid. So I just went in and was like, I'll take that one. <laughs> Knew nothing. I could have been buying you. Know, it could have been like an oversized ukulele or something. And, <laughs> and I would have showed up to practice and wouldn't know. But I just, you know, I lucked out. I just went in and I bought it. And it was like, you know, still, it was kind of was like a knockoff of a Fender P bass. And, but the headstock was a little bit different. And um, that was where, you know, I learned a lot about uh, math and music and some, you know, tones and, uh, that kind of I had never done anything with music before that now I'd, I I was in a choir course where the teacher decided that I was going to sing a solo or something in middle school that was it for me I didn't I don't like standing out so I was like yeah I'm not doing this and I don't want to do it and if you need to fail me you can so then there was this gap in my life where I didn't do any music of any kind or anything like that and um, then started playing bass and was like cool it's, and it's just four strings <laughs> we were terrible we had a song called leave my chones alone Yep. We, yeah, <laughs> which which wasn't as offensive as some of the uh, the old uh, uh, Phil McNasty songs. Yeah, but yeah. we were definitely from this not progressive. Well, we all. were listening to bands like SGM too. Yeah. We were definitely like we were yeah. straight edge, but we liked a lot of in your face bullshit because we yeah. were like skateboarders too. So, yeah. but we were trying. Like it was bad. I know it was all bad, but I had to start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, first step was much better. And yep. much more what I wish I was doing because you guys actually got to be a straight edge band. Well, I think in I think before um, first step it was it was super random. Which to to me punk there's a lot of stuff about punk that's super random. The three note combinations that don't work in any other form of music. You just do it loud enough and distort it and yell over it. It it works. And but I remember like the very first couple of times that I went to practice with Brett and Jason, they were really it was really about you know, there's a verse and then there's a chorus, but there's a bridge to get to it. And you usually do it in fours. Like they were so that like, I, you know, going there and watching, because I think Jason had, he had like taken like piano lessons. So they knew a little bit about music. So it was, music was not just, Hey, let's just make some noise and have it be cool and say we're in a band, but we went there and they were very much about, you know, then we're going to build up and then there's a change here and we're going to do a drum fill. Like that was, you know, I, I felt super out of my league. Like I was just like, cool. whatever <laughs> and you guys got longstreth to uh sing yeah dave longstreth yep somehow he was called egg yeah uh he changed his name later to logan really yeah. okay he's logan longstreth now <laughs> that sounds very um superhero cinematic universe type of so the the, the egghead thing we so we did the jason and, and brett or, or jason and dave and i did the youth of today last show that wasn't their last show mm. and where we drove down and um we all decided we weren't going to shave our heads 
because we were going to communities where, you know, a bunch of guys with shaved heads probably wasn't a cool thing. Yeah. So you and were going then, to what? Like uh, Bremerton? We went, we went to, well, th- that show was in um, Southern California. Mm. So we did like a week long drive down and drive back. And we, like, we knew there were a bunch of skate parks we wanted to go to. Um, we went to Hunter's Peak to the dish there. Um, we went to um, Mount Baldy. And there's, you know, it's pretty... I had grown up down there. I knew it was, you know, you don't want to show up and look like a bunch of skinheads. Yeah. You could get off a main road and things could go bad quickly. So we all decided, we like pledged, we're not shaving our heads. And then every morning we'd be, we'd hear Longstreth running his razor and then he'd shave his head every day. <laughs> and I remember one time, I think it was in Hunter's Peak where it was a super rough neighborhood and all these kids saw him. And I think that, and we were like, no, no, no. I remember Jason and I were like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're cool. We just, we just want to skate. But I remember there was something about, you know, we made some joke about, you know, shaving, shaving your egg head is probably not good on this trip. So that, to my recollection, was, was why we, why we had, had called him that. Yeah. I'd call him egg. Yeah. And then, so we, our bands played little shows. There was a, there was one great storage space show that was supposed to be with Brotherhood. Brotherhood showed up. It got yeah. shut down before. Yeah. Um, we'll put some photos up on the page. Uh, for this episode on nobody'snose.com, they'll have some photos from that. There's some very fun photos from that. Uh, Chris, I think you've got some photos of, of you and I playing together that I yeah. hadn't seen. And I think I've got some that I sent you that you hadn't seen. Yeah. And some, uh, aggr- I, I, some aggression. You've got some aggression there. skates yeah. photos because you also became in the second year of us having the store, Randy and I brought you on as uh, like 20% owner of the store. Yeah. So you I were- told, I told everybody I was sponsored. <laughs> Told everybody you were sponsored yeah. by aggression. Yeah. It was. A, I got paid by a skate shop. So. It was a bad deal for everyone. <laughs> like it, it was worth the wor- It was worse for you. It was the worst deal for you because you got far less than us of the very little that we got because we weren't making any money yeah. or doing or making any good decisions. Yeah. So I learned about taxes during those days. Who kind of? Yeah. And we just got lucky in the end. We got an accountant that came in and just went, "What are you? What? <laughs> How do you? What pay? do you mean there's no sales tax? <laughs> yeah. Just we're gonna have to go reverse engineer the sales. I think yeah. we did actually charge sales tax, but yeah. oh god. Yeah, it was a thing. It was a thing. So you have um you have skateboard shop memories as well as uh, music memories. Yep. I, before we get to the shop, first step was going to put out a record. Yep. And Bill Baker was going to put it out on his record label. His record label was going to be called Rated X. Yep. I remember the Rated X stuff. Yep. Yeah. I put that in the back of a, of a, of a hoodie. And then he said he was going to start a record label called Rated X. So then I started Excursion because I had to do something yeah. different. And I well, still he, wanted the X. Because I remember you were talking. I remember you had the sweatshirt. And then all of a sudden he did, he had like the first episode of his zine that was called, called rated, rated x right yeah it's like oh <laughs> and you were I like mean, cool interesting is that is that the name of it because <laughs> i was there for that discussion <laughs> i feel like yeah and honestly like honestly was i gonna do anything with rated x i mean i just put it on that i just thought it was a funny thing to put on the back of a hoodie but like he did i did feel like he took it i think maybe i was mad oh can i even i'm not mad like whatever yeah. The stupid name excursion came from that, but you guys recorded and it never got finished. Yep. I remember that. What do you remember sure. about the recording session? Um, so by the way, while you're telling this, I'm going to walk over here. Just ignore what I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> going to be terrible. Uh, so I remember, um, there was a recording studio at Fairhaven college and, uh, at Western Washington university and a few different people that we had, um, played shows with or whatnot were involved and actually, one of the guys I remember from, it might not have been 
senior year in high school, but one of the guys that I had a class with ended up being one of the engineers up there later. So um, we ended up finding somebody that kind of, back in those days, you didn't have any money and you didn't have very good music, but you had to find someone to buy tape. And then you had to find somebody that knew how to get into the studio and run it. And it was always like middle of the night. I remember most recording sessions were super late. Um, I remember that at those sessions, some stuff got done, but it wasn't like today with Pro Tools where you can go back and, you know, we're going to fix it in the mix. There's really no mixing when you're using tape. There's nothing you can do. So, you know, I, it was, it was, you know, the first time I was in a studio, it was the first time I learned really about um, any of this stuff. And I also know that, you know, there was, after you work on something for long enough in the middle of the night, um, you start getting frustrated. And, and so it, it didn't ever really finish, but it was a great experience because it was the first time. And I've talked about this before, like you and Bill and Ron were always doing this like hands-on promoting, producing, um, pressing records, doing zines. And I, and I was always just kind of on the outskirts of all of that, but that was the first time I like went into a studio and I remember the engineer was kind of telling me what the process was and, you know, the magnetic tape, all that kind of stuff. Was so, it Brian Van Cleek that was recording this? I, I don't even remember. It, I, I know that he was involved with some of the stuff. I, I just remember it was, you know, we knew we had a certain amount of time. Things didn't go as quick. It was hard to set up. Um, I can't remember. Who Do you drum. know what didn't get finished? Um, so I know that... Um, so I know later there was a project with Stevenson and I know vocals didn't get put on that because failure also recorded, but oh. there was never Brett, Brett sent me a, a copy of that not too long ago. Oh really? So yeah, it's a couple of our songs from failure, but the vocals didn't get on. And then I don't remember about the first step. What, what was it? But, but Longstreth recorded the vocals, right? I don't, I don't even remember. <laughs> so what did I just set down on the table in front of you? <laughs> so I see some Maxell uh, 35 180s and some Ampex Precision Magnetic Tape. <laughs> and, oh, you've even got the uh, world famous, <laughs> both the First Step and Rated X stickers on them. On that one. So what do you suppose these are, my friend? <laughs> Probably the uh, First Step Masters from these back the, in the day. These are the First Step Reels. Let's see if there's anything inside them <laughs> that says what's on them. These have... Um, for years, they've been traveling. Yeah, you think that old tape's still any good? It probably is. <laughs> May not sound super awesome, but uh, and you might have trouble finding gear that'll play it. Okay, let's see. There's got to be a list in here, right? Oh, man. I was really hoping there'd be a track listing in one of these. Let's, let's hope. <laughs> look, at the, look at the spine on that one. <laughs> Rod Dale. <laughs> Rod Dale. <laughs> Okay. Nice. Um, nope. There's oh, there's a sick. Hold on. Hold on. There's a. Well, I'm gonna get a photo. Of I have this. that record too. I have that original. Oh yeah, my weaknesses. I can't say no. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, I was really, really hoping that there'd be a sheet of paper with a track listing in here. There is not. I will say that at one point I sent these these reels with someone who thought they could actually do something with them. And I believe they took a listen and said, yeah, it's not really anything. <laughs> you don't want it. This was someone who, <laughs> who wanted this to happen. So this exists, whatever you all did in first step Bellingham straight edge band. It is here right here. I have it. That is the artifact. If you ever feel <laughs> like, well, do you think that equipment still exists in the Fairhaven studio? 
So I know now they're using all NLE stuff, so they're not using tape. But there's somebody that has those machines that can put them into, like, wave files you could import into Pro Tools or do something like that with it to see. I just, so there I just is some place we could take these oh, and yeah. say, we want what's on this tape yeah. digital. Yeah. And then we would do the mixing. Yep. You know, a whole group singing <laughs> what were aggressive the, remedial lyrics. What were the names of your songs? I don't even There was even one called remember. First Step. I don't even really remember. I remember that I didn't know anything about. I just remember. <laughs> Put I, these back. I remember being terrified trying to learn some of the. Because until you actually start playing an instrument, it's almost like magic, right? You don't actually know what's happening. And then you play a little bit and you're like, oh, this isn't so hard. <laughs> this is only three notes and it's in a certain pattern. So at the never time, in my life did it become this isn't so hard. It's always been hard. <laughs> so. I don't even really, I don't even really remember. Um, I do just remember that like tried to jump, tried to get people, let everybody sing into the microphone. And I remember one time I was like, what if nobody knows what to say? And I remember someone just said, well, they'll just yell something. <laughs> and I remember one time at a show, there was that hold the microphone out and nobody really knew what to yell. So everybody just like yelled something. <laughs> so yeah, I don't even, I don't even remember it seemed like there was there was some kind of a, some kind of a song about making or building something, but like I think every straight edge band from the eighties did. <laughs> I, there was a time in my life when I could have told you your set list. I don't I don't remember it now. Yeah. I, oh, but I do believe that I've got photographs with your set list pinned to the wall hmm. at a show. So. Oh yeah. There's yep. probably uh, I just don't have those available right now readily for us to. Yeah. Well, maybe over here, I'll, maybe I'll find it while we're talking. Oh, the laptop is charged up and ready to go. <laughs> but, you know, the fun thing, uh, the fun thing I remember, and I, I talked about this on uh, something that I just posted on Instagram, but there was that, um, you know, that, that show, the first real show for me outside of Bellingham, um, outside of Seattle was the, the show in Spokane where I actually, you know, our, we, we were playing with Brotherhood and Rob Ice's parents the coolest parents I've ever known. Absolutely. They, they loaned it. Cause they would let us all hang out in their hot tub. Cause they were like, if you're not drinking, you can hang out here and listen to whatever music you want. It was like the coolest thing ever. But I remember we were going to go, but we needed a way to get to Spokane and they gave us their RV to take. And it was, um, first step and Jen Martinez. And I remember I spent most of that drive learning the bass lines. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That, that Keep, picture's just, awesome. <laughs> just stick with what you're stick yeah. with. It. You spent most of the drive learning yeah. the baselines. Spent most of the dr uh, drive learning the baselines. Got there. Um, it was like a whole other world we were at. And uh, I remember um, going around and, and passing out flyers for the show, which was like a super amazing thing to be able to do. And, um, and then I remember the actual show, I looked terrified and I remember Ron was kind of like, kind of scalded me like an, uh, an older brother might. And I remember he like yelled at me and tell me to relax and have fun. <laughs> oh, what did he say to you? <laughs> he said something like, yeah, you look like you're terrified. You, you know, yeah, I don't remember what the gist of it was, but he was, was like, like, have fun. Yeah. He, he like, you know, he like told me, it was like, you look like you're terrified. Just relax and have fun. This is going to be great. And I remember like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> Ron Gardapi. Yeah. You're sitting you're sitting in that chair right now because we're on Gardapi. Oh yeah, I I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the reason is is because a couple years ago when Ron was still with us, there was a conversation on his page that reached out to me about photos or something something having to do with the podcast and uh you basically that put us back in contact because hmm. we weren't in contact on Facebook, but yeah. we connected through that and then we started talking. 
it was Ron, the great connector of people, yeah. brought us back together. One yeah. of the last things, basically, it, like the story of Ron all the way from the beginning is yep. putting people together. Building so, community, finding a way to get people to do something together that wasn't previously there. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to give him one final big credit for that. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, I, he, then he had to go leave us. You know, the thing about that show was I, I knew Ron. I'd been to shows with him. I'd been to Seattle. I'd hung out with him. I went down and trade records. But this show and going on that trip was I saw somebody that was stoked about the world and was like, we could turn this corner and there could be a bunch of skinheads or there could be a bunch of metalheads or there could be punk rockers or skaters and they're all going to come to the show. And in Bellingham, we didn't really have that. We had like uh This is a show you're talking about. We're looking at the flyer right now. Oh, okay. Brotherhood, First Step, Refused, and Better Off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I haven't seen that poster. I have another one for it. The one that's that's drawn with the skinhead on it. But yeah, that's yeah, that was it. <laughs> that was that show. All right. I'm sorry, I keep I keep throwing you off your uh your but, game here. But the, you but had a thing... song called True to My Word. Okay. That's that sounds, on here. That sounds familiar. Uh I can barely read the set list pin on the wall in these old photos. Uh, have to run some algorithms on it, and <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to look at a larger version of this because I can't really blow it up. I don't think. Yeah, I I haven't seen any of these pictures, so yeah, that would be. That oh, would be this great is if... on Brett's. This is a, well, you're not you weren't in the band during this. Okay, this is the other bass player. Okay, so I don't know if I've got for, I've got first up photos with you somewhere, and I know you do. Yeah. So we'll your your page will have some different photos. There you are. <laughs> Awesome. I've got that super cool skate rock pose where there's the bass player is always like, looks like he's like in another world. He's not jumping or doing anything. All right. This is, this is great podcasting. Okay. It's my fault though for bringing it up. Okay. I thought I could, I thought I could find all of the names of the songs on those reels we just looked at and throw them at you, but yeah. just first step and true to my word were the only ones we can read off that set list. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get back in where you were. Yeah. So I, I, that was, you know, that particular show, um, going and actually looking at someone who was like, you can't, I, I, you know, Bellingham, pretty homogenous scene. It was just a few people that liked music out of the ordinary. And so we were really comfortable with that. And when I would hang out with Ron, either in Seattle, looking at records or on that trip to Spokane, it was about, we're going to find anyone and everyone. And it's going to be awesome. Cause everyone, everyone has the same angers. Everyone has the same issues. Everyone wants to listen to good music and everyone wants to jump around. And so I just remember he got like 50 copies of the poster and we just walked around and he just walk up to anyone and strike up a conversation. And that was, I think the first time in my life uh, I study networks and looking at super connectors or people with like high eigenvector centrality that can bring multiple diverse groups together. He was the first person I saw that just did that. We just walk up and say, Hey, do you like metal? <laughs> you said one thing really quickly right there. Eigenvector centrality. <clears throat> eigenvector yeah. centrality. I just wanted to like, so is it Eigen like E I G A N? E I G E N. E N. Okay. Yeah. Just so that it can be yeah. understood that if someone wanted to look that up, if you feel that Ron was an example of this. Yeah. Uh, so in networks, you have nodes that are very popular, and that's kind of, you know, uh, centrality um, based on how many links you have linking to you. And then you have people that are bridges between a group or clusters. And then eigenvectors are people that link different communities. So we went there. And, and that, and that was the thing, Spokane, there was a lot of metalheads and there was a lot of, and the funny thing was my wife had just moved to Spokane and went to shows there all the time. So there's a chance she was at that show, which was kind of funny. And she was like, I just remember anything that was like metal or rock or any of that, we would all go. It was like a really big deal. And, you know, going from Bellingham to there, 
in Bellingham, you would have went to what? Um, Telefane Square and put up a poster, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe at your high school or something. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of places, but you go to Spokane and we just walked around and hand, and it's funny because all of those sites are really still there. And once in a while we'll walk downtown and kind of see them and, and kind of see it. One, two, three arts is not there, but there's like a really cool coffee shop right next to, you know, what used to be there. So yeah, it was a, that was a big deal. Nice. Okay. And then, so after first step you did failure, Yep. which was, and did you sing in that? I did, yeah. But there yeah. was another band that you were playing guitar in. Uh, Extremity was in there oh, somewhere. Oh, that's right. You did yep. Extremity too. Bill sang for Extremity. Yep. And you never. And there was no Extremity recording. No, no. Um, and and so I had. So my first guitar was like a really knockoff. Like it was actually an Epiphone before Gibson bought Epiphone. So it was kind of cool. It was like a Fender knockoff. I kind of wish I had it now. Yeah. It was not a great guitar, but I remember in Extremity, I bought. One of the first BC Rich. That's right. New Jersey series. <laughs> red crackled over black or black crackled over red BC Rich Virgin. And I wish I had, I've looked for that guitar on reverb and it does, it seems to not exist. But, and there's pictures of me with a shaved head just sitting at my grandmother's house playing this BC Rich. And it's such an anachronistic kind of weird because it's like, you know, here's my grandma's wood paneling couch and like, you know, Afghan knitted blankets or whatever. And then me playing this, this BC Richard. Yeah. That was the, I bought that guitar for that band. For Extremity. Extremity yeah. was good. <laughs> I remember Extremity being good and we still just didn't know how to record anything. Yeah. And no one had a camera, a camcorder. Yep. Although I did recently find, and it's been up for a long time and I don't know how I missed it. The entire shelter show in Bill's garage is up on YouTube. Yeah, I just I just watched it not too long ago. Although it's really weird and stuttery. Are you how are you doing on time? You Good. Told- it's, my my wife has called twice. She's probably wondering if I'm she's probably asking me how it went. <laughs> Do you so, need to take a quick break to let her know everything's good? Um I can just send her a, just a quick text um from 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 the uh from the watch. Man. She from did the watch. I like that. Uh, take probably quicker to just text it here. Yeah, we'll I've got we'll like cut three, three three missed calls from her. <laughs> oh, sorry if it's if it's trouble. No, no, she, cause I drive back and forth so much, you know, she's, you know, everyone's always worried about me driving as much as are I you, do. But. Are you leaving here and driving home? Uh, I, I am. Yeah. I'm going to try and get home tonight. I've got, um, rolling out a couple of apps. I want to get home and try and get to the app store. All oh, right. Well, it's, it's six fifteen right now. Oh, my, we've, we've, my, this is like the start of my average work day. So, <laughs> okay. Cause we've been, we've been talking for two hours and 45 minutes <laughs> and we've still got some ground to cover. Yeah. So the couple options, I mean, I'm, I'm always up for coming back over. Um, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of other really good little parts, just little bits and pieces from other stories that I remember that people were telling and, and we could fill in. Um, I've still got some time here too. I'm, I'm not worried about, I would rather drive at night cause there's less traffic. So. Well, if we, okay. So if we keep going right now, we're going to go into the future. Like we're going to follow like what you've done since. Cause I know there's a lot of stuff about what you do. Yeah. Um, well you covered some of it, but. Do you, uh, I don't know, I gotta think about it. Like, we could definitely do another episode. <laughs> well, it could also be that you go back and you listen to it and the moving microphone and, you know, suddenly my nose decided to run. <laughs> it could be. No, all that, all, <laughs> no one's going to have any idea. It's all going to be cut out. <laughs> Good. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's find an organic stopping point from this okay. and then we'll figure out, um, we'll figure out what we want to do. Like, cause I definitely do a follow. I love doing follow up episodes with people. Yeah. Um, okay. so we can we can do that. Uh, did you send your message? Is everything I did, cool? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So you got the BC Rich. You've done Extremity. Yeah. Extremity 
I mean, like everything, most of all that stuff flamed out in weird, different ways. Yeah. Um, I remember a show. They where, all came from super chaotic, entropic. Who's mad at who? But nobody will really say. Every time I came into oh, a band, with the oh. exception, I think with the exception of Extremity, someone had been kicked out or left, yeah. or there was ugly feelings, and so like I routinely lost some of my friends over it because people were really mad. I mean, Filthy McNasty. I was I was in at the end of that one, and that one was getting it was getting ready to change. So they were talking. Wait, about, you were in Filthy McNasty? I remember they were like, "We're gonna do, we're gonna have some," because that whole switch had already changed. Right. right they right. were, and they were like, we're, "We're gonna make some changes." And would you be interested in playing bass? And I remember like, "Well, doesn't Shane Lewis play bass?" And they were like, "We think we're gonna." So I remember, even though it became first step, it was. It was one of those things where people were really mad about, real salty about it for a long time. Yeah, like I never, I don't think I ever talked to any of those other guys again on the other side, like the the Shane and the Matt, and then that that part of it. I, I just, you know, I and I and I didn't really know. Like I was like, this is really cool, you know. I just bought this pawn shop base, and I like walked into a minefield, and I was like, wow, there's some people that have been friends a lot longer than I've lived in Bellingham this time are you know upset with one. So that was um. you know, so there was some things like that, and then they you know flamed out for. Different well, my experience or... with those dudes had been very good in the yeah. post high school years. Yeah, I know that Glenovich still snowboards a lot, so we'll still send people. We'll send each other messages about that. I went to uh, uh, Stevens a couple of times, seeing if he was around. And every year on his birthday, I say, you know, here's to one more, you know, one more year of having knees that work. <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, fantastic. Okay, so you did. Then you did failure, yeah. which was like. Was that like first step with you singing? Um, it was slower music. There was, I mean, in terms of members. Uh, so, uh, so I remember um, Stevenson was the drummer okay. at that point. That's when we were doing the practice space out at your grandparents' place. I was there the day that we found the the mouse in the bottle and broke the bottle, so the mouse could escape. I was there that day. Extremity was the band that was recording at my grandmother's. Okay. Yeah. But I still remember going there and practicing because we had, we had switched. There was drummers. a mouse in a so, bottle, huh? Yeah. And we broke the bottle and the mouse just took off. I remember <laughs> we, we found it. it. I think Brett brought it up in his and we found it and we we're like, what are we going to do? And so like Jason was like, well, we got to break the bottle, of course. And I was like, well, it's not our bottle. You know, <laughs> he didn't want to get, didn't want, because we had that, we had, there was a problem with practice spaces. There weren't very many left. Oh, we, yeah. We got in trouble for having shows in them. <laughs> so, like your grandparents' place, that was like the last place. And so, yeah, the other, the other thing that's funny about that is we didn't, Stevenson was not the first drummer. We switched out a drummer at some point, And that was where Stevenson came to play drums for the first time. Oh, and he was still very much sounded like he was in like school band because he hadn't figured out like punk beats and stuff. Right. So and he was super into metal. Yeah. So he we had like two practices. And after he left, I remember Jason looked at me and Jason like turned his hat like from from forwards to backwards like he was going to get real serious. And he says, still sounds a little bit like he's in school band. <laughs> and then like a week later, we came out and Shane had figured out a bunch of and it was like yeah, yeah. it was really awesome. But then the other thing was he would crank on his cowbell in the middle of a quiet room and we all hated it. So we hid his cowbell in his <laughs> kick drum. And then I borrowed for a long time in the nineties. I had his Tama kit in Montana and I was recording in my own studio. And when I gave him his kit back, like two years later, he was like parting it out for some other people to borrow something. He opened up the kick drum and he found his cowbell <laughs> and he texted me and he was like, dude, I found it. I don't know how it got there. And I said, we put it there. <laughs> 
it was it was horrible like any musical project with stevenson was awesome because he was there and it was terrible because he was there and the cow the, the cowbell was the, the the one from that practice place oh that's funny and and he so we kind of traded to get him there was another drummer that started for the first couple of practices and then we got him and we were worried it wasn't going to work and then he kind of he kind of had this, like, he kind of figured it out and it was like really good. Cause I'd been friends with him since we were, I've known him since the trailer court when he was like seven and I was nine and I was like, Oh man, this is going to be terrible if these guys don't like him and it doesn't work or, or whatever. Right on. Okay. So there's, there's very little to show from extremity or failure because nothing or first step, like other than just like some pictures and yeah. some like stickers and some things. Cause there's no recordings or anything. Yeah. Um, even though someone had a videotape, none of this stuff got filmed either. But what was your other band? There was a fourth band. There was one that you were doing that wasn't failure where you were playing guitar. I believe you guys played in Kelly Ockengay's garage. And I remember you telling me about it. This would have been one of the last conversations we ever had too. And it was like, yeah. it was like you were influenced by shelter you were influenced by Fugazi. You were talking about, I think you were maybe talking about verbal assaults a little bit. Do you remember like so, something you were writing the guitar stuff for? Yeah. So I had, uh, I had picked up uh, like in 1974, the Paul, which was like the mahogany, no cool. Like there was no binding. No, it was like the most basic Les Paul ever. But I remember they were made with the, the original dirty fingers pickups, which are really rare now if you can get them. And I had to sell it because I was super poor college uh. student. And I remember the kid showed up, but he, the kid didn't want it. And his dad was like, this is like a real guitar. And he had to bar. So I ended up selling it for like 200 bucks. But yeah, that was, um, so I know for a while I was doing, working on some stuff with my brother and with Stevenson. And so for that one was uh, Deadfall. Oh. And it was, I mean, that, that I think was a little bit after this. So I can't remember like what was in, and it was at odds, extremity, first step failure and maybe that's what i'm thinking and then the maybe next was... one i remember was seventh which was when i was oh. uh, i was in i was in canada at that point okay so i i don't not saying that there wasn't because we made a lot of bands that just showed up for like one show or oh that could be it <laughs> yeah and maybe it was failure that i saw that that played up at kelly ockengay's do you remember playing kelly, kelly ockengay's i do garage? i and do were you singing or were you playing guitar i don't remember i just remember being there failure i think only had uh i think there were two shows one of them was at that weird building below christensen that weird flat aisle triangle building christensen <laughs> yeah. okay we gotta get to christensen we do <laughs> But that, that, so that was the first show. I think we only had like two songs and that was the first time I ever sang in front of anyone. Ah. Um, and I remember it was like, cause it was very different. It wasn't like power chords and fast music. It was like some weird kind of offbeat with Jason really liked a lot of like pinch harmonics and, and feedback. So it was very different and it was very screamy. And, uh, and then I think we, we played one other show that seemed like it was somewhere like Grange Hall type, like kind mm. of middle of nowhere kind of one. And yeah, I don't, I don't even think there was ever pictures. Um, well, there is a photo. There oh yeah. Is a f- oh, there is the, yeah. The one where I'm, yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's one picture of me yelling at a microphone where I look like I'm 12. It could be the practice space photo. Could have been. Yeah. 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 Okay. But and I don't, then- I don't remember who was at the, I don't remember what it was, but I remember that was, I think ref- the first time that I played anywhere with Refuse because they had come up and that was like, if I remember at Kelly's garage, that was like. There was like a ping pong table we had to move or something because with Undertow. Yeah, was like it was had, Undertow? Yeah, it was. They had. I don't think they played in Bellingham as Refuse. Okay, I think they had changed and become Undertow at that point. Okay, yeah. Okay, but it was with Joel. It was before John was singing. It was the Joel version. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's do this. We graduate high school. Yeah. Some of this we've been talking about is June actually 1989, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of what we've been talking about right now, bandwise happens after that, but we graduate high school and then the skateboard shop folds in August. Yeah. So it's done. And I have to, I'm faced with the decision of whether or not I'm going to go back to picking strawberries. <laughs> Where'd my summer work go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I also picked strawberries for five years for Chilton's. So I was with, oh, yeah. with a rival because yeah. I had a cousin who was a bear yeah, driver. Yeah. I remember, I remember those rivalries, <laughs> Mayberries and Chilton's. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, literally I went to be a dishwasher at the, um, at oh, the yeah. Kentucky fried yeah. chicken down the street. Because Sherry Lancaster worked there. Yeah. Um, and I, re I remember that was like the first like post high school moral discussion. Because remember, didn't they like they didn't they threw food away at night and they didn't want the homeless people to have it. So they like did something. And I remember you were there was this long. We all had this long discussion. About, I wanted to take the food and drop it off at the mission or yeah, something. Yeah. And the I mission believe, was like two blocks down from from aggression. And I believe yeah. I was told. You can't do that because if someone gets sick off the food, they'll sue the company. Yeah. And it was just one of those like lame things. But then yeah. the thing that really pissed me off was that my boss at that Kentucky Fried Chicken was super excited that I was clean and sober hmm. because Dare was doing a, they were, they were crossing over with, um, chicken flavored Dare. <laughs> with, yeah. With, remember they had those Kentucky Fried Chicken Dare stickers and Rob I stick a bunch of them and he changed them to say, read, resist education, abuse drugs. <sighs> Because he worked there with me. Oh, so man, he goes, that's crazy. So, I, didn't, I didn't remember that. Yes. So my, my Kentucky Fried Chicken story involves Rob Ice and Sherry Lancaster and me working in the same store. You'd think it would be cool. It wasn't as cool as it should have been. It was a bad time. It really was a yeah. the low, deep, shitty time for me. But my boss wanted to use me because they needed a representative from the store to go talk to like, they wanted to go talk to like, like junior high kids. Nice. And so she went and pitched me and they were like, Oh, he, that's so fantastic. You've got this person that never drank. And so she came back and said, yeah, they, they said they need someone who has never drank. And I said, no, I drank. I, I quit drinking and went straight edge. And so she went back and they said, Oh no, no, uh, he, he won't do. We need someone who's never drank because if these kids think that you can quit, it means it's okay to start. Yeah. And so I wasn't good enough for Dare, at which point I really, really did a 180 <laughs> and went, fuck them. And then realized Dare was terrible. I didn't know any, like all of that yeah. was awful. I didn't have, you know, so I'm so glad that's not on my resume that I was turned down by <laughs> Dare because they were evil. So then I get a job. I leave my job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and now I'm a table wiper at Bellis Fair Mall. All of this is after owning a skateboard shop for two yeah. years, not knowing what you're doing and being horrible at it, but still, I had a shop, and, and then I was yeah. a dishwasher, and then I was a table wiper. Nobody and, remembers you from table wiping. Everybody remembers you from aggression. That was the <laughs> Well, sure, yeah. but it's, uh, it's hard to be walking yeah. around listening to Verbal Assault and Operation Ivy and Gorilla Biscuits <laughs> in your cassette tape while you're wiping tables at the mall, and people that know you walk by, and they're like, that, why is that guy cleaning tables here? With like, the super cool headphones with the little sponges <laughs> yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, little sponges. <laughs> yeah. The batteries run out and I can't afford to buy more. I, it, I think I, I think I remember, I, th I think I ran into you there one time when you were working because Stevenson's thing was racks. He liked the cheese sauce. Like that was, every, he'll still talk about it. He still goes on and on about it. And we're like, dude, there's no more racks. And then he was like, dude, you remember? It's like he's pining over the cheese, the cheese sauce. sauce. And it's, <laughs> Listen, I understand pining over the cheese sauce. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty good. So I'd run into there. I'd run into all. I'd run into everyone there because yeah. it was Bellingham and it was the mall. Yeah. But yeah. then, Jen Martinez. Now the funny thing is, we went to high school with Chris Martinez, 
but it was his younger sister, Jen, that we yeah. were tight with. Yeah. Um, and Justin Martinez's older sister, yeah. who Justin Martinez has been a, a, a staple in tons of bands and is to this day. But yeah. Jen was our was our buddy. And she got me a job working in drawing control at the engineering firm that her father worked at, yeah. Christensen Engineering. Drawing control. That's And then shortly after that, you got a job there. Yep. All right. So we're starting over again because we just had a weird little cut. Uh, my roadcaster or whatever this. Yeah, it's a roadcaster. It uh, apparently it doesn't like to record for more than three hours. It'll just shut down on you. So Chris and I have pushed my equipment to the brink. Now I understand its limitations. Uh, we're at Christensen Engineering. We both get a job. We're in drawing control. We're running blueprints. The blue line machine. The blue line machine. Yeah. And I remember um, it was it was pretty cool because we did know some people that helped us get jobs there. Um, you mentioned um, Jen Martinez and her parents were really, you know, they were, um, I think, really significant for, for all of us. And every once in a while, I kind of still think about I, I know that Jen's mother adopted my brother's dog not too long ago, which is kind oh, of a cool. Wow. Yeah, it was like kind of one of those little stories. But Wonderful uh, people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just so good to us. Yeah. But could go there, could hang out. Um, it was always really, and, and I think also because they saw we were pretty good kids and not because we were straight edge. We just, we were, you know, we, we just tried to treat people good. And, and so I, I always really liked working there. One, because it was the first real job I had in a long time that wasn't picking berries. Um, and as, as much or as- Or working as, for no money at a skate shop. But, and as much as the skate shop was like going and hanging out with your friends every day. So it was kind of hard to say that that was work. But I remember I kind of, we kind of try and dress up a little bit. Like at least we'd be like- Yeah, you had yeah. to. And then, you know, we'd run the, the big blue line machine and- um, you know, it was really good. I remember our supervisor, Ed, from back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, I Believe it or not, I think out of out of all the people I've worked with, he had some of the most calm. He would say all the time, I didn't go to school. I didn't get my MBA. But he says, I understand people. And here's the problem. And this is about. So I got a lot of really interesting insight to listen to kind of, you know, office politics and why people were frustrated. And, and even the different floors, right? The higher up you went. If you were at if you were an admin at the top floor, that was like where the board of directors was, and that's where the CEO was. And um, then below that, like every um, there was like an architectural floor, and there was civil structural, and then there was piping, and like yeah, every we one worked of in one of the only places in Bellingham where there was a setup like that, where there was a, a multi floor building with different yeah. departments, strict like cast system. And, <laughs> but yeah, it was but cool people we worked with. The, too. the big thing for me um, that I remember was um i did you know at one point kind of had some people i think after you started working um with uh, the pipers um i was still doing a lot of document control and i had a couple of people under me and i remember i had to let someone go and i remember ed was like okay here's two ways to look at it and i'm gonna let you deal with it and oh I, wow and, I, and it was you know that was one of those things and i was like oh that's i never thought i would you know i never thought i'd sell out and be the man and be in charge of letting someone go but at the same time I had just got back in touch with my community and they actually said, look, in, in our community, we don't have like payouts. We don't have anything. The only benefit you get from being from, you know, the uh, Columbia Lake Indian Band at the headwaters of the Columbia River is we'll pay for you to go to school. We'll pay for you to get a four year degree. And so I started I had already started at Christensen um, taking drafting classes. Mm -hmm. And then from there, some not just the lettering, but I started looking at there was a CAD class. Yeah. So I was really into computer drawing and that. So that kind of started that. I came down to your floor and you'd been doing AutoCAD. 
and you had made the Enterprise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that specifically because <laughs> you have to draw a cross section for the disc and then rotate it. And I remember I was so proud of that. Like I was like, whoa, it's not just blocks. <laughs> yeah, I worked on it probably much longer at work than I should have. <laughs> well, do you remember uh, what you what you charged it to? I don't <laughs> remember being that was the one thing about that job that was so frustrating to me they'd be like okay timesheets are due you've got to put your like codes down for the hours and you turn it in like you can't charge that many hours to that that job I'm like well that's how long I worked on yeah. that job Isn't that yeah, yeah you, gotta, you gotta spread around <laughs> other things well I, I, and it's like we were supposed to understand that yeah. like I didn't what <laughs> yeah for for what ed uh made up for in the really good you know walks of life thing he was not so good with teaching about the bookkeeping and <laughs> and, and account codes and stuff well also i'd never worked for a job where they were like yeah you have to like you have to say which projects you worked on even when we were in drawing control we had to have these numbers right mm -hmm. it's like I just got hired to put paper through this machine to put this like stuff through and then, then run these roles to these different yeah. draftsmen and engineers. Like do, do I have to know the codes? But I did like, we did it the whole time we were there. Yep. I finally Corporate left life. That, I left that job over, uh, over drug testing. Hmm. I wanted out anyway. I wanted yeah. to just, I wanted to move on with life, but, um, they implemented that, that, uh, randomized drug testing thing. And I was really pissed about it. Hmm. And, uh, Tammy Lockman's dad, Wally, hmm. who was the person who brought me up in the piping department, was like, I know you don't want to do this. Oh, Wally. Yeah, I, re I remember that name. <laughs> He's like, I know you don't want to do this. Yeah. I, I know you're having trouble with it. He goes, and he goes, and I can solve it for you. He goes, I yeah. can lay you off and then you'll be able to, you don't have to quit and you can get on, you can get unemployment and you can do, you know, yeah. like, and I was like, well, uh, I don't want to sign it. He was like, why don't we just do that? And then he was like, people, <laughs> people want to know why I let you go. People thought like, you know, yeah. like it, it kind of came, he said it came back. Well, on yeah. I remember they started doing, they did a reorganization and they started cutting back. And I remember they told me, they were like, look, there's, there's a chance we'll have to let you go. You know, it's kind of a last hired first fired thing. You're really good at what you do. You, you probably have opportunities somewhere else. And that's when, and, um, Gunther was my, um, Ed, uh, what was his name? Um, I can't remember his last name. Um, anyway, my supervisor, we went to school with one of his sons, you know, and I just said, Hey, you know, I've, I've actually been looking into going to school and it's kind of because, you know, you helped me get in to take some classes. And I said, if I quit to go to school, can you not fire someone? And can that, so mm. in my head, it was like, maybe someone could keep there. And, and, and I don't ever really know because I, you know, I was, I was pretty stoked for school. Like I was really excited to go to school because I figured out high school in the last six months of high school, yeah. all you have to do is apply yourself a little bit and you get really good grades. <laughs> so this was like my chance. And I was like, Oh, if I can just bring that same gusto and, you know, and at the time, because I was with several civil structural, I wanted to be an architect. So I went back to school thinking I was going to do architecture, which was not, you know, not where I ended up going. Right. Well, and I think it's, I mean, I hate to say, it, I think it's probably good. We got out of that business just because I, it's, yeah. there's so much volatility. I mean, so many of the people we worked with were like, Oh, I was working in Texas for the last three years. And then I came up here. Remember one of the women I worked with was like, all there is to do is go to rodeos. All these guys are taking me these rodeos and it just sounded yeah. like her life was horrible. And then she was up there for a little while on a project. And then that project run out and then they let her go and a bunch of other people. And so because we were like local, low level, we were like staying in our spots, but there were a lot of people coming yeah. and going and I was watching that and it felt like writing on the wall. Like this isn't stability necessarily for a lot of people yep. to do it. Yep, for sure. And also that was around the time of the first Gulf War. So yeah. like, 
the entire oil industry and you know that that was that was like a big thing at the time and i was like yeah it's probably probably time to go before they well, end and that's up telling what, you you have to go that's yeah. why we had jobs is because there were refineries up around yeah. that area and so this was the place where like i remember one of the craziest days was one of the dudes i think his name was neeper Steve Nieper, he was one of the uh, project coordinators, project managers. He came running in with a bunch of drawings and he like ran into like a board, not a boardroom, a meeting room and said something like the, the module, he was yelling something like the modules on fire or something like that, or the units on fire. So like they were calling saying like, what do we turn off to put this fire out to like get the pro like they couldn't, they couldn't make it work with what they knew. And yep. so they were having to go to these old drawings to see how the stuff was flowing through this old yeah. part of the refinery. Drawing controls never been more powerful than when you need copies of stuff. <laughs> you think we were the mice in the basement. <laughs> but yeah. just like, like, okay, sometimes there's panic. It isn't just old dudes drawing on yeah. these but there was yeah it was it was really interesting. A, a similar one i remember because i was I, I did a lot of i had to go to refineries quite often and like climb up on stuff yeah. and sketch you know what and my dad did that quite a bit so i remember thinking wow wouldn't that be weird if i went to mobile and my dad was working and i bumped the house please don't let me bump into my dad <laughs> but i remember i went to um gp one day when it was still you know a pulp factory or whatever it was and there was some you know there was some massive problem with something and like you need to climb up to the top of that building and move around and then they gave me this sensor and I was like, what is this? And I said, don't worry about it. If the sensor goes off, you're already dead. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. What is this measuring? And I remember I was like, maybe that's probably the last time I want to, you know, go down and be, because there was some, there was some, there was always some problem with chlorine at GP. Oh, you mean like the chlorine gas that they had to close off downtown and yeah. we almost all died? Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. So I, yeah, I remember, but they gave me the sensor and I thought, well, why even give me the, it's kind of like a badge. I mean, it's not going <laughs> to, but yeah, when they told me, oh, if it goes off, it means you're already dead. And I thought, wow, that's Wow. So I don't know why <laughs> I never, my department, I never went into GP, but we would go to Arco and we would go to Canada, someplace up there. And then, uh, whatever, whatever that is just outside of Anacortes. The Shell station I went to a bunch of their big because they had a different they had like a hydro cracker or something was different they were they were, oh. they were trying to tell me this stuff and I'd be like you might as well be speaking Mandarin I don't understand any of this I'm just measuring like one support for a pipe bracket or something yeah exactly <laughs> that's all well, it is we'd be driving there and like whoever engineer or I would be with would just be like they can't burn the flare like that they'd complain they'd be yeah. like they can't like they're only yeah. supposed to burn that flare and and then i dated this woman named jessica who lived in anacortes and so i'd drive by there all the time and because i had worked in anacortes i'd drive and i'd look up and i'd just be like they can't burn the flare like that like it was always like it would be burning like the stuff would be coming out the top but then running down the outside of the of the smokestack of the yep. stack and like burning off that and then uh it wasn't that much longer there was some massive explosion that killed a bunch of people there if yeah. you remember in the news a very dangerous place and we'd just be like walking around in these places yeah. like following some dude so we could like because that was our process we were going to slowly learn how this yeah. stuff worked and then yeah we'd we'd run it all someday <laughs> i remember oh, one God, time no. mobile became to soro and there was a problem with the dock with the ships that came in and that was i remember that was one of those big emergency things that i had oh. to work on and i was like what <laughs> i had no i like no idea people were like panicking and yelling and throwing stuff at me and i was like what what's you don't have the proper paperwork right you know like I'd, i had no idea that there was like a ship that was hung up on a pier or something <laughs> am i supposed to know about yeah. this <laughs> Did did someone draw this 30 years ago and I'm supposed to have it at my recall? You're not working fast enough. Well, you know, usually I take my first break, but you know, like no no idea, like no idea what uh, about any of that or what was going on. 
I got to get a cup of coffee. Yeah. We run off coffee. <laughs> I believe I get two breaks every three hours. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So we, and then after that, I was, well, after that, I, I was still in Bellingham for a little while. I worked at Alpha Technologies. Um, again, another Rob Ice works there place. So, so was that the Alpha Tech that was, uh, sold Apple computers? No, I don't think okay. so. No, this was a, like a, I worked on an assembly line riveting things together. Oh, like I, okay. I like, I made, like I worked on the enclosures that held backup battery power supplies. There's one actually on the corner outside yeah. our house, which is such a trip to me to this day to walk by and see the alpha technologies logo that I used to wa- work yeah. next to the woman who screened them all. Hmm. But, um, yeah, I would sit there sometimes for day, like just listening in headphones, listening to talk radio or like punk rock music and just rivet. I would just rivet these drawers in these things. And it was actual like assembly line work. And I didn't get paid enough, but if I got paid more, I could have done that for the rest of my life. I really I, like doing the same job repetitively yeah. where I can just turn off my brain and it goes somewhere else while I just move. The th- I get it. Like I get the assembly line thing. Yeah. So that was I, good. I was talking about BBC America always being on. Like sometimes if there's like a problem with coding and something's numbered wrong and you got to go back and hand number a thousand things. And I just had to do one that was like 300 and it was like four fields and I couldn't oh. like I couldn't figure out how to get the software to do it. So it just becomes that mindless. And after a while, yep. you're like, this isn't that bad. I'm watching TV. I'm yeah. doing something I'm not going to mess up. I'm there's, getting two yeah. things done at once. Yeah. <laughs> Entertainment <laughs> and work. Yep. yep. <laughs> um. So while I was at, at Alpha Tech, I got the call from Ron where he was like, Larson, I got you a job. I got you a place to live. Quit your job. Move to Seattle. Get out of that town. And that was just gone. And then after that, I was just down here and doing doing my thing. I remember the job post-aggression <laughs> pre-Christensen. <laughs> I worked at Kinko's in Bellingham. Oh, you yeah. worked at the Kinko's in Bellingham, I, I which there. I did later yeah. I, yeah. when I went to Seattle. So you, how long did you work at the Kinko's in Bellingham? Um, pr- Probably a year. And I remember- Before coming to Christensen. Yeah, because I remember when I when I left to do that, um, he's a cop now in Bellingham, Mike something. I can't remember his name. I remember as I was, le- I worked a lot with him. He was a, he was a little bit older than us, but he was really funny. Oh, okay. And we would joke around a lot to the point where we joke about customers without them knowing he was one of those guys that you work with in a job that's not that great, that makes it really great. And I remember the day that I was leaving, cause I'm not like sentimental, emotional type. And I remember he pulled me aside and, you know, he got a little choked up and he's like, I want you to have this. You're, you're going to do something that, that I'm not going to do. And he gave me like a really cool, like a Stadler compass and drafting set. And he was like, at one point I wanted to be a draftsman and my dad gave me this and I've had it for a long time and uh, I I want you to have it. And so I used it. I actually used it. That's amazing. And then like 10 years later, like I went to Bellingham for some super random thing. And I was walking around down in Fairhaven and he was like a beat cop on it. And I was just like, oh, hey, what's up? And I, I had, it was, it was like super cool. Like, and, and I remember because. So you yelled a cab and hit him with a brick? <laughs> I did not. And he <laughs> okay. remembered me and I still look pretty punk rock. And at first he gave me a really, he made kind of a joke like, hey, you look like you're up to trial. And I, and I you know, I knew who he was. And I yeah. was like, I was just like, yeah, I was just getting ready to like sink a boat or something. Cause there was all these like boats that were moored up there or whatnot. But uh, yeah, so I, now I remember now. Yeah, I did that for, I don't know, nine months or a year or something. Right. And then you came from there. Yeah. Yeah. Over to over to Christians, and he was he was really cool. He was one of those guys we'd because we'd work the night shift, and we would just laugh. And it was just one of those jobs where it just wasn't terrible. And I same thing. I remember thinking I could probably do this forever if I had you know a good work crew to have fun with, but didn't really pay, not really any benefits. You know, it's not not like you know something you want to build a career on. 
Not like consulting by yourself and not getting benefits and building. Oh yeah, career. seriously, <laughs> seriously. I, you know, um, it got better. Like you know, I worked at Kinko's from ninety from December of ninety two up through uh, year two thousand. Like very end of ninety nine, early yeah. two thousand, and it was was making way more realistic money at the end, and they were kind of trying to in, and it all went sideways. You know, FedEx yeah. bought it, and FedEx, I, I don't understand. They bought it and then changed the name, yeah. Like just took the name away. You buy a brand, and then I, I guess they just wanted the physical stores. Yeah. And for a while, it was FedEx Kinkos, and then it just yeah. became FedEx and FedEx Store, FedEx, FedEx Office, whatever. FedEx Office, yeah. 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 Kinko's inside. They would have those posters in the wall, but it was just like, why would you do that? Yeah. Just buy Jello and call it yeah. something else. Well, remember why it was called Kinko's, right? The guy that started it. It was his hair or something. Paul Orfala. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that it. was yeah. his nickname. Yep. Sure, it was. They yeah. called you Kinko because of your hair. <laughs> yeah, officially. Yeah, yeah. yeah he. You know. He started with, you know, whatever, however much money, a small loan and a dream. He used to wheel, wheel his one photocopier out onto the sidewalk because it wouldn't fit inside his yeah. little, like, his little, yeah. like, uh, whatever it was, cabana. Well, I remember there, I was just a counter person. And then at some point, I, I was like the kiosk for a while. I got to, yeah. like, run the, that was like a big thing if you got to run the big machine. So I remember uh, it. Ron Gardepi quote. Keyopping is freedom. <laughs> exactly. You can decide who gets 1,500 double-sided, trifolded, stapled brochures or, and who has to wait. I, you I, can slip all your friend's lyric sheet orders in between the yeah. real orders. Oh, I remember people would come in and they'd be doing zines or they'd be doing records. And I remember sometimes you just wouldn't charge them because it was super cool what they were doing. I think Bill came in one time and was doing like some, some you know, rated X stuff or whatever. And it was just like, you know, he, he would bring me that little key thing and I'd be like, oh, it's, oh, I'll, I'll just take care of it. And <laughs> if you drop it on the floor, sometimes the numbers scramble <laughs> and then you just have to yeah. be honest. You're on the if honor you system. you throw them on the floor, they will for sure scramble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Of course, there was the old, before they switched over from those, those key counters. So these were, <laughs> these were things about the size of, I don't know a what we would compare into something? a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. Like about that size that you would plug into the machine to make it work. And it had a physical counter that would count every copy that you made. And so of course what people would do, they would steal them. They would like, you know, they were on these little like plastic holders, much like when you go to the gas station, you get the yeah. key for the restroom. So people would clip that, take them and then send those or sell them to people at other Kinko's in the country that had this key counters. So you could have your own key counter that you'd take in. You'd start with theirs, switch them halfway through and then swap them out. And you go up and you pay for your thousand copies. You pay, you know, 50, oh, 100 copies. Oh, FedEx. If you only knew. <laughs> if you only knew. <laughs> I'd like to think the statute of limitations on any of these discussions has uh, expired. <laughs> but no, yeah, I'm that... just saying that I, this is what I heard people did. Yeah. And this is the same time when you had a dialer to make long distance phone calls. Yeah. We had people had basically broken the system before things went like full digital and cell, cellular. And... I remember that was the first time I saw a word processor because there was one guy that just did resumes. And then he just didn't want to do it anymore. So he like quit. He was like that. I'm too valuable to leave and they'll never find. And then they fired him and I was like, no, I can do it. So I remember I'd get to work on like resumes and be like, should we use avant-garde or Helvetica? You know, like, oh, wait, you, yeah. you went into just, desktop publishing? Well, they, they just didn't have anyone to do it. And they were oh, like, wow. oh, we, we offer it as a service and you know, so-and-so was gone. And I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. But, you know, absolutely no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Probably everything justified with tabs or spaces or <laughs> nothing bolded the right way. I definitely would not come You're to me. You're just making people's resumes. <laughs> 
Look, giving them the giving them jobs they didn't. Do. You're getting, thank you, Carts. Okay, you got a master's of nursing from the University of Washington, and you're not going to tell anyone anything different. Yeah, all the references are just different numbers here yeah. at the store. We'll I've, all yeah. we'll all let. So that's Mike, who's going to be a cop someday. He's your first <laughs> reference. <laughs> And then I remember oh, um, there was a woman named Pika and she was like six foot two. She was like really, and, I, and it was funny because um, and I, I think she was Scandinavian and, and then that language, that means small. And she was just like, yeah, my parents, they missed that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Knew it well. All right. So we, so I'm in Seattle. Yeah. You have now gone on a journey. You've gone back to, back to like, what's the right way to say this? Your ancestral home. Sure. Yeah. Is that is that the right way to say it? Um, sometimes I say the uh, middle of nowhere, um, rural British Columbia, and people say, "Well, what's it by?" And you say, "Banff," and they'll say, "Oh, that's really beautiful." And I'm like, yeah, I'm, not, "I'm like, you know, forty miles away from it being beautiful. Forty miles of mud away." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but somewhere, go to Spokane, or, or actually go to Coeur d'Alene, and then drive north for three hours. Yeah. Mm, fun. I've crossed the border, an average of once a week for like thirty two years. So. Do you um, like Ainsworth? Um, so it's interesting. The guy that just texted me um, is the chief of the Lower Kootenai Band, and they're the ones that own Ainsworth. Ainsworth is our traditional territory. Oh, Those wow. caves are where we would go and pray and like heal up our bodies. So I do a the lot of work. And yeah, stuff? I go do a lot of work at, at, at Ainsworth. I've been there once. Amazing. Yeah, it's they just redid. They have like a world-class chef and restaurant. It's amazing. They did a huge expansion. Um, they're, they're one of the indigenous communities that's investing in businesses and doing really well. And I get to work there all the time. That's nice. beautiful. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Were you surprised that I knew it? A uh, little bit. Cause almost nobody, everyone knows Nelson. Um, Nelson. That's why I was yeah. in Nelson and that's why I uh, made a day trip up to Ainsworth. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. And, um, I kind of get a little special coupon when I go, I always get like a good deal on my meals. Cause I know I work a lot with, um, uh-huh. chief Jason Louie from the, the lower Kootenai band. Yeah. Oh, I see you talking to that guy on Facebook all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. He's one of those guys. He's he's a chief. He's super strict. He's very traditional. Um, a lot of people are afraid of him, but <laughs> I'm technically, you know, like on Game of Thrones, how there was the hand of the, the oh. king or the queen. I'm I'm t- literally Aquiet is on the right hand of the chief of the Lower Kootenai Band. So when we do cultural events, I'm the guy that helps him, you know, do those kinds of things. And um, we, he and I, have worked there all the time. You're yeah, more we, you're more Tyrion than Littlefinger, right? Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but it is really, it's it's a great place to go. And um, there's a couple people like that, that that I get to joke around with a lot. But yeah, he's, so I'm glad you saw that. I'm, I'll make sure I let him know that that, <laughs> that, that antagonistic relationship, uh, the unit of analysis there is snarky Facebook comment. Oh, yeah, it economy. definitely comes across. <laughs> he was the best man at my wedding. Oh, very cool. His speech, he got up and he says, when I first met Chris, I didn't like him. And then there was a long, awkward pause. And then he just sat down and everybody was like, <laughs> not really sure. I mean, he told a little bit more, but yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, I've worked with him. He's one of the only other young people from our community that's very, very steeped in very traditional things, but prays in the language, does stuff the way his family's done since the, you know, centuries old stuff. And um, I had moved down to um, the Flathead Reservation in Montana and my mentor there was like, I'm going to transfer you to someone else. That's going to be a little weird for you because you're actually older than the person that's mm-hmm. going to mentor you. So your apprenticeship will be with, you know, somebody that's, and then just ever since then, we've just kind of, you know, found a way to stay in each other's lives and, you know, tease each other. Cool. Yeah. 
So what, so, so we haven't even gotten into like your current like situation. I know you and I talked for a little bit. You're in Spokane now. You live in Spokane. And you, you told me you live in the area where Matt Shea is your representative? Yeah, I believe uh, he, I can't remember exactly what his job is, but I know that he's on uh, my ballot to live in Spokane Valley, which is a very conservative area. Uh, I'm not always super stoked to be there, but, you know, um, I can definitely say in the last couple of years during the current presidential administration, you really get an idea for who can be critical about things and who are just, you know, fly off the you know, say whatever, not care about. I mean, I've, I've right after right after the new administration, I had people tell me to go back to where I came from, and I live in what's the traditional territory for my indigenous community, and I was like, hey, you're a little bit off the mark, buddy. My people are from here. We this corner of Spokane is an area. So, um, go back it, where you came from. You just sit down. Oh well, <laughs> no. The best thing was is he was in a big truck. And he started yelling because it was snowy and, you know, and then I, you know, I rolled down my window and I was like, hey, do we got a problem? And he started telling me to go back to where I came from. And then I started in and I was, I got out, I started to get out of my vehicle. I opened the door and he takes off and I was like, oh no, (laughs) (laughs) I have a Subaru and I can out, I can outrace you in your vehicle in the snow. (laughs) So I followed him for six, eight blocks or something. And then just kind of, it was, it's very like the tension, the stress about you know, I'm just mad the way about the way things are. And, and I'm going to, you know, I have all this hidden social capital that I now have because a white man is in the, you know, White House and alternative fact and all of that. Like, I just like it got really, really crazy. You really knew who your friends were really quickly. And um, the number of people that would post, just give him a chance. And how do you know he's not going to be good? Because because I would, you know, because he was making fun of the disabled in front yeah. of chanting crowds and how it ever went any further beyond that to yep. me is, uh, and, and I'm an independent, my wife and I get out the voter's guide. We go to dinner we sit at the table and we go and we, we do Google searches on everybody, every judge, everything, because we want to try and pick someone we think is going to be best for the community. And I would have a hard time doing that right now. Because every Republican is like, I won't criticize the administration. No, they're all they're, they're all in league with yeah. what has happened. It's it, it benefits them. And when you're not white, when you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans person, when you are, you know, somebody who who just wants to have the same experience that all other Americans are having, you can't just say it's okay and maybe it will get better. It's not getting better. The 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 collective experience is this constant tension. And I know people have said, well, you're just making it tense. And I, I have to say, you know, looking at, I mean, there's just a, you don't, you don't have to do very much historical research into that, that man and, and look at the things he's been sued for and those kinds of, and yeah. they're, they're not like, he's not, but people won't believe it happened. Oh, I know it's, it's, it's just, it's crazy insane. And being in Spokane, um, being in the Valley makes, Peaceful Valley is a very nice little, beautiful, progressive community downtown. And, and I had a, a home there and my wife had a newer home in the Valley and we decided to sell mine and, and, and move into hers because it was much easier. The upkeep was much easier, but you know what I wouldn't give to be able to go back and, and, you know, be in that nice little kind of enclave downtown and whatnot. Yeah. <sighs> well, yeah. I, I am sorry you're stuck over in that. There must be something you like about the area over there though. Uh, I found a few good record shops lately. Um, I, when I first, the funny thing was when, um, right after high school, when I first moved to Cranbrook, Shane Stevenson moved to Gonzaga to do his undergraduate 
And so there was someone from the Bellingham scene that was local. So I spent every weekend, I spent every two or three days, um, every week in Spokane, hanging out with Stevenson. And we knew the cool music shops um, with guitars. And then we also knew there was a one really cool record store called 4,000 Holes. And it was records and CDs. And at that point, that's where we, he and I would go and we would, you know, instead of record shopping, we would just, that's where we bought all of our CDs. And the funny thing was, I went in like two weeks ago and was talking with them. And he was like, oh yeah, it's always good when we get a new final guy in here. And I said, you know, what's really funny when you were in the other location, a block down, that was when I went from vinyl to CDs. And I said, over the years, I, you know, in the nineties, I brought, you know, two, 300 CDs from this shop alone. And now I'm coming back and getting vinyl there. So, you know, there's things I'm endearing myself to that, that are really good. There's some, there's some really good people. A lot of my clients are in and around Spokane, um, Spokane tribe of Indians, Colville Confederated Tribes. Um, people from the Flathead Indian Reservation. It's all very local. It's very central. That's how I ended up there. I teach at Gonzaga occasionally, and Gonzaga is a beautiful place and great campus, and they got a really good basketball team, if that's your kind of thing. So So there's some stuff that you would recommend about the area. You don't don't hate it there. Oh, no, I don't. I don't hate it. There's things about it it that I hate, but if you average it all out, um, there's been some really beautiful experiences there that that I like and will always be important to me. Cool. So I'm not sure if from what we've talked about in this episode yet, if a person listening to this would really understand what it is you do for a living. And, and honestly, I'm not 100% sure, even from all the conversations you and I have had over the last couple of years, that I totally understand every, like, what it is exactly you do for a living. Yeah, what so, do you do? So, so it's, it's funny because my wife is, uh, my wife is a, a DJ and a karaoke host and she knows a lot of, you know, Spokane personalities. And she was like, yeah, everyone always asks me what you do. And I, I don't really know what to tell them. <laughs> and I tell them I am an organizational theorist and, um, I am a research professor and then I do all kinds of stuff on the side. And she was like, yeah, I'm probably not going to do it. I will tell people you're an organizational theorist. And I was like, okay, good. So, um, so you theorize about the best ways to organize I'm not going to say things. Is sure. it systems? Well, is it everything around us in somehow is an indexed system? The way that you have things organized, the way that there's certain records. Oh, don't that are no 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 don't don't sweep <laughs> your hand around this room as if there's any real organization. The only it's in my brain, yeah. and I only know half of it. But yes, I understand what you're saying. So, so so for me, what was really great was um, I started off working on language, and then I started to see that language is the spoken side of culture. And my community went through a really brutal process of colonization where our voice, our, our meaningful uh, you know, offering in a number of conversations was forcibly removed. We were not allowed to have our own children. Our children were taken away. We were not allowed to raise them. Um, we weren't allowed to wear our clothing. We had to dress differently. We couldn't wear our hair long. We couldn't pray. We, all of these things were, they were, um, some of them were just kind of forcefully repressed and some of them were against the law there were in especially in bc um there were a lot of our ceremonies anything that you did that was that could be called um a chanting and like i can't remember what it was it's the the exact terminology is like a chanting and random giving away of wealth that was outlawed very strictly and so i started studying you know networks and the way information moves itself in a problem solving way if you need to solve a problem you don't do things randomly if the house is on fire you don't try and run through that wall you go through the door there's just certain things yeah. that, that make sense and um i started looking at how a community preserves its identity using you know language and culture and um we started looking at 
after colonization, when Canada had said, okay, we want to reconcile for the things that we did, it was really tough because everyone just said, oh, well, you're okay now. You can go back and pray the way you did. You can speak your languages. You can do those things. But there's something that happens when four generations of kids are removed from their parents, and then they have kids, and those kids go to the school, and then those kids have kids, and they go to the school. All of those things that help you to fit in and belong and find your purpose and be a part of a community, they're harder to find. The way you pray, your, the fact that I didn't know where I was from and I didn't even know my grandparents' names until relatively recently. We have people in our communities that, that live in the same you know, small community as their first cousins or grandparents and they don't know them because we were not allowed to pass that kind of information on. Um, the priest, when a woman would go in to give birth, the priest was the one who decided whether or not she would be sterilized. The ability to even have children was, was the, even to make that decision was taken away from us. So we started looking at what happens all around the world when that happens. Um, New Zealand, Torres Strait Islanders, when they went through the similar process. Australia, um, what happened to um, the working class poor in Ireland that went to the schools where they basically were working on laundry. They went to industrial schools and they did kind of manual labor and then they went home. And um, another really good example was um, fall of the Soviet Union, where you have your churches back and you can speak your old languages and people didn't just flock back because there's this kind of distrust. You don't really, why would we do it? It was taken away. Um, you over-romanticize the past so you have a hard time moving forward. Um, you, you develop a lot of trust issues between groups, within your community. And so I moved home and all I wanted to do was find, in, uh, you know, a more efficient way for people to work together, um, to be able to solve problems together, to use the language, you know, sing, dance, pray, all of those things that most people take for granted. Well, we can go to our church and we could do whatever we want. But there's some places in the world that for a century that was literally physically beaten out of people. So how do you get one? How do you get people to realize that they have a, an extreme amount of anxiety over that? Because no one talks about it. And it just is this thing that grows inside of you, right? And then when someone says, well, who are your grandparents? If you don't know, that's not a good conversation. That's like, I don't know the basic things about myself. So we started just doing all kinds of workshops on, you know, starting to understand when you're having that anxiety, what your triggers are, how to interact more patiently with people. Um, we knew that we had some of these, you know, our language, our culture, our songs, our stories. We knew that we had them, but we didn't really know how to share them again. So a lot of what I've got to do is focusing on that, understanding that when communities don't do that, they're not very healthy. So most recently, federal research projects into, you know, what, what a healthy community is, has to know its identity, has to be able to tell the next generation of kids, this is where you came from, and this is your family, and this is who you're related to, literally those records were wiped away. Our names were, it was Father Kokolov at St. Eugene's who got everyone together and just gave them all new Christian names. We went from being, you know, red breasts and we went from being horse thieves and we went from being birdstones and we went from being all of these really rich names that have this information encoded in them to tell you who you are to being Luke's and Paul's and Sam's and Pierre's. It's that simple. My dad was Pierre Sam. I was technically Chris Sanchez, but I'm from the Sam family. What do those mean? They don't, they don't have any of that kind of, you know, that, that kind of rich identity. So in a, in a way I do a lot of like policy type stuff. I try and figure out how to get people to do things um, when maybe the elephants in the room and just talk about it and learn about it and make it so it doesn't take control over every conversation. And then the other half of it is I get to just work directly with people, getting them 
hanging out together, doing things. I get to, we did a workshop where we just got people together to talk about family trees. And why would you need a workshop to do it? Well, because literally we, we have kids that don't know who the grandparents are because they weren't allowed to say who was married to who or who, you know, whose, whose family was sterilized or, I mean, there was just all this kind of crazy stuff. So the beautiful part of what I get to do is all of that kind of background and always trying to figure out who I am and why I didn't fit in or, you know, how my personality developed because we moved around a lot or, you know, something like that and finding it, finding a way for it to be this empowering thing for other people. So for me, there's that beautiful part of it that always comes back to community, whether it's the punk rock community, whether it's the skate community, whether it's straight edge, whether it's hardcore, um, whether it's podcasters, whether it's record collectors, there's that sense of community. You know, there's other people with similar interests and you can build each other up and you can get information from one another and you can do these. Our community was really struggling to do that. And and now we're just, we're doing a lot of really, I think, really good, um, amazing things. And it always goes back to me to if the next kid that comes along in our community doesn't feel like they have someone to turn to, they're going to turn to bad things. So how, how do you make sure that, that people can reach out, that they can share, that they can, you know, develop that, that rapport, that they can feel safe or, or whatnot? So it's always been, um, you know, really good, a really good thing. And I will still always to this day, there's three or four people in my life that have put me in a position to be able to help people in that way. One, my daughter and understanding the way um, that she and I have had to relearn the way we communicate to solve problems. She taught me. I mean, I, I'd, I'd written a paper for MIT, right? And then I realized I don't, I don't know how to interact with this little person. I've got to completely rethink it. As smart as, I, as my college degrees say that I am, there are some things that I'm not doing right and I need to do better. Watching um, uh, another very close relative that, that struggled with addiction for a long time, struggled to be resilient and solve problems was really an amazing thing. Watching my mother make a family out of a really bad situation was great. And I would also say somewhere in there, and this is probably a nice fitting way to, to end the session here, but, you know, it's funny because when I was at that very formative age in my life, that 14 to 18, you and I would just argue. Oh, yeah, we follow <laughs> Argue and argue. <laughs> but I would say that your influence of always being that person there to argue back and forth with. Remember one day at aggression, you screamed out, if I told you the sky was blue, you'd try and argue with me that it was green. Like, oh, that, are you the first person I said that to? I think so. Well, at least, <laughs> I, I mean, that had to be, you know, 88 or somewhere in oh, there. Oh, God. Somewhere in oh, there. Oh, God. But that was, you know, that, how do you, you know, really still work with someone to make something, but also just always be like, you know, that always, like learning how to like argument, put together, you know, <clears throat> put together, a, you know, like, a, like, a, you know, something that you're trying to prove or whatnot like that. You're, you're, you know, you are a really big influence on me in that sense. And always just a really good one. Credit. <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, the idea that like the times when we, then we, when we would be at each other's throats, if that was helpful to you in some way, then it's worth it. Yeah. I like, think I'm, I'm, absolutely. Yeah. That is a really nice way to end this. I think, and, and thank you. I, I'm going to say that, uh, you're giving me too much credit. Um, but, uh, and considering that list that you just listed, I don't necessarily think I belong on it, but it was nice of you to do. I appreciate it very much. And uh, then I've been thrilled to have you here. And I do think we'll, we'll do a follow-up at some point because we've been doing this for a long time today, but I can think of a whole bunch of things I still want to talk about. Sure. It's always good. And uh, uh, great to come back over. We, you know, we didn't hang out for a long time. And then uh, I think the best uh, message I've ever got on any um, social media was we'd kind of reached out and you said, so we're good. And I said, yeah. And you said, odd weight lifted or something like that, which, you know. <laughs> 
I didn't. Okay. I mean, I'll get serious for a second. I didn't expect to have like an emotional reaction. Hmm. Like I thought that like, like if, even at the time I was like, well, Chris is contacting me. Wow. And then I went through a thing. Like I went through like a, like, Oh, Hey, totally unable to see that there was a problem in your life that was unfixed. Hmm. Like, I mean, I could have told you that I could have told people like that there was a problem, but not knowing that it was actually like hurting me. Hmm. You know what I mean? And then, like, then it, then it was just so cool to kind of like, Oh, I didn't know I was wearing this. Like I, this is so like a burden. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, it seems like a trite way of putting it or something that I heard about in church when I was like a little kid or something, you know, but like, yeah, it felt like it came off and it was awesome. And I've been much happier about all of this in the last, I mean, I, I, I'm saying a couple of years, but was it a year? Was it two years ago? Was it a year uh, It was ago? probably a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It had to be a couple of years, but no, it's been great. And I'm so happy you're sitting in that chair right now and that we've got, now I get to spend, well, it won't be four hours. It will be whatever it takes yeah. to edit almost four hours. So this episode will come out down the road some, <laughs> somewhere yeah. when I, uh, but uh, it's, it's been great having you here. And uh, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I really, really good. appreciate it. It's always good. Every time I come to town, um, it's always good to have, because I still would come to, you know, Bellingham and Seattle a lot, but pretty much hang out by myself. And so it's actually, I get really excited to come over and, you know, visit and, you know, see yourself and Bill and. Oh yeah. You and me and Bill, like (laughs) just like a couple of weeks ago, had a really nice night. We went to a record store, had an interesting experience. (laughs) We won't recount here with some, with uh, uh, one individual who, wow. His language was incredible. I call him my record friend. He literally said the word half breed. (laughs) As if you could just say that yeah. and it was normal. And then we all just assumed that it was okay in one thing when it was probably not the same for everyone. <laughs> no. Um, but no, it was, that was, that was great. And we'll do, I'm assuming we're going to do a lot more of that in the future. Yeah. It's good. All right, brother. It's good Looking to see Looking forward you. to it. Yeah. Later. Oh, oh wait, get, hold on. Get the cool guy handshake. The, <laughs> the world's worst recorded snap. <laughs> Okay, if you've made it this far, you are a trooper. You've come all the way through that long, long episode. You know what? I had a great time with that episode, and I could have kept talking to Chris. He calls himself Christopher. I knew him as Chris. I really got to get used to calling him Christopher. Anyway, thanks for coming this far. I'm not going to do a whole lot here, except a couple of quick corrections. These are the things I caught. There was probably more, but this is what I caught. When we were talking about the Dead Kennedys, I mistakenly think Bedtime for Democracy is a live album. But then, settle on the idea that the live album I'm thinking of is Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, which is also wrong. That is the record I was thinking of, but it's more of a compilation of rare tracks with some live and not a true live album. So, completely got that one wrong. At another point, I say, Extremity was the band that was recording at my grandmother's. Extremity was Christopher's band with Bill Baker singing. They weren't recording at my grandmother's. I wish they were recording at my grandmother's. I would love to have an Extremity recording. No, they were just practicing there. We had a practice space and it was awesome. And a number of bands got to go down into this cabin at my grandmother's old property and practice. And it was great. And, uh, you know, that place is long gone, but there are a lot of good memories associated with it. 
And the last thing I caught was I say that Jen Martinez got me a job at Christensen Engineering. And that's true in the sense that her father recommended me for a job because he worked there. And it's very likely that Jen told me about the opportunity, like I should talk to her dad about it, but Jen didn't work there. So she didn't have the pull to actually get me the job. It was just kind of the shorthand version of of saying at the time, if I didn't know Jen, I wouldn't have had the opportunity. So it's not entirely wrong. But yeah, it was her parents, Richard and Patty, that really had the pull that got me that job. And it was a big deal. And they are awesome people. And she is an awesome person. And not to take anything from anyone, I just wanted to make sure the record was as straight as possible. I catch these things while I'm editing and I just can't let them just go, you know? All right, that's it. No reason to extend this any longer. Please, you know, leave me one of those five-star reviews on, it's not even iTunes anymore, it's Apple Music now, I guess, or wherever, wherever you've heard this podcast. I'm slowly going to be uploading all of the podcasts to YouTube, also through the Nobody's Knows YouTube channel. So if you're keeping score, I would like you to subscribe to quarter bash on youtube and also nobody's knows on youtube that would be great all right see you next time thank you all this podcast is a product of the nobody's knows podcast network executive producers david r larson and k drake streetman Music for this episode is provided by Polymorph from the album Artifacts, Demos and Debris.